When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm thrilled that you'd invite me over for scripture study, even on a week like this one. And I say even because for most people, the second half of 2 Kings isn't exactly their favorite part of the Old Testament. They don't make any veggie tales of this section, as far as I know. And for most people, it's a forsaken or forgotten part of Old Testament history, mostly because it's just history. Well, I don't say just. Uh, but it's incredibly historical. We are dealing with the end of the northern kingdom and the end of the southern kingdom. Uh, a couple centuries worth of history going on as we bounce back and forth between north and south, king to king, trying to make sense of what's going on. And sadly, we're missing out on major prophets like we've enjoyed the last two weeks with Elisha and Elijah. I mean, that's dynamic duo. How do you beat that? Uh, the prophets that we get today, many of them are unnamed or kind of one-hit wonders, as we've discussed in the past. Uh, we will get a cameo, actually a little more than a cameo, from Isaiah. Now you're thinking, great. We get boring history and complicated, uh, confusing prophecy all rolled into one? Yes. Uh, but I'll try to, to make sense of it all for us so that we can wrap our heads and hearts around it. Because it's absolutely essential that we do. Uh, despite its forgotten or forsaken nature, these chapters are key to make sense of everything we're going to study in the second half of our year uh, in the prophetic books. In fact, the reason we've really got to, ma to master these chapters, or at least make um, sufficient sense of what's going on historically, two reasons. One is the historical and the other is the personal. So let me say something about each one. On the historical side, this is some of the most significant history that we have in the Old Testament. These chapters today, we'll cover 2 Kings 14 through 25, and we'll bring in a little bit of 2 Chronicles for good measure to round out the stories. Uh, but the, the history here, it's the end. We see the demise of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah today. This is where it all kind of comes crashing down. Uh, the north at the hands of the Assyrians, and the south at the hands of the Babylonians. So we get the Assyrian Empire, we get the Babylonian Empire replacing it. This is major world history with huge world superpowers clashing over control of the Middle East. So even non-religiously, this is really important stuff. But religiously, it's key to understand the history because it's going to help put in context the prophecy that we'll see later on. The way the Old Testament is organized, roughly, is the first part is is historical, and the last part is prophetic, and the middle in between is wisdom literature. And to connect the two is kind of hard to do, but that's what we're going to be trying to accomplish. What I mean by that is all the prophets that we'll see from Isaiah on through Malachi fit into his history somewhere, but their books don't contain the history. The history, for the most part, is found in the chapters that we're going to be studying today. It's kind of like in the New Testament when you study the book of Acts, which is the history, and then you study the epistles of Paul, which is the theology. But you read Paul and you don't get the history, and you read Acts and you don't get the theology, and so you have to merge the two. Same with last year in the Doctrine and Covenants. Doctrine and Covenants, we got the revelation, but we didn't get the history. 
For that, you got to read saints. You know, you got to read the history of the church. But there you get the history and not the revelation. So huh, it, it, we've got our work cut out for us in those kinds of instances. And today is one of those times where we will lay out the historical foundation to see the prophets later in our, in our year. Uh, up north, as the Assyrians are coming, you'll get prophets like Hosea and Amos, important the things that they teach up, up there. Uh, at the same time period down south, you'll get Isaiah and Micah. Uh, fast forward to the Babylonian conquest, and it's all happening down south, but there you'll get prophecies from Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And then major prophets, where you get Jeremiah kind of stuck at home with the people in Jerusalem. You get Ezekiel carried off captive with the people into Babylon. You get Daniel carried off to the courts of Babylon. And you get Lehi and his family taking off from one land that didn't seem too promising to a new land of promise in the new world. So if we can make sense of what's happening here, so much of the rest of our stories will grow out of these stories. Okay, And that's the, the historical. On the personal side, when I say that the north is being conquered by Assyria, Assyria's game plan was to scatter their conquered peoples. And so this is where we see the scattering of Israel. And why is that so important to us? Because we are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the key mission of the Latter Days is to gather Israel. I don't think there has been a prophet in our dispensation since Joseph Smith that has emphasized the gathering of Israel more emphatically and more frequently, more passionately than President Russell M. Nelson. He seems to know what time it is. Uh, and in this last dispensation, as we approach the coming of Christ, our job is to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. And to understand the gathering of Israel, it helps to understand the scattering of Israel which in fact is one of the key underlying themes of the entire Book of Mormon, scattering and gathering. So if we can make sense of today, then it'll help your Book of Mormon understanding as well. It's so important that we make sense of this. In fact, in the Isaiah chapters of the Book of Mormon, everybody's favorite part, uh, Nephi uses Assyria and Babylon as types and shadows of the last days. So he's quoting Isaiah, which is time period exactly what we're seeing today. He quotes that to make sense of his day, but also to help us make sense of ours. And so as we see Assyria come today, as we see Babylon come today, Nephi would be ribbing us, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, please understand that this is, this is preview of coming attractions, or in some way preview of coming destructions. Because what happens here, it, it's actually fascinating, for the most part th from from Genesis on down, it seems like a, the prophetic history has been a relay race with one runner at a time. That's not ex entirely true, but it seems like that. So you have an Elijah who runs and then passes the baton to an Elisha. You have a Moses who then passes to, to Joshua. And they have some overlap, obviously, but it's pretty much one prophet at a time. That's completely false here at the end of 2 Kings, because you have... And we've been seeing that with Elijah and Elisha's ministry too, these one-hit wonder, unnamed or, or lesser-known prophets. Big time now. And with the minor prophets at the end and some of the majors that lead up to it, we have a... God seems to be flooding these kingdoms of Israel with multiple witnesses, more voice than one. And that should tell us something, because what's the context? End times. The northern kingdom is about to be scattered by the Assyrians. 
let's send as many prophets as we can to cry repentance and prepare the people. The southern kingdom is about to be annihilated by the Babylonians. Let's send as many prophets as we can to multiply that witness. How many prophets do we have today? Ah, 15 prophets, seers, and revelators. That should tell us something too, that it's, it is the latter days. And we are the Latter-day Saints, and the Church of Jesus Christ has been restored with multiple witnesses to prepare us for the end of this stage and the beginning of the glorious sequel, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And so my prayer for us today is that the Holy Ghost will help us make sense of things that are important for us to understand. And to do so, we will be diving into histories of kings, most of them in the southern kingdom of Judah. Like I said, don't worry about remembering every name. They can be confusing. But we're going to spend time with Amaziah and Uzziah and Ahaz. Uh, those are some of the lesser known ones. And we're going to spend a good chunk of time with Hezekiah and Josiah. Those two are worth remembering by name. Uh, it's tough to beat those two. And so let's dive in. In 2 Kings 14, where we'll begin, uh, which is mirrored by 2 Chronicles chapter 25, these two chapters mesh really well, we're at war between Israel and Judah, which seems to be a common occurrence lately. Uh, but the king up north in Israel is Joash, and the king down south in Judah is Amaziah. And he's going to be our focus in this first chapter. Amaziah is doing pretty well, uh, but though he's not touching the high places, nobody ever seems to do that. Makes you wonder, is anybody ever going to have the courage to take on society's sacred cow? Sometimes they were sacred cows, right? Uh, golden calves in, in Bethel and in Dan. Well, Amaziah is not that guy. He's not going to do it. And perhaps this is the reason why. You get this hint in 2 Chronicles 25 verse 2. And he, Amaziah, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Good news. But, uh-oh, here comes the bad news. But not with a perfect heart. And in some ways, that verse encapsulates the reign of Amaziah pretty well. Uh, a good guy, but not perfectly good. Or if you want to borrow the phrase from James, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I don't know of a better description of the reign of Amaziah than that. He seems to be so double-minded. Or in that verse, double-hearted. He's doing good things, but his heart isn't really perfect in his approach to doing those things. You might get a clue to that in what happens at the very beginning of his reign. Go back to 2, Chronicle, uh, excuse me, 2 Kings 14 for this. In verse 5, it came to pass as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand. So kind of first order of business. He slew his servants, which had slain the king his father. If you remember at the end of last week, there seemed to be all kinds of conspiracies. Uh, with ending dynasties by having some outsider usurp the throne and, and kill everyone in his way. Well, that is what happened with Amaziah's father. And so first order of business is to, well, on the one hand, exact justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? You killed the king, and so you'll pay for it with your life. But if we read that story through the lens of what we first learned about him, he did what was right, but not with a perfect heart. And honestly, this one would be hard to do with a perfect heart because they killed your father. But is this justice from a, a righteous king? Or is this vengeance from an angry son? And we, we can't tell. We can't see his heart. But that glimpse of an imperfect one would suggest it's probably a little bit of both. And it's 
I think to me, it's, it's a matter of, am I purifying my motives even when I'm doing something right? Uh, or am I double-minded? And on the outside, yes, I'm doing the right thing, but on the inside, I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And I wonder if that's a little lesson we need to learn from Amaziah here. Now, thankfully, he stops it with the, the actual guilty parties. In most of the conspiracies, it's not just kill the king, but let's kill all of his posterity, his descendants, his extended family. Remember what Athaliah did with her own descendants? Horrible. Uh, but to, to see what Amaziah does instead is, no, we're going to end it with the guilty themselves and not pass it down to later generations. He says that in verse 6. The children of the murderers he slew not, according unto that which is written in the book of the law of Moses. He knew his, his Torah. Wherein the Lord commanded, saying, The father shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children be put to death for the fathers, but every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Oh, those children were saved by the second article of faith, right? We're punished for our own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Or in this case, not for the transgressions of our conspiratorial fathers. If you're in that situation, for example, if you were raised by parents that weren't so goodly, to borrow Nephi's word, then their sins are not on your head, rest assured. And vice versa, if you're doing your best as parents and your children are wayward or struggling, that's not condemnation to you either. The passage that, that Amaziah is, is living in that verse lets us know that it's independent accountability for all of us. So that's a good thing that he did. Perfect heart, we don't know. Now with this, go back to 2 Chronicles 25 because there's some details in Chronicles that don't show up in Kings. And again, it reveals some double-mindedness on the part of Amaziah. What happens here is he strengthens his army. He wants to go out and, and conquer some additional territory. But he doesn't have enough confidence in his own army, let alone enough confidence in God. And so what ends up happening is he hires 100,000 mercenaries from guess where? From Israel. Now, this is odd. They're the ones that always seem to be at war with each other. It's like, well, they're good soldiers. They keep beating us. Well, what if I hired them and they joined my side? And then we can go out and, and conquer other enemies. He pays them a hundred talents of silver, which is a massive amount. But he has a, you know, an increase of his army by a hundred thousand troops. But then notice what happens. Verse 7 of 2 Chronicles 25. There came a man of God to him. This is one of these unnamed one-hit wonder prophets. But he comes and he says, O king... Let not the army of Israel go with thee, for the Lord is not with Israel, to wit, with all the children of Ephraim. He, they've completely abandoned him up there, and so he's abandoned them. But if thou wilt go, do it, be strong for the battle. God shall make thee fall before the enemy, for God hath power to help and to cast down. Now that little prophecy seems to have two parts. And the first seems to be serious, and the second seems to be sarcastic. The first part is, why would you invite Israelite soldiers when they do not have God on their side? You're making things worse by further alienating the power of God, the God of Israel. So leave alone the armies of Israel and send them home. Then again, here's the sarcastic side. If you want to go down with their quote-unquote help slash hindrance, be my guest. Just make sure you're really strong for the battle since God has proclaimed that you will perish. Uh, good luck, though. Uh, now, I'm not sure if the serious side or the sarcastic side was more effective. But either way, Amaziah realizes you're probably right. I'm bringing certain troops on board that are sending, that are alienating, sending away the most important 
captain of the battle, who's the Lord of hosts. So, but he, but he has a, he's in a quandary because he says, I already paid for them and I didn't keep my receipt. Uh, there's no rebates and refunds with the army of Israel. So I'm out a hundred talents of silver. And this unnamed prophet says to him in verse 9, Oh, don't worry about it. The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. You will more than recoup your losses. In fact, this way, your losses will be confined to money. Otherwise, not only are you out, you out your hundred uh, talents of silver, you're out your army because they will perish in battle. Well, that seems pretty convincing. And so Amaziah sends this, this hired army home. Now, they're not very pleased with this. I think I would be. I'm like, wait, I get to keep my money and I don't have to fight for you? Fantastic. But it tells you something about the minds and hearts of these mercenaries that they're so angry they don't get to fight that they end up fighting on their way home anyway. And they destroy a few cities of Judah on their way back to Israel. But again, better than demolishing the entire kingdom with an army that's alienated God. To me, there's something to this story where if you have made wrong decisions, or specifically if you're in situations you shouldn't be in, or in relationships, connections with others that were unwise from the beginning, then even if it costs you something, it's worth it to get out of that circumstance. If you are, I mean, worst case scenario, if you're engaged to someone you thought would be the right partner and as you get closer and closer to the temple, you realize that this might be the only time we go to the temple. I'm not sure how committed they are to the Lord in this relationship. Then despite the loss, uh, the, the hundred talents, or the, the embarrassment of having to send your soldiers home, there is heartache and heartbreak, but it's better than what would come of a lifetime of a relationship that that isn't worth holding on to. I, I hope that makes sense. And it does, it's not just in interpersonal relationships like marriages and engagements. Uh, and I'm not advocating divorce by any means. Okay, What I'm saying in, in engagement, if you can stop before you start uh, fighting the battle together, because it might be a battle against each other. Uh, and that's not what we want. Well, fast, uh, fast forward, and Amaziah ends up fighting with only his Judahite army. Don't need, doesn't need the, the Israelite mercenaries. He goes against the Edomites, a neighboring uh, tribe that they always fight against. This is Esau's de descendants. And the Judahites win. But this is where you see the double-mindedness of Amaziah. He brings home the Edomite gods. Now, I don't know if this is just kind of, let's put these trophies in the trophy case the way that the Philistines did with the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember that story back in the days of Eli, uh, we won and we beat them, which means we beat their gods. And so we'll bring their gods back. But if there's any sense of worship, and that is actually something Amaziah starts to do, it's like, wait, this is worse than a trophy case. This is polytheism. This is watering down your loyalty to the Lord. And sure enough, another prophet comes and warns him against that behavior. In verse 15 of the Chronicles account, Wherefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah, and he sent unto him a prophet, which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the gods of the people, which could not deliver their own people out of thine hand? I mean, think about the irony there. This was, these were gods on the losing side. Why would you bring the losers home with you? They couldn't even save their own people. Do you really think they're going to help you? 
Worshiping them makes no sense at all. So don't go there. Now, we've already seen Amaziah corrected by a prophet, and he took the last correction really well. But as a double-minded man, guess how he's going to respond to this one? Not very well at all. He gets angry. He threatens this prophet, who ends up fleeing from Amaziah's presence, but not without first throwing back a prophecy over his shoulder and letting Amaziah know, you're going to be destroyed. Yeah, you, 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 this is going to be the end for you. And sure enough, that's going to happen by the end of our chapter today. Now, if you put all this together, I hope you're seeing the lesson that Amaziah's life is teaching us. To be a double-minded man, yes, you are unstable in all your ways. You did what's right, but not with a perfect heart. You, you administer justice, but perhaps not for the right reasons. You listened to one prophet and humbly obeyed, and you attacked and pushed back against another prophet when you shouldn't have. It's all too often, there were days where you trusted the arm of flesh. Although there were other days you trusted the arm of God, Amaziah, make up your mind. Settle your heart and decide whose side are you going to be on. And that's a lesson, I think, worth, worth learning from him. Now, in the aftermath of those events, well, at least I beat the Edomites, and I'm feeling pretty good about that. So with, with or without their gods, I'm fairly, feeling pretty godly myself as far, as far as military might is concerned. So while I've got a, a win streak going, uh, let's take on another army. And which one this time? This is kind of the cluelessness setting in. Let's take on Israel, shall we? Wait, wait. The people that you were trying to get troops from, and now they have all those troops back? You thought you needed their help, but now you're going to take them on? Hmm? Okay. Uh, in the king's account, look at chapter 14, verse 8. Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. Now, that doesn't sound bad at all. Let's just come and be man to man. Let's talk things over. Let's look at each other eye to eye, and we'll be able to see our shared humanity. Oh, good cousin uh, up in the north, fellow Israelite. And then we can discuss peace terms and, and come together on things. No, that's not what that phrase means. It, it, looking one another in the face in that passage is a euphemism for let's go eye to eye, toe to toe, fist to fist, army to army. Let's go to fight. Let's go to battle. And that's what he's, he's throwing down the gauntlet here. And it, to me, it's interesting that that phrase is used because it really could mean either one. In context, it means the second, not the first. But think about it in these terms. When you go to see someone in the face, what are you looking for? Are you looking for an, en an enemy like Amaziah was? Or are you looking for a potential friend? Because a friend is in there behind those eyes. Are you looking for intimidation or are you looking for association? Because when you look someone in the face in an empathetic way, instead of an oppositional way, you'll see a soul behind those eyes. You'll see a story written in every wrinkle. And if you take the time to get to know what's behind that face, you won't end up doing what Amaziah does, which is to go to battle and fight someone that didn't want to fight him back. The king up north, uh, Jehoash, isn't exactly a righteous leader, but he's not picking a fight. 
In fact, he's trying to avoid it. Look at verse 9. Fascinating approach. Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, and he sent him a little story. Story time with King Jehoash. It's a parable of sorts, but it only lasts one verse. He said, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give thy daughter to my son to wife. And there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trod down the thistle. The end. Well, wait, the end? That's your whole story? What is that all about? Well, think it through, Amaziah. Okay, fine. Um, there's, okay, Lebanon, there's a thistle and a cedar. A thistle is just like a weed. Uh, and it ends up getting trampled by this animal. A cedar, that's the, the best tree that Lebanon has to, op oh, let me guess. I'm the thistle and you're the, the cedar. Good. Keep going. And the thistle keeps asking the cedar to send a daughter so, they can, so we can marry into the, the cedar's family. We might have a better hybrid here. Oh, darn it. Yeah, we've done that, haven't we? Kings of Judah keep trying to marry off their sons to daughters from Israel, which never works out well. Uh, the, the Israelites bring Judah down rather than Judah bringing Israel up. Okay, and how does the story end? I, I get trampled by a wild beast? Uh-huh. I'm trying to warn you away from me. Okay, Amaziah, don't pick this fight because you're going to lose it. That's what the king says more clearly in verse 10. Thou hast indeed smitten Edom. Big deal. They are an inferior opponent. But thine heart hath lifted thee up. Pride in your victory. Well, glory of this, but tarry at home. For why shouldst thou meddle to thy hurt? That thou shouldst fall, even thou and Judah with thee. You see what he's saying? Don't let pride over a minor victory lead you to stick your neck out in anticipation of a major defeat. Let it go. Take, take you, you just beat the JV and that's all you're capable of. So leave it at that. Don't take on the varsity. Well, how's Amaziah going to respond to that? Double-minded man. He's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde kind of character as we've seen so far. And is he going to respond with the Dr. Jekyll side of things? Like he listened to the first prophet and, and humbly mended his ways? Or is a hide hiding within that's going to come roaring out like he did to the second prophet? This unstable, double-minded man, what's he going to do? Well, he's not Dr. Jekyll today. Today it's Mr. Hyde. And in verse 11, Amaziah would not hear. Pride does usually breed stubbornness after all. Therefore Jehoash, king of Israel, went up. Fine, you want to fight? Okay, I warned you. And he and Amaziah, king of Judah, looked one another in the face at Beth Shemesh, which belongeth to Judah. So I'll even give you home court advantage, my little friend. But what happens? Judah was put to the worse before Israel, and they fled every man to their tents. Oh, pride goeth before the fall, as they say. And that was definitely the case with Amaziah. Israel, the, the victors in this battle, the unnecessary battle that it was, they took Amaziah captive. They marched on Jerusalem. They broke down much of the city wall. And then verse 14, worst of all, the Israelites took all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Talk about incredible losses in almost every area. Losses spiritually, you just had the temple looted. 
losses politically, your king is now in, subje in subjection to his rival. You had military losses. Your, your army was just decimated. And you had social losses. There have been people carried captive back to Samaria. And all of those losses could have been avoided. Even your enemy was trying to steer you away. Well, Amaziah is eventually killed in a conspiracy. Yeah, those seem to be happening more and more frequently. And he's succeeded by his son Azariah. And this is confusing because he's called Azariah in Kings, but he's called Uzziah in Chronicles. And he's better known as Uzziah than as Azariah. Hold on for a minute. We'll get to him. But the camera pans back north, and we spend just a few verses in Israel when King Jehoash is succeeded by his son, Jeroboam II. Now, sadly, Jeroboam II is no better than Jeroboam I, who was the initiator of idolatry in Israel. And so we have some problems there. However, one verse of good news. In 2 Kings 14, verse 25, King Jeroboam restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the Sea of the Plain. So he did reconquer some of his old lost territory. That's good. But notice the next phrase. According to the word of the Lord of God, which he spake by the hand of his servant, another unnamed prophet, nope, this one's named, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. And yes, it's that Jonah. Like I said, we see intertwinings of the political and the religious. Uh, church and state coming together on things. And so here you see Jonah appearing and making his little cameo. And he said a good thing. He prophesied to the, a wicked king of Judah, and in a, excuse me, wicked king of Israel. And it was fulfilled in a good way. I hope we remember that when we get to Jonah, because if he's only remembered for his worst moments and we've forgotten his best in the, in the, in the meantime, that's unfair. It reminds me of that apostle in the New Testament, Thomas. Yeah, what does Thomas? Oh, you mean, the, you mean doubting Thomas? Yeah, I do mean doubting Thomas. But cut him some slack. He did some other things in the New Testament that were anything but doubtful. Okay? Don't reduce people to their worst moment. This was a good moment for Jonah. But keep going. Verse 26. Why send Jonah in the first place? For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up nor any left nor any helper for Israel. Admittedly, that's a confusing translation, so here's some help from the New International Version. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, that's the shut up or left, whether slave or free was suffering. There was no one to help them. Well, no one but the Lord. But the Lord was there to help them, and he was sending prophets as proof, raising up a Jonah and sending them, him their way. Just like we saw these two unnamed prophets trying to steer Amaziah in a better direction. The help of God is always available. And typically he sends that help through servants. His mouthpieces, the prophets. We'll see more of them today. Again, why do that? When seem, things seem to be going wrong so much, they seem to be going south up there in the north. Verse 27, the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Even through Jeroboam, a wicked king, God can use oh, rusted and dirty tools when there's no other tools available. And for the people's sake, he did so because he didn't say he would blot them out. In fact, you could say that, you could phrase that verse more strongly. He said that he wouldn't. 
He said that he would keep an eye on them no matter what happened. They were still his chosen covenant people, even though they weren't choosing him or keeping their covenants. If we will hold on to that hope, I, I pray it will carry us through the destruction of the North and South that we'll see in our remaining chapters. And we don't have to wait long because by the time you turn the page and look at 2 Kings 15, we're already seeing the scattering begin. Pan down to Judah, okay? And here we have Azariah, son of Amaziah, but let's switch the name because we're going to spend our time in Chronicles instead. Uh, this is Uzziah. He's on the throne. Now, he's reigning in righteousness, but not removing the high places as usual. But according to the king's account, he was a leper, and so they removed him from the throne. We don't want to be contagious here in the, in the palace. So they put him in a separate house to let him live out his days in peace. But his son, uh, Jotham, ends up ruling uh, in his place. Okay? And that's kind of all we get in the king's account. So it's like this weird King Azariah that's a leper. Okay, well, moving on. Don't move on too quickly. Go to 2 Chronicles 26 and let's swap out the names, Azariah for Uzziah. And here you get a whole story of where the leprosy comes from and what happened during the reign that he, that he did exercise. And it's a really important story. So 2 Chronicles 26 verse 5, speaking of Uzziah the king, he sought God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding in the visions of God. Here's another prophet that comes onto the scene during the reigns of this, reign of this king. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Now that seems to be obvious. Of course, if you keep the commandments, you prosper in the land, right? If you'll seek the Lord, you'll find him and he'll help you to prosper. But notice the way that phrase is, is prefaced. Well, as long as you do it, and if we learn anything from Uzziah's father, Amaziah, it was, well, yeah, as long as. But if you don't, if you don't follow God, then God can't prosper you. And that's the problem. You were raised by a Jekyll and Hyde. Which will you be, Uzziah? Because as long as you go with Jekyll, God will be with you. But the moment you turn to Hyde, you have alienated the God of Israel. And we're going to see both. With, like father, like son. We're going to see both sides with Uzziah. Politically, he does a good job. He fortifies Jerusalem. He strengthens the army of Judah. That's important since we saw my dad thrashed by the Israelites. In verse 14 and 15 of the Chronicles account, we see specifically what he's doing. Uzziah prepared for them, his armies, throughout all the host, shields and spears and helmets and habergeons, which is armor, and bows and slings to cast stones, Go beyond that. He made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. His name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. That's a fascinating passage, literally, in terms of military technology. He is equipping his army with, with armor and arms and trying to get them as well prepared as possible. He's fortifying the city. We see towers and bulwarks. But what's up with those engines? I, I wish I understood better. But there's these cunning men, cunning in terms of really skilled workers, and these intelligent inventors come up with some kind of engine that can throw, cast stones and arrows. I don't know if it's a bunch of crossbows that are kind of lined up and you pull a lever and they all shoot simultaneously. That'd be cool. Is, are these catapults? 
that somehow you pull the thing and it, and it throws stones in ways that have never been done before. He's becoming famous for this military technology. But also notice the last phrase, he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Helped by whom? Was it just these cunning inventors? Let's turn from the literal to the spiritual. And what is King Uzziah doing? He's making sure his army has taken on the whole armor of God. Are you carrying the shield of faith? Are you wielding the sword of the Spirit and the Word? Do you have the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness? Are your loins girt about with truth and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? Do you have your habergeon on, your armor of God? You need to be prepared. How about our, our fortifications? Do we have towers with watchmen up above? Do we have bulwarks to, so that we're safe in the sanctuary of standard? This is Captain Moroni uh, fortifying the cities of the Nephites. And in fact, doing it in ways that have never been done before. Oh, mounds of earth and walls and pickets and towers and... And that seems to be what Uzziah is realizing. The old ways are insufficient for new enemies. And so we're going to have to try new things and, and develop in areas that we've never had to develop in before. That's definitely true of our day. Have we learned to navigate the internet and social media? The, have we learned to navigate the spiritual minefields of the modern day? We've got to get better. And best of all, we need to trust in a God who wants to marvelously help us. I love that phrase. I hope that we remember it whenever we are marvelously helped. If you are succeeding, don't take the credit. Pride goeth before the fall, right? Let's learn from Dad, Uzziah, please. Will he? Well, we're about to find out. Verse 16, But when he was strong... His heart was lifted up to his destruction. It went to his head. Don't you realize you were marvelously helped? Ah, no, I didn't need much help. Look at, look at my inventors. Look at my armies. Look at my fortifications. Do you have any idea where the inspiration behind all those things came? Oh, one who does marvelous works and wonders. He marvelously helped you. Why couldn't you recognize that and offer him gratitude instead of taking on pride? No, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. And notice what he did as a result. He transgressed against the Lord God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, first of all, you're not a Levite, King Uzziah. You're from the tribe of Judah. That's why you're ruling over the tribe of Judah. You have no business going into the temple. You're welcome to the outer court. But you have transgressed and trespassed. This is DNC 121 to a, to a T. That when we, receive, when, we, when we obtain a little authority, as we suppose, most of us end up exercising unrighteous dominion. That was the case with Uzziah. He's overstepping his bounds. He's crossing a line and exercising authority he does not have. There is a separation of church and state here, and the state is trying to take over for what the, th the things the church is supposed to do. Does that sound familiar, by the way? First Amendment that creates this distinction? People talk about a wall of separation between church and state. That's not what the Constitution says. 
That was an invented phrase later on by Thomas Jefferson. But to see the First Amendment restrictions, in many ways, they were trying to protect the church from the state. In our day, we've turned things around and think the First Amendment is meant to protect the state from the church. That's not what it was intended to do. Typically, what ends up happening is the state oversteps its bounds, and that's what happened here with Uzziah. So keep reading. Verse 17, Azariah the priest. Now, who's this? I wish we knew more. I love this guy. This is the only time we see him. But he went in after him. He's chasing the king down in the holy, of, in, in the holy place. And with him, fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men. Yeah, you'd have to be valiant, courageous to take on a king. But these people flood in, 81 priests taking on one king in the holy place. Can you picture it? This would be wall to wall packed with priesthood there. They withstood Uzziah the king. And Azariah says to him, It appertaineth not unto the Uzziah to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. On our churches, it says on the sign, visitors welcome. On the temple, it says the house of the Lord, holiness to the Lord. This is his house, and we must be worthy to enter. And Uzziah, this is not your territory. You are trespassing. No trespassing, okay? And he's trespassing. It, in some ways, it reminds me of the great verse in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4, speaking of the priesthood. It says that no man taketh this honor unto himself. But he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Priesthood isn't for our taking. Otherwise, it's priestcraft. And Uzziah was going to be guilty of that. Well, how's he going to respond? Jekyll or Hyde? He saw both examples from his father. Humble before one prophet. Prideful and angry before another. Well, sadly, Uzziah opts for the second. Verse 19, Uzziah was wroth. And had a censer in his hand to burn incense. That's what he'd gone in to do, right? What's he going to do with it? He's going to fling it out and he's burning coals at his enemy, this assembly of priests there in the holy place? I don't know. But while he was wroth with the priests, right there in that moment of rage, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. Can you imagine? I don't know who's, who realizes it first, if Uzziah starts feeling something strange going on, or if the priests there start to get wide-eyed because they see something, something happening to the forehead, to the face, the countenance of Uzziah, and then he recognizes, what, wait, what are you seeing? What's happening? Either way, it, it stops things in their tracks. And the way the story is told, it's hard to tell, was, did Uzziah just flee? in horror of what's happening to me? Or did the, the priests eject him from the holy place? It, probably a combination of the two. Anyway, he's out. Uh, and can, right from the incense altar, can you sense the irony? A place where the prayers are supposed to ascend to heaven, and instead a curse descends from heaven because someone is usurping authority that does not belong to him. Oh, Uzziah, you shouldn't have done this. Now do you understand why the leprosy came and why he lives in a separate house for the rest of his life? Chronicles really explains kings there. 
But the crown passes on then to Jotham. And again, Kings hardly tells us anything about him. Chronicles doesn't do much better, but it does tell us this. 2 Chronicles 27, 2. He, Jotham, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did, howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord. So Jekyll and Hyde choice for him, this is now third generation, grandson. You know, I think I'll follow grandpa's good example, not his bad one. And I think I'll follow dad's good example, not his, dad's one, not his bad one. And we can make the same choice. We have positive and negative examples all around us. So the choice is yours. Jotham then fortifies Jerusalem. That's always something good to do. He builds up the kingdom of Judah. He puts the Ammonites under tribute. So this is a good king and God is with him as long as he's following him. And in verse 6, Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Love that phrase. You want to become strong? Then be strong in the Lord. Prepare your ways to follow him. Maybe that was the problem of these two generations of double-mindedness. He hadn't fully, they hadn't fully prepared their hearts and decided in advance that it's the kingdom of God or bust for me. Well, the real question is, will you let this go to your head? Or are you recognizing just how marvelously you were helped? Thankfully, Jotham did it right. And he didn't have pride that led to a fall. If you want to see a fall, you've got to pan back up north. And if we do so, back in the stories in Kings, 2 Kings 15, Jeroboam, uh, he had his moment of, of glory uh, with the help of Jonah, but then he falls back into wickedness. He's succeeded by his son, Zechariah, who also reigns in wickedness. And he's slain in a conspiracy, of all things. We should be getting used to that. Uh, the conspirator, the chief conspirator, is a man named Shalom, or Shalom, and thus ends Jehu's dynasty. Remember last week we saw that that prophecy, Jehu, you're only going to last for five generations, and they're up. And so this conspiracy happens, and Shalom is now in charge. He reigns, but he's killed after only one month by, you guessed it, another conspirator, uh, a wicked and horribly violent man named Menahem. And this is where things really fall apart. Verse 19 of 2 Kings 15 and Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land. This is our first mention of the Assyrian Empire on the move. And they're coming into Israel. Now Menahem, this latest conspirator who's on the throne, gave Pul a thousand talents of silver, that his hand might be with him to confirm the kingdom in his hand. So Menahem is buying support from the, the big bully on the block. Hey, if you'll support me then I'll support you. I'll just be a little vassal state in the Assyrian Empire, but I'll, at least I'll have a little kingdom of my own. And where does Menahem get all this money? Keep reading. Menahem exacted the money of Israel, even of all the mighty men of wealth, of each man 50 shekels of silver, which is massive, to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and stayed not there in the land. Now, we just got an Assyrian toe in the water, but that should be Oh, that's going to send ripples. And it should be ripples of concern and worry for anyone in Israel because the Assyrians are on the move. Yes, we bought, uh, bought them off, paid them to stay back for a time, but how long is that going to last? You see, this is where it gets tricky as far as, as geography and history are concerned. Geographically, Israel is in, at the crossroads of the Middle East. 
But that also means it's at the crosshairs of anybody who wants to take it over. Uh, they, they stand between Egypt on one side and the Fertile Crescent on the other, where the Assyrians are going to come from and where the Babylonians are going to come from and where the Persians are going to come from. Uh, go northwest instead of northeast, and that's where the Greeks are going to come from and the Persian, excuse me, the Romans are going to come from. It's, man, if anybody wants to conquer the ancient world, Israel's going to get beat up every time. It's like having to live between warring neighbors or being the little kid against, that stands in the middle between two big bullies and in the fist fight, yeah, you're going to get a couple black eyes even if you weren't part of things. And that's the reality of the kingdoms of Israel. Uh, on the good news, by the way, on the other hand, yes, crosshairs, but yes, crossroads, you're in a position to bless the world in every direction. And that's what Israel was called upon to do. They just haven't been doing it. Okay, fine. You won't do it from home base? Then let's start scattering you in all of those directions in hopes that you can make a difference that way. And that's what's going to happen. Now, there's the geography. As far as the history is concerned, yes, Assyria is on the rise and on the move. The Fertile Crescent, the way it works, nobody attacks straight across from the east because you're going to die in the Arabian Peninsula. So you're going to follow the rivers up and around, but that means if you're coming down to take on Egypt, your rival superpower, you're going to hit the northern tip of Israel first, then work down through Israel, get down through Judah, and then go on to Egypt from there. So no wonder it's just there as the king of Assyria starts coming around and over that it's going to, it's going to brush up against the northern edge of Israel, and that's when Menahem gets concerned. Let me buy you off and, and push you back a little bit with some payment, okay? Now, quick little history lesson, and it'll be oversimplified, but hopefully enough to keep our minds uh, wrapped around it. Right now, the world superpower is Assyria. It used to be Egypt, but it's been a long time, okay? We saw some Egyptian wars in earlier, uh, in earlier battles, earlier or, or kings of Israel, but it hasn't really been a superpower since, I mean, Moses' day. Uh, at least not as far as biblical history is concerned. And when Israel comes into a promised land with Egypt kind of destroyed and decimated behind it, it gives Israel a chance to sink some roots and get established. In the reigns of Saul, David, Solomon, the three kings of a united kingdom of Israel, it's kind of a power vacuum. So no wonder they can expand their territory and have a, a reign of peace in the days of Solomon. Perfect time to build a temple. Everyone else is kind of at bay. Unfortunately, they're also preparing themselves to, to no longer be at bay. And that's where Assyria comes in. Assyria is the new, this, the Assyrian Empire is the new world superpower. Give it a, a little while and they will be taken over by the Babylonians. Give it a while, they'll be taken over by the Persians. It's kind of like when you see those pictures of a little fish getting gobbled by a bigger fish, which is being gobbled by a bigger fish, being gobbled by an even bigger fish. There's always a bigger fish out there. But the, the short, the Cliff Notes version of all of this is the Assyrian Empire today, the Babylonian Empire tomorrow, the Persian Empire the day after that, then the Greeks come along, and then finally the Romans. And now all of a sudden we're in New Testament history. Uh, Assyrians will conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and scatter the tribes. Babylon will destroy the southern kingdom and bring the Jews back to Babylon in captivity. The Persians will take over and let them go back home. And that will get us through Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and the end of Daniel. And then the Old Testament comes to an end, and 
The Greek Empire rules during the intertestamental period. Inter, between, testamental, testaments. So between the Old and New Testaments, we see the Greek Empire on the rise and on the decline, which is replaced then by the Roman Empire, who's in charge when we come to the New Testament and the times of Jesus. Okay, how's that for our quick history lesson? Uh, hopefully that helps us make a little bit of sense of it. Anyway, back to the, the, the time at hand. Menahem dies. His son Pekahiah succeeds him. You've got to love these names, right? But Pekahiah is wicked, as expected. Uh, he is killed in a conspiracy, as expected. And that conspiracy is led by a man named Pekah, who's the son of Remaliah. Now, if those names ring a bell, it's probably because you've gotten stuck in the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon so many times that you keep reading them in hopes of like getting enough momentum to push your way through. Because yes, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, is mentioned by Isaiah in the chapters that Nephi quotes. We'll hold on to that story until we get to the actual book of Isaiah. But this is what's happening during his reign. Up to this point, Israel has been paying tribute to Assyria, paying them off, okay? However, verse 29, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ijon, and Abel-Beth-Machah, and Janoah, and Kedesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. Now, this is where we end 2 Kings 15, but this is where we begin the scattering of Israel. It's happening already. Just up north, don't worry, there's no map quiz to understand where Ijon and Kadesh are, but you do know where Galilee is, and you do know Naphtali, at least as the name of one of the tribes of Israel, and they're a northern tribe up there by the Sea of Galilee. And so do you sense what's happening? Assyria, their first king comes and puts his toe in the water, and the king of Israel is like, oh, let me pay you off and keep the peace. Second king of Israel, not content with that. Let's get some more territory. And so they keep marching south. And now the northernmost part of the northern kingdom of Israel is being taken captive and being scattered. Now, for this, you need to understand one more piece of Assyrian history and world history, and then we'll get on to our biblical story. This one's key as far as scattering is concerned. If any of you plan on becoming a, a world dominator, then piece of advice... Make sure you figure out a good way to keep the peace of your empire, because that's, that's hard to do. You've conquered all of these people, and what's to, why would they be loyal to you? Now, of those, those five empires I just described, each one kind of had a different plan to, to keep the peace. And the Assyrian plan was, well, let's scatter our conquered people. Babylon's was, well, let's just drag them onto our capital city and we'll Babylonify the people with the biggest, the best potential. Uh, Persia was, let's play nice and let them go home. And Greece was, hey, we're so cool as far as our, our philosophy and culture is concerned. You're going to want to be a part of this. And Rome was an incredible army, great technology as far as roads were concerned, and organized like you wouldn't believe. So we're just going to keep the peace and have our Pax Romana uh, by, by nature of our own imperial strength. Well, Pax Assyriana, how are, how are the Assyrians going to keep the peace? Like I said, it's going to be a scattering. It's going to be a shuffling of the deck geographically and demographically. What they planned on was, if we're conquering all kinds of kingdoms and territories, 
Well, let's just shuffle everyone around because they're less likely to fight for a homeland that isn't their homeland. Uh, if, the, if, if the Assyrians conquered the United States, for example, they would just scatter all the state, all the populations apart because, I mean, if you're a Californian, are you going to really rise up to, to free Wisconsin from your captors? Uh, if, you're, if you're living in West Virginia, yeah, it's beautiful, but if you're from the Pacific Northwest, do you really feel loyalty to that, that territory that you're in? And demographically, we won't scatter everybody. We'll leave some people, and as they mix and mingle, and yes, intermarry, then it dilutes their sense of identity, ethnically, nationally, religiously, politically, all those ways, and so eh, they'll be easier to control that way. And that's why we get the scattering of Israel. That's why we call them the Lost Ten Tribes, because they're scattered all over the Assyrian Empire, all to the north and to the east and, on, and beyond, and they're being mixed and mingled and intermarried with other, other civilizations, other conquered peoples. Then, yes, no wonder they're lost. They've lost their sense of identity. They don't even know who they are anymore. Sound a little like why we need to be out gathering them, reminding them of who they are, letting them know they're not lost after all. Now, I said lost 10 tribes. We're not there yet, but we're losing a few. I mean, land of Naphtali, it's starting to go. All areas around Galilee, northern Israel, we're beginning to see the scattering, and it's only going to get worse. So hold on to that. But pan the camera back south. And let's spend time with the next king of Judah. So far in the north, it's been an almost uninterrupted chain of wicked kings. I mean, it's, it gets worse and worse as we go. No wonder they're the first kingdom to be destroyed. Not just because they get hit first on the roundabout, the Fertile Crescent, but because they're more wicked. In the south, in Judah, you got a righteous king in Asa. You got an incredible king in Jehoshaphat. Remember him? Love him. Uh, and we're going to see a few more righteous kings today, specifically Hezekiah and Josiah. Uh, and Uzziah was good for a time, and Jotham seemed to be good. No wonder Judah outlived and outlasted Israel. No thanks to the next king on our list, though. The next king, Jotham's son, is named Ahaz. Don't, well... I was going to say, don't confuse him with Ahab, that wicked husband of wicked Jezebel. But go ahead and get them confused because they're both equally wicked. Maybe that will be an, a mnemonic device. You got Ahab in the north earlier. You got Ahaz in the south later. But they're both horribly wicked kings. And much of the destruction of Judah is precipitated by the wickedness of King Ahaz. So let's meet him in chapter 16. I'll say this also before we, before we study it. This is one of those chapters that is worth really pondering and watching slowly develop or undevelop in this case, because in some ways, this is a play-by-play, verse-by-verse depiction of apostasy unfolding before you. You get to watch, it's like a time-lapse photography of demise and destruction. And if you watch it unfold, Again, it's scary how similar it is to the days in which we live. Let's start with verse 3. He, Ahaz, walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Wait, what? You're a king of Judah. You've had good examples and bad examples here at home. 
Why would you look up north when it's almost nothing but bad examples? That's his first mistake. He's starting to look outside his own people and taking on the worst teachings and philosophies and, and practices of those other people. Are we getting too sucked into the ways of the world? That's first mistake. He walked in the way of the king of Israel. Keep going. Yea, he made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. Whoa, you mean idolatry from Israel wasn't enough for you, wicked King Ahaz? You had to go beyond that and beneath that and, and bring in child sacrifice from the pagan heathens that are out there? I mean, what kind of evil influences are you inviting in to your own territory? Because it's going to spell its ultimate demise. Child sacrifice? Now, I, I, on the one hand, you probably think, wait, I thought you said this is like similar to our day. And no, I can sit back in my 21st century comfort and pat myself on the back knowing that, hey, no child sacrifice here. I mean, passing my children through the fire, it's the last thing that we would do in our civilized modern age. Well, think again. And maybe it's not physical child sacrifice to pagan idols. But if it's matters of child abuse or child neglect, are we unintentional parents where we just kind of live and let live and I've got to do my thing so you do yours and good luck with that. And are we letting our children get burned, so to speak, by a world that does not have their best interests at heart? By a world that looks at, the, at children as, as burden rather than blessing. And it's even worse than that. If you take on things like, like human trafficking which so often targets society's most vulnerable, which often means it's most young. Whether that's for economics or for immorality, it's horrific to imagine the life of an innocent child that is going through things like that. You want to talk about fire. In fact, based on the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, as I studied these, this passage this week, I couldn't help but think of Abortion as another way that children are being passed through the fire and children are being sacrificed too often to gods of the world. Now, I know this is a, a sensitive subject, and I just want to say a word or two about it sensitively. The way Elder Oaks did years ago when he spoke about abortion in conference and reaffirmed the rule, which is the sanctity of life, but also honored the necessary exceptions to that rule, namely in cases when a pregnancy results from incest or rape, or when the life of the mother or the child is put in danger. And no, those aren't automatic exceptions, but they, they should be inspired in exceptions, meaning that the mother in this case, or a couple perhaps, should turn to the Lord and seek confirmation if this is the right thing to do, despite the, the ag how agonizing the decision is. Now, like I said, I know the overturning of Roe v. Wade is hugely controversial right now. And people are up in arms on one side and rejoicing on the other. And you know me trying to prove contraries and to see what is the value on either side of any debate. I am so grateful that so many unwanted children will live. I am grateful that life is being preserved between conception and, and birth. I hope 
that we are just as as emphatic and just as active and just as zealous at preserving life from birth on till death. And so my question for all who are rejoicing, rightly, over the overturning of Roe v. Wade, are, are just as serious at taking care of those lives that will now begin. Are you still pro-life of a child that's been born into a situation that's going to be difficult? Are you still pro-life in terms of the life of a mother that is a mother unprepared? Are we still as, as interested in helping with the kinds of problems that led people to want an abortion in the first place? Abortion in many ways is not just ending the life of the infant, but it is self-harm on the part of the mother. It's not something that women just choose to do for no reason. That's a hard thing for them to go through. But to think about what, I actually learned this from Dr. Janet Erickson, a BYU professor uh, who gave a podcast that was really eye-opening for me. As she pointed out that abortion was simply the easy solution to a bunch of problems that didn't have easy solutions. And unfortunately, because the solution was so relatively easy with abortion, it masked all of the problems that it was quote-unquote solving when it was really just putting a band-aid over bigger problems. Dr. Erickson's point, which was so well made, was that if abortion is not the easy answer it used to be, then it's going to expose real societal problems that we better come up with better answers for. Poverty, child neglect, uh, immorality issues, and underage pregnancies, and absentee fathers, and broken homes, and all the kinds of things that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is so good at helping to work through. Now we've got our work cut out for us. We had our work cut out for us to get to this point. We definitely have our work cut out for us moving forward. Just take a lesson from King Ahaz. We have to make sure that our children are being preserved. Now verse 4, go on with the, the de-evolution here. He sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places, on the hills, under every green tree. He did it. He's not just tolerating wickedness, but people in high places are actually engaged, participating in that wickedness themselves. Now with that, shift to the Chronicles version, because it's going to get even worse in Chronicles than it was in Kings. In 2 Chronicles 28, it says that because of King Ahaz's wickedness, Judah suffered great losses to foreign nations all around them. And in verse 5, it specifically lists the Syrians as having carried away a great multitude of them captives back to Damascus. Add to that verse 8, and the children of Israel, northern kingdom, carried away captives of their brethren, 200,000 women, sons, and daughters. Now notice we typically confine the scattering of Israel to Israel, the northern ten tribes. But in this passage, you see, wait a minute, it's worse than that. Because at this point, because of Ahaz's wickedness, Judah is getting, it's kind of a mini scattering of themselves. Some scattered off to Syria, but that, they're going to get conquered by the Assyrians and get scattered abroad. Some conquered or scattered into Israel. Well, uh-oh, <laughs> that means they're going to get scattered when the northern tribes are scattered. 
So, ooh, we're even getting people from the southern kingdom that are going to be spread out across the world as well. Now, the, what you need to see here, though, is something happens right there to, to pause things. Not in Syria, that, that's going to be a separate problem, but here in Israel. When Israel's army returns to Samaria, its capital, with 200,000 POWs in tow, mostly women, sons, daughters, have the men been killed in battle? Are these widows and, and children, fatherless children? Or have their fathers just abandoned them, every man for himself? I don't know. But with these 200,000 POWs, notice what happens in chapter 28, verse 9 and 10. A prophet named Oded, and this is the only time we get to meet him, he has the courage to confront the army. And he says to them, Behold, because the Lord God of your fathers was wroth with Judah, he hath delivered them into your hand. And ye have slain them in a rage that reached up unto heaven. That's how intense their anger and violence became. Now ye purpose to keep under the children of Judah and Jerusalem for bondmen and bondwomen unto you? But are there not with you, even with you, sins against the Lord your God? You understand what Oded is warning them about? Oh, your anger, your rage has led to such destruction in the south that and now you're going to heap insult onto injury by taking the, the survivors prisoner and turning them into your servants and slaves? Now, wait a minute. Because do you understand why Judah... You know why you beat Judah? This is, this is fascinating. You didn't win because God was on your side. You won because God wasn't on their side. They alienated the very God that you are alienating. So let these POWs become cautionary tales, warning you of the consequences of forsaking the Lord, our God. When you look at these slaves, realize that that's your future if you don't repent. As you have now scattered them and brought them captive, Guess what's going to happen to you if you don't change? The Assyrians are knocking on the door. They've already scattered some of our compatriots, some of our fellow Israelites up north, and we're next if we don't realize what's coming. And so again, let these captives be your cautionary tales and change. Do not hold on to them. And so Oded challenges them. You've already done enough evil. Don't make things worse. Now, the leaders of the tribes there in Samaria overhear this. They see it all too. And thankfully, they choose wisely. And they side with Oded against the army. And they say to the army the same kinds of things that Oded said. In verse 13, Ye shall not bring in the captives hither. For whereas we have offended against the Lord already, ye intend to add more to our sins and to our trespass? For our trespass is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel, and it's called Assyria. So let's stop things here. Let's halt in our tracks and not make things worse. Let them go. And thankfully, the army saw the wisdom in what Oded and the other leaders were saying, and so they released them. They released their POWs, sent them home. But more than sending them home, notice this verse, verse 15. They rose up and took the captives, 
And with the spoil clothed all that were naked among them, and arrayed them, and shod them, and gave them to eat, and to drink, and anointed them, and carried all the feeble of them upon asses, and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brethren. Jericho's in Judah. Then they returned to Samaria. Have you ever heard of better treatment of POWs than that? These prisoners of war, what, what, you know, why don't you take your, the spoil, which I guess in some ways was yours to begin with, sorry. You can have it back, but uh, take food and drink and clothing and shoes. And in fact, let, we're not going to send you home. We're going to bring you home. We will load up your weak and feeble and wounded upon beasts of burden and bring you back to Jericho so that your own brethren can take care of you from there. This is repentance of a sort. This is restitution in a beautiful way. And I think it teaches a great example, or shows an example to each of us, that when we've done things wrong, how serious are we about making things right? No wonder the Israelites up north were preserved a little longer, just not a whole lot. In the south, meanwhile, things are still going poorly. They continue suffering wars against Israel and Syria and Edom and Philistia. And here's why. Verse 19, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. That's a fascinating way to describe things. Judah was naked because of Ahaz's wickedness. Think of nakedness as a symbol. Jacob does this in the Book of Mormon. He talks about the wicked seeing their awful nakedness. I am completely exposed to the all-seeing eye of God. I'm completely exposed to the demands of justice. I'm uncovered. And remember in the Hebrew Bible, the word for atonement is the word for covering. Ah, they're uncovered. No wonder they're going to be destroyed. They have no, nothing to shade them from the beating rays of the sun the pelting rain from the storm that's about, that's gathering in the east. Uncovered. This is like taking the lid off the Ark of the Covenant. And that was called the mercy seat, the covering of the covenant. We don't need God's mercy. Get it out. And now we're exposed and the world can see the broken covenant that lies within. That's what's happening in Judah. So as a result, look what Ahaz does. We've got to go back to the King's version here. Uh, and in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7 and 8, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Okay, why not try that? Uh, just like Menahem had done earlier up north, let's get on the good side of the biggest bully on the block. And that way he'll come to our rescue the next time the Israelites or the Edomites or the Syrians or anyone else attacks us. Let's get on Assyria's good side. Ahaz says to this Assyrian king, I am thy servant and thy son. I'll be a vassal state. I'll be loyal to you as my earthly overlord. Come up, save me out of the hand of the king of Syria. So this is the Assyrians against the Syrians. And save me out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. The irony here, well, there's, there's several on the one hand, you are impoverishing your kingdom in hopes of preserving it. How much of a kingdom is there going to be left? And who are you turning to? Someone who does not have your best interest at heart. 
do we do that? Do we turn, turn to the wicked world in hopes of making some kind of alliance or appeasing people? Because that never goes well. And I'll just give a little and then a little more. And the world keeps taking and taking until there's nothing left. Ask the prodigal son about that one. Well, this prodigal, Ahaz, has just oh, ransacked the riches of the palace and his people. He's even looted the house of the Lord to try to pay off a wicked world that has an insatiable appetite. Are we guilty of that sometimes? Do we sometimes loot our own temples to appease a wicked world? Do we make compromises with culture in hopes of just fitting in and not losing whatever reputation we might have among them? Why don't we turn to the Lord instead? Why don't we establish our loyalty to the Lord and stay on his side of things? Because you catch the phrase that Ahaz first used with the king of Assyria, I am thy servant and thy son. That's tragic. Because he was supposed to be the servant of the Lord. Because he is a son of God. If we understood our real identity, then we, would, we wouldn't be serving two masters, we'd only be serving one, and it would be the right one. If we knew our true identity as sons and daughters of God, then we would not fall prey to the kinds of wiles of the world. We wouldn't succumb to Assyria. That, by the way, is exactly Isaiah's message to Ahaz. Yeah, he's there fighting the good fight, and we'll see that when we get to his book a little later. Now, the Assyrians accept Judah's offer. I mean, I'm always game taking people's money. That's great. We took it from the north and then attacked them later anyway. Now we'll take it from the south, and guess what? Yeah, we're going to attack you later. Uh, I won't tell you that, though. But the irony here is that even though they, buy, they bought, they paid for protection from Assyria, it works for a little while. The Assyrians do, tack, do attack the Syrians, and that at least pulls them away from from looming over Judah. But the Assyrians weren't much help after all. Why would they be? They don't really care about Judah. Just, well, want Judah's money. So look at 2 Chronicles 28, verse 20. The king of Assyria came unto him, to Ahaz, and distressed him, but strengthened him not. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and of the princes. So same story we saw in the king's account. He gave it unto the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. And that shouldn't come as a surprise. You had to buy the bully? You had to pay him off? Of course he's not going to be truly loyal to you. I mean, even the way it's described, he distressed him. He strengthened him not. It's, I mean, you picture Ahaz kind of quaking in his boots, like, hey, king of Assyria, we're friends, right? No, there's no love, there's no loyalty. This is like, oh, the death of Korahor in the Book of Mormon, where the thus we see was that Satan does, doth not support his children at the last day. And believe me, the king of Assyria, he's not here to help you, Ahaz. He's here to help himself. Now, from there, keep going. Second Chronicles 28, let's stick with the Chronicles account because it's so much more rich here. Verse 22, in the time of his distress, so Ahaz is at the end of his rope, what's he going to do? Turn back to God? That'd be a good idea. But no. Did he trespass yet more against the Lord? This is that King Ahaz. <laughs> I love the ending there. It's like, that's Ahaz for you. 
you, you knew what he was when you picked him up. And what else is he going to do? Of course, he's going to turn against the Lord. The guy would never turn towards him. In fact, worse than not turning towards the Lord God of Israel, he turns toward the God of the Syrians that he'd been fighting. Talk about irony. Keep reading. Verse 23, he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. In some ways, this is an echo of what just happened with the Assyrians. With the Assyrians, you, thought, you, you basically were worshiping the king of Assyria because you thought he could help you. But he's going to turn against you. And now you think the gods of the Syrians will help you, and they're going to hurt you instead. They can do you no good. <laughs> they don't exist. Now I'll admit, at least there was a little more logic with Ahaz than there was back with King Amaziah. Because remember, King Amaziah was like, I want to worship the gods of the Edomites that we just beat. It's like, those were loser gods. At least Ahaz is worshiping what he thinks are winner gods. Uh, the Syrians were always tough to beat. They, and we lost to them recently, which means their God, this God of Syria must be stronger than the God of Israel. So let's bring the God of Syria home. What he doesn't understand is the Syrians didn't win because of the presence of their God. You lost because of the absence of yours. God could not come to aid you because you didn't seek his help. You trusted completely in the arm of flesh, and your arm doesn't have much flesh on it. <laughs> no wonder you're trying to get some Assyrian flesh on your arm, and now some Syrian flesh on your arm. You think you're seeing the wicked prosper. They're not prospering because of their wickedness. There's other things at play here. Now, worse than just worshiping the gods of Syria there in Syria... He wants to bring them home with him. And, and let's, again, bring some more idolatry and paganism back home. For this, go back to the king's version. And in chapter 16, verse 10, notice what Ahaz does. First, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Uh, it's kind of work things out, and here's your money, and you're going to be nice to us, right? He saw an altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Urijah, the priest, back home, he sent him the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. And Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Now I've talked about holy envy before. That's not what this is. This is unholy envy. This is going to see the, the pagan worship there in Damascus and being so caught up in it all, in the fashion of it all, love the word, in the pattern of this incredible altar so much more fashionable uh, than anything we have back home. Remember, pattern is the word for template, which comes from the word for temple. Ah, and our temple, just that pattern, I don't know, it just seems so old-fashioned. When this one is so fashionable. Now, I said that this chapter was a play-by-play -play descent into apostasy, and that it had all kinds of parallels in our day. This is one of the most important. Are we tantalized by the world's fashions to the point that we want to pattern our lives after theirs instead of after God's? Do we just want so desperately to fit in and be like everyone else that we abandon true worship in honor of something false 
Well, watch how it unfolds. By the time King Ahaz returns from Damascus back to Jerusalem, the Syrian altar is built, and it's a beauty compared to that old thing that we've been, that's been sitting there in front of the Temple of Solomon all of these years. In verse 12, the king saw the altar, and the king approached to the altar, and then offered thereon. That's usually the order, by the way. First we see something. Oh, and it's so tantalizing, the fashion of it all. We approach to it, and then pretty soon we start offering to it whatever it asks. How do I fit in with these worldly fashions? I'll offer and sacrifice whatever it takes. In Ahaz's case, he burnt his burnt offering, his meat offering. He poured his drink offering. He sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. You name the offering, I'll give it to you. I just want to fit in with the wicked world. And like, like I said earlier with the prodigal son, he'll take every offering you've got until you've got nothing left to offer. Another problem here, who's doing that offering? Ahaz is. What tribe is Ahaz from? Judah. What tribe is supposed to offer offerings? Levi. We saw that problem with Uzziah. Well, now we're seeing it. And there's no Azariah, a courageous priest. There's no 80 valiant priests behind him to come to the rescue. Instead, you have just this one pushover, Urijah. Oh, you want a Syrian altar? Okay. That sounds good. This is like Aaron. You, you want a golden cap? Okay, give me your earrings and we'll, we'll, we'll see what pops out of the, of the fire. But notice Ahaz's next step, verse 14. I mean, we've got this new altar and it's incredible. So what are we going to do with the old one? Well, he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord, from the forefront of the house, from between the altar, the new one, and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. Now, that's a lot of altars we're talking about. Let's keep them straight. He, he gets the new one from the Syrians, the one that Urijah built, and it's so, this is the one I want to be front and center before the temple. Uh, the other one is just, ah, it's kind of an embarrassment now, but uh, it's, it served its purpose, I guess, and let's, well, let's just change the purpose and change the location. We're going to rearrange some things there on the Temple Mount. Uh, and we'll take the old, that old-fashioned altar and move it north to get out of the way of the new one. See, the old altar of sacrifice is to re represent repentance. And do we really have to do that? I mean, to come into the house of God, do I really have to sacrifice all my sins? No, that, forget that. We're now living in a day of moral relativism and fashion and style and patterns of the world. So let's eliminate the need to repent and instead put right in its place this glorious thing from the world that's going to ask for all the offerings we can give it. No, we've got a sidestep repentance here. And then what will each altar be used for? Verse 15, King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar, the Syrian one, burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening meat offering, and the king's burnt sacrifice, and his meat offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their meat offering, and their drink offerings, and sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering, and all the blood of the sacrifice. Like I said, it's going to take all you can give it. But what about the other one? Well, the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. Let's shift our sacrifice from the true God of Israel to the false gods of the world. And then we'll take the old thing, and well, maybe it's something we can at least inquire by. There might be times that I'm thinking about the old days and want to you know, ask God a question, and I'll turn to him maybe when I really need some help, but not when he's asking me for something. No, I only want to use God 
as my cosmic butler. And so I'll go to a place where I was supposed to be offering sacrifice and instead just make demands, you know, you know, Jeeves, just come. I need you to come to my rescue. Is that what we've turned God into? But sadly, verse 16, okay, thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Uh, we just got to kind of go with the flow and we don't want to rock the boat, especially when it's the king that's asking us to do these things. And do we sometimes just roll over and, and play spiritually dead? As if we didn't know that something's going wrong here. Uriah, you're a pushover. What's next? Verse 17. Again, look, play by play. King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and removed the laver from off them and took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that were under it and put it upon a pavement of stones. You see what Ahaz is doing there? I mean, this is, if this was our day, he's taking the baptismal font off of the backs of the 12 oxen in the temple and just set it down. It's just the basement of the temple. We just kind of store stuff there and just leave it there on the ground. I can do better things with the oxen. I don't know what Ahaz did. I mean, did he melt it down? Because that's a lot of bronze. Or, I mean, Solomon lined the steps up to his magnificent throne with lions. Let's do mine with oxen. I don't know. Either way, let's just... Let's take down cleanliness. The labor was for washing and for purification. Let's take it down a notch. Do we really have to be that clean? Does it have to be on that level? No, just let's go ground level goodness, shall we? Uh, And just put it on the pavement of stones. It's no big deal. The problem here, again, if we're trying to look for modern connections and relevance, you just removed the burden of baptism from the back of the tribes of Israel. Remember when Solomon first built the labor? That's what it represents. And we're going to go out, all these oxen, these beasts of burden, have a burden. It's on our back. And we are going to bring the blessings of baptism to the four corners of the world. We're going to gather Israel and gather everyone else home to God. And because that's the responsibility that we must shoulder. Remember the the, the precious stones on the shoulders of the ephod in ancient Israel? It's... Do you see the modern connection? Why keep trying? Why live at that level of righteousness? Bring it down a notch. And then why try to spread that responsibility? We don't have the, I'll put it this way. Let's shrug off the responsibility God has given us. When Jesus says to go teach all nations and baptize them at the end of his ministry, for centuries, Christian churches took that call seriously. That was the Grand Commission But especially in modernity, fewer and fewer are the churches that do any kind of missionary work. Oh, I mean, it's a post-colonial age and we don't want to impose our beliefs upon someone else. Well, that doesn't mean you don't have to, that you shouldn't share them. We're not not imposing, but we are inviting. I don't need to do that. We have shrugged off the responsibility. There is no more burden on our back. And so it's kind of an every man for himself, and I'll do me, and you do you, and there's no judgment, because it's all relative anyway. Don't worry about it. Well, that's, that's another step. Here's the next, verse 18. The covert for the Sabbath that they had built in the house, and the king's entry without, turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. Now for this, we need to understand a little bit more Temple Mount architecture, and it's things that have cropped up since it was first built by King Solomon, because there's no talk of this stuff back then. At some point through the history of Judah, they added a covert for the Sabbath 
at the house of the Lord, and they added some kind of king's entry that would turn to the, to the house. From what our best understanding here is a covert is a covering, right? And so you picture the king of Israel. I mean, I'm the king, excuse me, king of Judah. I'm in charge here. I need to be seen of my subjects to keep them in subjection. And what better place to be seen than at the temple and at the palace? In fact, let's connect the two. We can, and since the palace is so much bigger, thank you, Solomon, for the 13 you sit, years you spent over here instead of the paltry seven you spent on God's house, let's make an entry, okay? And the king's entry will be some amazing kind of portico that I can walk from my palace, to, from my house to God's, and, and the people can see me make this grand entrance. Uh, but I don't want to have to stand there out in the hot sun, so can we make a little covering, a covert uh, for the Sabbath, because that's probably the only day I'll ever go. I mean, that's the day I'll be most visible. Uh, it's a, a holy day, and so the people of, Israel, of Judah will come gather to the temple. And what better time to kind of smile and wave and, and make sure they know that I'm still here. Still doing what's right, even if I'm not. Now, you want to talk about hypocrisy. But again, symbolically, it's interesting that at this point, he gets rid of it all. Well, is, this, is he cleansing the temple? Is he repenting? No, not at all. Because he says he's doing all this for the king of Assyria. This is all in deference to the wicked world. And if the wicked world says, oh, no, there should be no covert. There should be no Sabbath. There should be no entry to the house. Oh, okay, now this is starting to make sense. Covert is a covering. Covering is atonement. What's the world want to do? He wants to rip away the, co the covert. He wants to strip us of our covering. Remember, Ahaz makes Judah naked before the world. So no covering there. Sabbath? Oh yeah, the Sabbath is what sets people apart. We can't let them do that. We can't give them a whole day to remember who they are and whose they are. They now belong to me. And so in deference to the king of Assyria, you got to scrap the Sabbath. Okay? And then this entry to the Lord's house? No, let's shut that door and close off that possibility. We certainly don't want people coming close to a place of covenant. I mean, this is fascinating to me. It reminds me, honestly, of one of my favorite books. Jonathan Swift's A Tale of a Tub. Not his most famous one. Most people know uh, Gulliver's, Travel, Gulliver's Travels, but nobody knows Tale of a Tub. It's one, one of my favorite oh, analogies for the apostasy. Because it, it, Jonathan Swift was an incredible satirist. Uh, so this is a satirical slant on apostasy from the primitive New Testament Christian church. Uh, he's an Anglican minister, after all, and he wants to clean up, the, clean up the act. He wants Christianity to clean up the act. And so he writes this book, and it's a parable of sorts. And it's hilarious. It tells the story of a father, that's God, who has three sons. Those are different branches of the Christian church. And as the father is dying, he leaves his sons an inheritance. Each one gets a coat and the coat is miraculous because he tells them it will always fit throughout time. It will never grow old. This is the perfect covering that you need. Okay, here's my robes of righteousness, so to speak. But it's on, on condition. My will governs the coats. And my will must, and my will requires that the coats never be changed. You need to hold on to this primitive purity, this pristine purity, and keep the coats untampered with, untouched, unaltered, okay? We don't want this to be an, an apostasy. You see why it's such a great metaphor for what he's trying to describe? 
Well, the, the, what makes the story hilarious is to watch what these three brothers do, each in their different way. Uh, there's different branches of Christianity, Catholicism and Protestantism, and kind of a Puritanism that's too extreme, and, and Swift is trying to help people find a middle ground here. Anyway, the story is funny because as time goes on, fashions change. What was the concern for Ahaz? Oh, the fashion of the altar in Syria. The patterns that the world is following that make ours look so old-fashioned and outdated. Well, that's the trouble with these three brothers. And they desperately want to fit the fashions of the world. They desperately want to just keep up. But it's hard to do since the fashions keep changing. And they're stuck by this stinking will. And the will represents the scriptures. And so the scriptures are, oh, they're tethering me to the old ways, and I don't want to. I want to do my own thing. And so it's so funny to watch the brothers study the will as hard as they can to try to find loopholes to work through and ways to get around the Father's will. Some of it, they begin to rest the scriptures to their own destruction. And they're like, okay, I know the will said no ruffles, but oh, ruffles are so in style right now. And so... Oh, you know, if you look at the, the original language behind the will, then there's actually an interpretation of ruffles. Where it says no ruffles, it actually means this other thing. And we can actually have these kinds of ruffles. It's totally fine. Sound like scriptural misinterpretation? Sound like plain and precious parts being removed from scripture? In fact, eventually, they're so sick and tired of even trying to stick with any interpretation of the will that they just lock it up in a box and keep it away from people so nobody knows that they're, they're going against it. Jonathan Swift said that the box was made of wood from Greece and Italy, which was his wink-wink, nudge-nudge way of saying, yeah, you lock the scriptures up in Greek or in Latin so that common people can't read it and see just how far astray the church has, has gotten, then yeah, no wonder the church isn't holding to the scriptures. No wonder we've fallen away because no one knows what the will really says anymore. Oh, it's, it's an amazing book to read to just watch it all unfold. And that's what 2 Kings 16 has done for us. By the end of the chapter, Ahaz has died. The Chronicles version says that, yes, he was buried in Jerusalem, but no, not in the sepulchers, sepulchers of the kings. He doesn't deserve that. And the throne then passes on to his son, King Hezekiah, who is as good as they come, despite his father's wickedness. He's perhaps grown up watching this decline, this descent, this following the ways of the world, and he realizes that's not the way we should be going. And he's going to stand up to it. So better days ahead. Unfortunately, we still have to pan north. We keep bouncing back between chapters, north and south, and we've got a north chapter now. So before we get to King Hezekiah, which is such a climax for today, let's watch the, the, the downfall of the northern kingdom in chapter 17. Now, there's a new king on the throne up north. His name is Hosea. He's wicked. No surprise there. He's still paying tribute to Assyria, but now we're, we've got a new king there. His name is Shalmaneser. That's the third we've met. But Hosea gets tired of being under the Assyrian thumb, and since he doesn't trust in the arm of God, he looks for some other arms of flesh to come to the rescue, and he, he opts for Egypt. I mean, Egypt's kind of still fighting for some kind of uh, territory, and he thinks, if, with Egypt on our side, then surely we can throw off the Assyrian yoke. So he stops paying tribute to Assyria, which obviously ticks off the Assyrians. And so they come to remove him from the throne. 
in 2 Kings 17, 5, the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. Now, we already saw how bad things could get in Samaria when it was under siege. A quarter of a dove, of a dove dropping for five pieces of silver? Are you kidding? By the way, one of you made a hilarious comment about that. said, oh, high fuel prices and food prices. Sounds familiar. Yeah, it, scripture is always relevant. Anyway, they suffered in the previous siege. They're going to suffer in this one. And sure enough, keep reading, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria. The siege worked and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Just like I said before, they're going to scatter the deck all over the place. But now we're talking about all of Israel. The first king of Assyria just puts his toe in the water and then gets paid off. The second king starts to scatter in the northernmost tribes. The third king of Assyria has now come and laid siege to the capital itself. That's what it's always been after. Too often we think that the adversary is just, will be content with just picking off a few minor areas of my life. No, he wants the core. He wants all of you. And it's only a matter of time if you give in. No wonder so many of, of his sins are addictive in nature because he wants to rob you of your agency. He wants to conquer your capital. And he will take, he's okay for a while with little nickels and dimes here and will just take a few things, on, but, but what he's after hasn't changed. It's always been that. And to besiege you, to cut you off from your outward privileges as it's described in 3 Nephi. That was a siege warfare as well. It, it, to see you trapped in your standards, you have to live a certain way. You Latter-day Saints can't do anything. Don't you realize how restrictive God is? Just be free. No, he tries to cut you off from sources of living water, cut you off from sources of the bread of life. He wants to starve you out until you finally succumb and surrender. And then what does he do? He conquers your capital and scatters you to the four winds which is exactly what he's done. I said he shuffles the deck. Maybe 52-card pickup is a better card-playing analogy. Remember that one? When they just throw the deck and the cards scatter everywhere? It's finally happened. This is the scattering of Israel, and it's happening right before our eyes. Now, to make sure we understand how significant this is, the, the lost ten tribes are now getting lost. Notice what the writer of Kings does next. Verse 7. For so it was. Now that's, that's the Old Testament equivalent of Mormons and thus we see. Mormon scatters those throughout the Book of Mormon as he's compiling the history. And every once in a while he can't help himself and he has to just interrupt the narrative briefly to say, oh, are you seeing this? I mean, I sure am, and you ought to, so, and thus we see a lesson, a moral to these stories. Now here, the, the writer of Kings is going to do the same thing. And this is the closest equivalent to Helaman chapter 12, because Helaman 12 is Mormon's longest, most prolonged, and thus we see. It lasts almost the entire chapter. I mean, he really can't help himself. He's gone through a few rounds of the Pride Cycle, and it's so similar to his day when the Pride Cycle has brought his whole civilization crashing down, that Mormon's like, oh, I can't take it anymore. And I'm just going to stop and insert myself for an entire chapter and tell you, are you seeing this? You've got to. 
And so he explains it all. And that's what happens for the rest of chapter 17. Second, uh, like I said, Second, Second Kings 16 is this slow play-by-play of Ahaz's demise and descent into apostasy. Chapter 17 is another play-by-play, verse-by-verse, watching how the north ended up being scattered to the wind. So you want to see how the scattering of Israel unfolds? For so it was. Let's watch it verse by verse. Verse 7. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel, and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. You see the first step? I brought you out of Egypt. But not just to bring you in to Assyria. I freed you from bondage. Then why are you looking for chains to shackle yourself with? No, I I freed you. I delivered you. Why would you deliver yourself into the hands of a wicked world? I intended to create a kingdom of priests. And now you're just guilty of priestcraft. I was after a holy nation, and instead you have become unholy and followed the nations of the world. I wanted a peculiar people, but you just want to fit in to worldly fashions and follow worldly patterns. And then what? Verse 9, the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. Well, secretly? Here we are reading about them. They weren't secret to God. They weren't secret to the prophets. But they built them high places in all their cities, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. They built high places when they could have had the mountain of the Lord? What a counterfeit. And they did it all the way from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. Oh, you, you got to stop on those symbols. The tower of the watchman? You could have had watchmen on those towers. But you rejected true prophets and followed false ones instead. All the way to the fenced city, you could have been safe within the sanctuary of your standards. Protected within the confines of covenant, but no, you broke down those walls. And you let the world in. In the next few verses, God keeps adding other forms of idolatry to his list of grievances against Israel. And then he says in verse 13, Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah, by all the prophets, and by all the seers, saying, turn ye. The Greek word for repent, by the way, is based on the word to turn. So, return, repent from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes. So, repent of the evil, and then keep the good, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Let me just bring them up one more time, okay? What is God doing through all these years of of evil? of apostasy. He's warning. He's calling. He's pleading. He's clucking. How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? But you would not. You rejected prophets. You rejected seers. You rejected me every time that I reached out to you. In verse 14, notwithstanding they would not hear, there's the but ye would not phrase, but hardened their necks like to the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. Hardened their necks? Love that image. We talk about hardened hearts. I'm not feeling things, but how about a hard neck? Elsewhere in Scripture, it's usually called a stiff neck. Same thing. 
You ever had a, a neck so stiff that it was, it was hard to turn? Oh, and turn means repent? Yeah. No wonder you won't repent. Your neck is too hard. It's too stiff. It won't look up to God in faith, nor will it look down before God in humble submission. You won't bow before him. You want the, you're bowing before the world. Not too stiff in that direction. Keep going. Verse 15, they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. That one verse, 2 Kings 17, 15, pick it apart and you just watch the apostasy unfold. Uh, you know, institutionally, as far as Israel is concerned, individually, as far as we're concerned, notice the order. First, you reject his statutes. Why should I live his law? Again, I feel so trapped here in the, behind the, this siege. So I've first got to reject the, the law of God. In our day, what do we call that? We call it moral relativism. There's no right and wrong. It's fine. You do you. And, and there's no God up there. There's no absolute truth. It's all relative. And so whatever you think is right, you go ahead and live it. That's the first step. The second step, after you've rejected his statutes, is to reject the covenant. Because covenants bind us to God and to other people. There's the first and second great commandment. Who wants that? Who wants to, to be stuck in relationships? Do we live in a world of ultra-individualism? In fact, an individual that borders on narcissism, where it's just me and the world is, revolves around me. We think it was confusing when people thought they lived in a geocentric universe. Then they realized, no, it's a heliocentric universe. Well, sadly, there's another Copernican revolution going on where we now we live in an egocentric universe. And I'm my own God, since there's no other God. I, he didn't create me in his image. I created him in mine. And it's a, it's a stunning lookalike. And so here I am in front of my moral mirror. And whatever I think is right for me, whatever I feel at the time, I'm just going to live into that. And it's no longer an identity based on our covenant connections to God and our fellow human beings. No, this is an identity based on emotion, based on desire, based on fashion and fleeting feelings. Oh, who do I want to be today? And I'll change it tomorrow based on what people want me to be tomorrow. After all, Covenants are a two-way promise, and who wants anything to go two ways? I just want one way, and I'll covenant with myself. Okay, so second step. Third step, we got to reject the testimonies that God has testified. Oh, because that's where the Holy Ghost might remind me of those statutes <laughs> that I'm supposed to be keeping or those, those, that covenant I'm supposed to be honoring. Oh, no, no, no. I've got to get rid of any testimonies. I've got to convince myself that I never knew that it was true. I need to hush the voice of the Spirit within the soul. And so I'll just chalk it up to psych internal psychology. I'll say that it was confirmation bias. That it was just self-induced. That it was just social construction of reality. Anything but an actual testimony from God. In fact, anything but an actual God to give me a testimony. Oh, no, no, no. This is where atheism comes in. Even if we don't call it that. We act as if there were no God in the world. No one up there testifying against us. And telling us that it's time to turn our stiff necks and return to, to him. 
No, this is exactly what's happening. And then what? Well, with nothing holding us back, of course we're going to follow vanity. But as a result, we become vain. That's an interesting connection. Now, vanity, we think in our day, means, again, that narcissistic uh, mirror gazing. And there's still a lot of that, obviously. Uh, it's all about me, so of course I'm going to be vain. And by following vanity, I become vain myself. But in Scripture, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity means something fleeting, something passing, something so temporary that why hold on to something that's here today and gone tomorrow? Sound like the modern age? What's the fashion of the day that's going to be the fad of, you know, of tomorrow? Oh, to, to follow that kind of shallowness makes us shallow. To, follow the, to go after the hollowness of the world leaves us feeling hollow. It's emptiness. It's vanity. But if I go after vanity, I end up becoming vain myself. And that's exactly what's happening in the world. And why? Notice the end of the verse. Because we go after people that, or things that we weren't supposed to be like. That's how he says it. They should not do like them. Way back in Deuteronomy, when we were about to enter the promised land for the first time, knowing there were other influences there, we were told, don't mix and mingle. Don't. You won't bring them up. They will bring you down. At least that's usually the case. And here, that's exactly what's happened as we have become too much like everyone else. How's that for a one-verse summary of the modern day? To go from moral relativism to hyper-individualism bordering on narcissism, which then leads us to an atheism that has us following emptiness and becoming empty as a result because we're so desperate at looking around instead of looking up and just wanting to fit into a world that doesn't have any room for us, or at least no room for God. We begin talking like the world and thinking like the world and acting like the world. And the world has no future. The world is going to be destroyed at the second coming of Christ, at least the world as we know it. So flee Babylon, or in this case, avoid Assyria. It's coming, and it's going to scatter you to the wind. It doesn't want you to be different, because then you might make a difference, and it can't handle that. Verse 16, then, they left all the commandments of the Lord their God. Well, I guess we keep going downhill. There's some anti-traditionalism, which leads to hedonism. All those commandments were too confining anyway. And what do we replace them with? Let's make molten images, even two calves. We'll make a grove. We'll worship all the hosts of heaven. We'll serve Baal. In essence, we've traded the creator for our own creations. Or, as has been said elsewhere in Scripture, they, they left the creator to serve the creature. That's all about what I want. Okay, there's the hedonism I talked about. No need to keep the commandments. We'll make our own images and forget that, we're, that we were created in the image of God. We'll start worshiping all the hosts of heaven. That's where we go from creator to creation. There's still a lot of people that, in some ways, or spirituality in our day is like nature worship. And nature is an amazing thing. It is evidence of the, cre the creator's hand. But we don't look for the hand anymore. We just see oh, all the hosts of heaven. And that was Baal worship, where, well, there's a god of the sun, and a god of the sky, and a god of the weather, and 
Didn't Elijah lay that to rest? Well, evidently not. In verse 17, they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. We already talked about that. Do we do things that end up burning the rising generation? Abuse, divorce, neglect, selfishness, sacrificing them to the gods that parents have espoused as we've gone off towards Assyria. Keep reading. They used divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Divination? We're just making guesswork? Uh, when we could have used revelation instead? We're seeking oh, tarot cards and the psychic hotline when we could have had a patriarchal blessing to guide us? We're looking for social media influencers when we could have had the influence of the Holy Spirit? There's so many ways that we have traded the true for the false and we're settling for substitutes. We're falling for counterfeits. Divination or enchantments? Oh, that sounds like science and technology to me. And I love science and technology when it's put to good use. Unfortunately, science and technology is always something that as soon as something's created, both God and the devil say, dibs, I can use that. And too often we let, we let the world keep control. We live in a day where science has answered so many questions, we start to assume it will eventually answer them all. But it's not designed to. Uh, or technology has solved so many problems that eventually it will solve them all. But it can't solve the deepest problems. It can't answer the hardest questions. Especially when so much of the technology we actually use day to day is just meant to give us a life of ease and entertainment. And we divert and distract ourselves to death. And we're not finding life there. Uh, we go to self-help books instead of scripture. We go to therapists instead of men and women of God. Now, there are times we need therapists, don't get me wrong, okay? I'm grateful for that. Like, I'm grateful for science and technology. But we've replaced theology with psychology. And that's, that's a loss. I read an interesting book that was describing the, the unofficial official religion of the Western world is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's it. Moralistic, I mean, it's like, do no harm. Let everybody do their own thing, and I'm not going to judge you. So let's just be moralistic, not really moral, but moralistic. Therapeutic, let's just make sure everybody feels good in their own skin. And so it's all about therapy. It's not about calling people to live into their best selves. It's just let them be content in whatever self they're choosing for the day. And then deism is kind of a distant deity, the cosmic butler that only comes in if you, if you need him, uh, but for the most part, just kind of wound up the clock and then lets it run. Yeah, there might be some higher power out there, but not a, not a, a being that wants an intimate relationship with us. Okay? I mean, honestly, you, hear, you really study the world we're in and make sense of how we view the world in our spiritual, non-religious, lack of religiosity and tweaked spirituality. Yeah, it's moralistic, therapeutic deism. And, and that's what I'm seeing in verse 17. I mean, chapter 17, the whole thing, it's amazing to watch this downfall. There's a title of a book that's called Slouching Toward Gomorrah. And that seems to sum it up pretty well. Well, verse 18, 
Therefore, so as a result of all that we've been studying, the Lord was very angry with Israel. Go figure. And he removed them out of his sight. I cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. So, of course, I have to remove you from my sight. He said the same thing at the destruction of the Nephites in 3 Nephi 8:9:10. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. So there's that remnant that shall remain. But next line, also Judah kept not the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. So, oh, great. Uh, even God's chosen people are being infested and infected with evil influences. Even the people that were supposed to be my righteous remnant are starting to partake too much of the ways of the world. Are we seeing that in our day and in the church? Keep reading, verse 20. And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hands of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. There's the pride cycle. They rejected God, so God rejected them. Uh, That leads to being afflicted and then delivered into the hands of spoilers. And if you stop there, you've bottomed out at destruction, or in this case, scattering of Israel. Is anybody going to turn things to the next step where it's humility and repentance and being blessed once again? In verse 21, for he rent Israel from the house of David. He tore this northern kingdom away from the southern one. They made Jeroboam, the son of Nabot, king. And Jeroboam drave Israel from following the Lord and made him sin a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They departed not from them. Now that's an interesting one to see in our day. Because there's this schism within the household of faith. It was the united kingdom of Israel. Saul, David, Solomon, and then split. Why? Remember when we studied that in 1 Kings chapter 12? Because Rehoboam was overzealous and because Jeroboam was underzealous. And Rehoboam wanted to make things too hard and Jeroboam wanted to make things too easy. Sound like Goldilocks and the three bears? Well, here's Goldilocks and the two kings and no one's finding middle ground where it's just right. Nobody's proving contraries. Instead, you've just pushed to extremes and they're yelling at each other. You're making it too hard. No, well, you're making it too easy. Now, do we see that in our day? Politically, we do all the time. And it's a divide not between northern kingdom and southern kingdom, but between left kingdom and right kingdom. And they're at war with each other because they're at opposite extremes and they don't recognize the value of what the other party would bring to a balance. In fact, as sociologists have studied American denominationalism in in recent memory, in the past it's been these vertical silos. Here's the Methodists and here's the Baptists and here's the Presbyterians and so on. And Methodists don't want to have anything to do with Baptists and so on. But in modern time, it's been split a different way. And it's like they've cut across those vertical silos with a horizontal split, separating conservatism from liberalism within denominations. And what people are, what scholars are, are seeing that, that is shocking them is that, that liberal uh, Methodists, for example, have more in common with liberal Presbyterians than they do with conservative Methodists. And so it's this division within congregations or within denominations. And pretty soon the, the concern is, are there just going to be kind of two big 
Protestant churches. Uh, call them whatever you will, but we'll have liberal denominations and we'll have conservative denominations. And all, all the old theology and ecclesiology that we used to fight over, it doesn't really matter. It's more politically driven. The state has hijacked the church and we can't see a higher good. Oh, are we seeing that start to happen within Latter-day Saint congregations? I'm afraid that, that we are, and I'm afraid. We have to do a better job of seeing the value on both sides. And if ultra-conservatism seems too hard and ultra-liberalism seems too soft, is there a place where we can find the best of both worlds and balance and come to understand and hear one another? Come see each other in the face in the right way. Okay? How about verse 23? This all happened until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had said by all his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. I mean, I hate to say I told you so, but the prophets did. I did send the prophets to warn you. And so many, many of these prophecies of a scattering of Israel, we're going to see a lot more of that in Isaiah, is exactly what happened. It was fulfilled. In verse 24, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Kutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. That's that shuffling of the deck that I talked about earlier. We're not just taking Israel out, we're bringing non-Israel in. And that seems to be happening symbolically as well. Losing some of our own spiritual identity and bringing in the, the false identities the world wants to, to saddle us with. We're seeing people from all over the place. Don't worry, there's no map quiz. Yeah, but from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, you name it. And now they're living in Samaria. They're living within the promised land, although they have no idea about the promises that they're supposed to be keeping there. Add to that the next couple of verses. And it's odd what ends up happening. The people, the foreigners that are now newcomers in Israel, they don't understand how to live life there. And the specific problem that is mentioned is that there's a bunch of lions around and we don't know what to do. Now, if you think about this literally, if there's a place that's been depopulated, then of course the, the wildlife is going to begin to proliferate. Especially if there are kind of apex predators that man, the ultimate apex predator, has been keeping at bay for their own safety. There's even a sense even of, I don't know the ecosystem here. I don't understand the environment. And how do I coexist with it? We've got all these newcomers now. Well, the, the way that the Assyrians depict it, it says, oh, the, the newcomers don't know the manner of the god of the land. Again, it's this, these provincial pantheons. And so I don't know how the god of Israel works. And so, yeah, we probably should have left some, some more Israelites there. And so that's part of their thinking. Let's leave enough Israelites to be able to know how things are supposed to happen here. They can appease the gods of the lands, whatever their manner might be. And then again, we'll bring in all these foreigners and then they'll intermix and intermingle and intermarry and everybody kind of mushes down to this, this strange syncretism that doesn't have any solid truth in it. Okay? So that's what the Assyrians do. In verse 27, the Assyrians say, let them go and dwell there. We'll even send a priest along with you and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, the kind of headquarters of original apostasy, 
and taught them how they should fear the Lord. I don't know how good of a job he would do if he was really fearing the Lord himself, but hey, there's some oh, token rituals. We're supposed to, I don't know, give it the office or something and, and give a, a nod here and there to Jehovah, this God of Israel, whoever that was, uh, and that'll keep the lions at bay and we should be able to get along just fine. Interesting. But like I said, what ends up happening is like this multiplication of manners, of who knows the manner of the God of the land. Well, we all got all kinds of people from other lands that have now brought all these foreign gods together. He says in verse 29, Howbeit every nation made gods of their own, and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. Oh, the Samaritans? Now, we should have seen this coming since the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And so someone living in Samaria, wouldn't they be called a Samaritan? But this is the first time we really see the word, and this is going to let us know why the Jews in the New Testament hated the Samaritans so much. It was historical, uh, and it was demographic. Because the issue here, as we see in these last few verses, you guys are half-breeds. Yeah, I guess you have some Israelite blood, but that blood has been so diluted as you've intermarried with all these foreign nations, you guys are the result of 52-card pickup, and I don't want to pick you up at all. Your decks have been shuffled, and you're not true Israel. I mean, distant cousins, but I mean, let's stick with the distant and not think about the cousin. Because so many of the northern tribes were scattered, we've lost, but then other people were brought in and this is the melting, the melting pot that doesn't make a good stew. I am grateful for the diversity that exists in the modern world, believe me. I, I am grateful that so many people and so many cultures and, and food and language and art and, and, and music and religion, I'm grateful that so much of it has come so that it can, it brings diversity, it brings beauty, it brings an insight and, and appreciation. I do have a whole lot of holy envy. I just want to make sure that envy is always holy. And it's their holiness that I envy. This isn't, this isn't holy envy that we're talking about. This is a non-sacred syncretism. This is the philosophies of men mingled with Scripture. This is combining things that weren't meant to be combined into some kind of lowest common, common denominator discipleship. Some kind of theology that everyone can kind of nod, give, give assent to, which means it, it really is at its most base level. And then the rest of the chapter just confirms Israel's history of apostasy. Says it's always been like that ever since those those splits in the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. No wonder verse 32 and 33 say, So they feared the Lord, that's the Israelite side, and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. I mean, anybody can do that. So we can take the lowest of the low and bring them to the highest of the high places. It doesn't really matter. I mean, we are at least giving a nod to the God of Israel on that side. We are fearing the Lord says it again in the next verse, they feared the Lord, there's the Israelite side, and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. There's that unholy syncretism I mentioned. No wonder the chapter ends in verse 41 with more of the same. 
These nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. How do we do both? No man can serve two masters, but it sure seems like we're trying. And unfortunately, if we serve two masters too long, too often we end up leaving the right master and proclaim our allegiance to the wrong one. That's exactly what happened in the northern kingdom. And that's why they were scattered to the wind. Now, what kind of reformation or restoration would be required to reverse things? Well, I hinted at him earlier, King Hezekiah. And this is one of my favorite parts of Kings because he's one of my absolute favorite Kings. He is worth holding on to and remembering because the type of reformation that he initiates, it's more of a restoration. And that puts us right here in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Now watch his story unfold in 2 Kings chapter 18. It begins with Hezekiah on the throne of Judah, and he's reigning in righteousness. But does this phrase sound familiar? Verse 3, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. Now with almost every other semi-righteous king of Judah, it says right after that, it says like the same phrase. He reigned in righteousness. He did what was right. He did what David would have done. Except that he wouldn't remove the high places. But notice the next verse here. Hezekiah Remove the high places. And I'm just like, yes, finally, someone who had the courage to take on society's sacred cow. No, 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 that's the untouchable. Don't talk about that thing. And that someone was willing to do it, to put a shovel to the root that seemed like it could never be uprooted, but he does. Go on. He broke the images. He cut down the groves. He broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan. Now pause there and see what he's doing. Hezekiah, is, it's more than just psychological disapproval. It's physical removal. And that's going to make a huge difference. It's not just that oh, we, we frown on this and you probably shouldn't do that. Now, he's actually getting rid of the, the opportunity to do it at all. Uh, let's cut down the groves. That'll take a long time for those to regrow. Talk about uprooting things, right? Let's break in pieces the images. Just shatter them, and there's nothing left for, them to, for people to worship. The word for that is iconoclasm. Icon, some kind of image. Clasm means to smash or to break. And so Hezekiah, as he's introduced in 2 Kings 18, is the ultimate iconoclast. And we're just going to destroy everything that's getting in the way of true worship. Even to the point, the end is interesting, he breaks the brazen serpent? I mean, what about whatever happened to look and live, right? Well, that's the problem. They were only looking and they weren't living. And they were not looking through the symbol to what it actually represented, because that's all that it really was. The serpent isn't going to heal you, but God will. So if you will look to this icon, this image, but truly try to envision the Son of God that will be placed upon a cross, this being that somehow could shed its own mortal skin and yet reemerge with life eternal, Wow, 
that's, that's the Savior, not the serpent. And he's the one I'm to look to. Okay, that's, that's look and live. What had happened in the meantime? People had mistaken the means for the end. They had seen the symbol and thought it was the source. And it isn't. They begin to burn incense to it. This is like when, remember in the days of Eli, when they're like, hey, if, as long as we have the Ark of the Covenant, we, we can't lose. And they had the Ark, but they didn't have the Covenant, but they thought the Ark was enough. No, no, that's just the symbol. No wonder the Philistines took it. They had the same problem. Well, now it's Judah's problem. And it's the brazen serpent. And that means has become an end. It's become an object of worship itself. And now they're burning incense to it. And the iconoclast Hezekiah says, nope, that's got to go too. What? But it's such a holy relic. Nope. Uh, if, if it's getting in the way, then it's got to go. Can you imagine having a king with the courage to do that? Imagine a prophet, for example, willing to make drastic changes in the church that people might second guess or question, but it was a recognition on the prophet's part that perhaps the means is getting in the way of the ends. Imagine a prophet that would do something like, oh, take a, a, a name for the church that was so deep so embedded in popular culture and even in the minds of members that he'd say, nope, we're not going to call ourselves by that anymore and we don't want other people to call it that either. Wait, what? People know us as Mormons and it, there's some good uh, connotations there. He says, yeah, but it's not the name that God gave us. And if it distracts people from our true identity as the church of Jesus Christ, then Mormons got to go. Wow, imagine having a prophet with that kind of courage. Imagine even if, if one were willing to, I don't know, change like the church's logo even, so that it doesn't show a, an angel announcing Christ's gospel, but actually front and center, it's Christ himself, Christ alone. Maybe even put fewer Moroni's on the tops of temples. Now, no offense to any temple that still has an angel Moroni. Angel Moroni is an awesome symbol, but it's not the source. I mean, he's blowing the trumpet, but he's not trumpeting himself. He's talking about the restoration of the gospel. He's trumpeting the coming of Christ that we're supposed to be preparing the world for. But if we talk about Mormon at the expense of Jesus, we're, we've missed it. If we, if we think about Moroni at the expense of the Lord, then we've missed it. Imagine a prophet with the courage to even take sacred language in the temple, take a, a brazen serpent that allowed people to look and live, and let's shatter that and replace it with something different. Because at some point, if there's a difference in the temple endowment, for example, between the packaging and the product. The packaging is the language and some of the symbolism. The product is the endowment of power that God wants to pour down upon his people. And the, there was language, packaging, that was totally fine in the 18th century, the 19th century and the 20th century, but now in the 21st century, it starts to chafe upon 21st century ears, and we hear things that were never intended, and it gets in the way of what God is trying to convey. What ends up happening is the packaging, which was fine before, is now starting to impinge upon the product, and the product is what matters, 
So the packaging's got to change. So imagine a, an iconoclast with the courage to make those kinds of changes. Huh. If only there were a prophet with that kind of, of bravery. Huh. Sound like President Nelson? A modern Hezekiah, if I've ever seen one. Even taking a sacred cow to the young men's program like scouting and saying, you know, I, scouting was awesome for its time and it did such great good. But if we start thinking that that's what we're trying to do, we're trying to create Eagle Scouts instead of we're trying to create true disciples of Jesus Christ. Oh, the scouting program was an amazing means. But if it becomes its own ends, then it's got to go. And let's smash Nehushtan. What, ne, wait, Nehushtan? What does that mean? Nehushtan is actually classic because it's a play on words that has to do with bronze and it has to do with serpents and it has to do with divination and all kinds of things. All that's happening with it as they're offering incense by it and it's just bronze and it's just a serpent. But what is this? Nehushtan literally conveys a sense of a thing of bronze. That's it. And it's like this thing that becomes so all-powerful by itself. And the way Hezekiah labels it is like, oh, you mean that little scrap of metal? Like, no, 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 the, the brazen serpent, the look and live, I mean, days of Moses, go back and read numbers. It's like, yeah, go back and read numbers and see what the problems really were. At the end of the day, that's just a piece of metal. Your CTR ring is not some magic thing that keeps temptation at bay. No, it's just a nehushtan. It's just a piece of metal that reminds you, I need to choose the right so God can be with me. Even when people make fun of Latter-day Saints for wearing magic underwear, is the garment magic? Or is it a reminder of the marvelous help that God is willing to give his people. The power and protection of the holy endowment. Remove its sacredness and its symbolism. And it's just cloth. It's just metal. It's just nehushtan. So we need to be very careful about distinguishing between the signifier and the signified, between the symbol and the source, between the arrow and the destination it's pointing to. Don't bow down before the arrow. Just follow its direction. Okay, You'll end up in the right spot. Keep going. Verse 5. What else does Hezekiah do? He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him, better than others, only because he trusted God more than others. And that's something that, that's an example we can follow. He was completely unafraid to make these kinds of changes, to shatter these images and idols, because he trusted God. It's what he wants me to do. And so, of course, I can act in courage. Verse 6, For he clave to the Lord, and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Of course he was. He could be. And he prospered whithersoever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. Now, the ending there is fascinating. We saw some of that in others, like, oh, let's go trust in Egypt instead and get rid of the Assyrian yoke. That didn't work well. In Hezekiah's case, I'm not trusting in Egypt. I'm trusting in God. And I will cleave to God 
at the same time, I am rebelling against the wicked world. Now, do you remember the verse about cleaving back in Genesis when Adam and Eve were married? And it said that you were supposed to leave father and mother and cleave unto spouse and become one flesh. The beauty of cleaving is it's one of those weird words that also means it's opposite. A contronym, I think it's called. And so to cleave, if you go to the butcher, and with his cleaver, it means to cut and divide in half, completely separate. But to cleave also means to join with such oneness that there is no separation at all. That's what makes it such a wild word. And so in the, in the creation, excuse me, in the, in the marriage account of Adam and Eve, they were to cleave in order to cleave. To leave and cleave, if you want to make it a little simpler. But to cleave, separate from prior associations so that you could cleave, unite into a new one. And and Hezekiah is doing both. He's cleaving from Assyria so that he can cleave to the Lord. Our problem is that we usually do the reverse. And the kings of Israel up north were doing the reverse. They were separating from God so they could be one with the world. And that's an all too common problem. Now we need to cleave and cleave in the right ways. And Hezekiah is the poster boy for doing it. Now from there, shift from the King's account to the Chronicles account. Because as good as King's is, Chronicles is even better. Chronicles, you get four chapters on Hezekiah. The last two, it's 29, 30, 31, and 32. The last two are very similar to what we'll see in Kings. So we'll go back to Kings for that. But you got to spend time in 2 Chronicles 29 and 30 because it's amazing. And the, the focus in Kings was on Hezekiah's iconoclasm. Uh, let's get rid of the negative. The focus in, in the Chronicles version is instead on his oh, reformation of religion in terms of adding and sanctifying and purifying. Maybe the best way to put it is this. Oh, the, the King's account focuses on justification and the Chronicles account focuses on sanctification. In other words, Kings, in Kings, Hezekiah is removing the negative. Smash that idol. In, in Chronicles, he's adding the positive. Or in, it's like, let's restore and re revive and, and rededicate the temple. We'll see that in a second. In the King's account, let's pull out the weeds. In the Chronicles account, let's plant some flowers. Let's beg for mercy in Kings. Let's invite grace in Chronicles. Or one last example. In Kings, let's work on getting rid of our sins of commission. And in Chronicles, let's overcome our sins of omission and begin fully living in to the commandments of God. These next two chapters in Chronicles are a gold mine, 29 and 30 of 2 Chronicles. Let's start in verse 3. He, Hezekiah, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Talk about wasting no time. What, what's your first official act going to be, King Hezekiah? In American elections, we talk about the president's first 100 days. Well, how about first month, first year, first thing to do, open the doors of the house of the Lord and fix them, repair them. There's been a lot of damage done in our years of apostasy. And what I love about this is... He's recentering Israel on the house of the Lord. That's going to be his focal point. We'll see the same thing in King Josiah later on. And what's the first thing he's going to do? We've got to open the door. 
And now you know you're not going to like what you see inside. There's a lot of repairs needed. And we're going to start repairing the doors themselves, but we've got to leave them open so we can see what's inside that needs yet to be done. I think our first step, if you want to change, let me put it this way. We just saw in 2 Kings 16 and 17 a play-by-play analogy of apostasy. Well, in the Reformation of King Hezekiah, we see a play-by-play, verse-by-verse analogy for restoration, for repentance, for real change. And so where do you want to start? First, when do you want to start? Today. First month, first year, just begin, okay? And as you begin, focus on the house of the Lord. Focus on returning to his presence, because then you'll have the end from the beginning, and you'll know that's your goal. That's where we're headed. That's why I, that's motivation. That's what I'm going to keep doing. And what do I have to do first? Ah, this is going to hurt. I got to open my doors. Now, God is willing to open his doors too. come in. But let's be worthy. Now, be prepared for this. But I want you to come home. So God is opening his doors. He's asking us to do the same. And will I? Because my body's a temple. Okay, my soul, my spirit, my mind. It's all temple. And if I'll open the doors uh, and expose the filthiness that has that has piled up in my years of apostasy, you're not going to want to see this, but I have to show it to you. I have to show it to God in many instances. I need to show it to someone else, a loved one that can help me, or I, I can, a confession to my priesthood leader, because he's got an amazing flashlight to shine at the nooks and crannies and help me pull out the filthiness that I hardly even see anymore. I've grown too used to it. But let that be our first goal. What's the second then? In verse 5, Hezekiah gathers the priests and the Levites, and he says to them, Hear me, ye Levites. Sanctify now yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers. Carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. It's even inside, and now I can see it now that the doors are open. So you priests that are supposed to be going in there, I can't. I'm from the tribe of Judah. I'm not going to overstep my bounds like my ancestors did. But you, priests and Levites, going in in a filthy condition is overstepping your bounds. So first step, sanctify yourself. And then you can go in and sanctify the house by carrying out its filthiness. Like I said, that's why it's helpful to ask a priest, in this case a bishop, or a member of the state presidency, can you help me carry out my filthiness? Will you help me be sanctified? I've come to confess What's happening is that we are cleansing the inner vessel. Next verse, verse 6. For our fathers have trespassed. There's an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, a.k.a. a confession. They've done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God, and have forsaken him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and turned their backs. That's usually the order, by the way. We first turn away our face, and then our back tends to follow. Look away and then turn away and then go away. Well, we need to reverse the order. Face it and then turn and then come. Keep reading. Also, they have shut up the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the God of Israel. I love everything on that list. You've turned away from God. You don't want to see him. You don't want to face him because you'll know that he's going to ask you to make some changes. You've walked away as far as you can so you can, because now you're past feeling. You're out of earshot. I don't want to hear those prophets. I call it the jack-in-the-box. 
they've pushed down the divine reality to be in lines with the worldly way of living. And when you come in with the Spirit, when you're close enough to God to feel His, His love, when, you can, when you're in the presence of words of prophets or pe- true disciples, dun, 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 you're just turning the crank. And it's like, no, 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 stop, please. Because if the lid opens up and the -the jack-in-the-box springs out, then I'm back into my world of hurt because I'm not living up to who God knows me to be. Okay, so turn away. No, turn back. Because what are the other problems in verse 6 and 7? You shut the door. You put out the lamp. You're not burning incense. You're not offering sacrifice. And do you see what ends up happening? In our days of apostasy, yes, we shut the door. No wonder opening it was the first thing. We don't want people to see what we've become. We don't want people to know the real turmoil that's within us. Or another way to see it, we, don't, we, no, we are no longer, longer open to others. We're no longer open to the influence of the Holy Ghost. No, we're closed off from all of those things. Next, we have put out the lamp. I'm not letting my light so shine. I'm no longer the example God called on me to be. And I'm surrounded by darkness. We're not burning incense. That represents the prayers of the saints. And mine are no longer ascending. I've stopped worshiping. I've stopped connecting with God. And then finally, not offering burnt offerings. There's no sacrifice of sin. There's no real repentance. There's no giving to God. No real worship. It's an amazing verse, what it contains. And as a result, verse 8, Wherefore the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he hath delivered them to these three things, to trouble, to astonishment, and to hissing. As you see with your eyes, that's exactly what's happened throughout our history. Trouble, that's the physical aspect of tribulation and trial, and you're going through hard things. Second, astonishment, that's the psychological aspect where you're just shocked, how did I get into this mess? And you're living in, in this world of, of cognitive dissonance and the, the gap between belief and behavior that I'm trying to cope with, and I just don't know how to handle this. And then the third, you're a hissing, that's the sociological aspect, because people are hissing at you, whispering behind your back, saying things. And the house of Israel had become a hiss and a byword. Many Latter-day Saints have been a hiss and a byword through much of our history as well. Have we gone through trouble? Have we been astonished at that at times? Have we been hissed at? Yes. Like the ancient house of Israel, we've dealt with these things too. Not all from our own doing, but some of it has been sadly deserved. If we can learn from those things though, and if our trouble can turn us to God for help, if our astonishment can jolt us into realizing there's a lot more for us to learn about the true God and the true gospel. If being hissed at can help us, on the one hand, care a little bit less about what the world thinks, but also decide to give people less justification in their hissing, to be above reproach, that's a fascinating verse as well. Then verse 10 and 11, Hezekiah says, Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel. In my heart, not just on my lips, not paying lip service, I need this, I want this deep down, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent, 
For the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister unto him and burn incense. He's still speaking to the priests, the Levites, but he calls them my sons. Different tribes? Ah, no, but yes, but still the larger house of Israel. And I want to be connected to you, my sons. I'm not calling you out for wickedness, though I'm sure that could apply. I'm simply asking you not to be negligent. No more sins of omission, like I said. No more apathyism, as a friend of mine calls it. He's a wonderful evangelical minister. And he says one of the biggest concerns he sees is not atheism, where people are just against God. It's apathyism, where, yeah, I believe in him, but I don't really care. I'm not going to do much. That's the, neg the negligence. That's the apathy. And King Hezekiah is simply kindly, lovingly, pleading with his sons, the priests and Levites. Let's be better than that. Let's overcome it. It's not evil I'm, I'm concerned about right now. It's inactivity. And let's be more engaged. Why? Because the Lord's chosen you to stand, to serve, to minister. Do you have any idea the weight of your calling? It's a weight of glory. So bear it. Let's put the the font back on top of the oxen. Let's shoulder our responsibilities and do this. And what's amazing? They do. I want to live into that and live up to that. I want to shoulder my burdens. They, they, they will be light with the power of God in, within me. So in verse 12, then the Levites arose. I just love that mental image of them. Have you ever been in a sports contest or something where you just stand on your feet. You can't help it. Or you've ever been so moved by something. It's a kind of standing ovation kind of moment. But right then you just, I've got to stand up. I actually was talking to a student years ago that was kind of coming away from a time of negligence and wanting to be more fully engaged. And I asked him, how's your posture? And he's like, what? I'm like, when you sit, do you slouch? And he's like, ah, no, probably. I said, yeah, me too. Especially when I play the piano. When I start I have good posture. By the end of a long uh, practice session, I, I look like the hunchback of Notre Dame. And I'm just dun 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 dun. I'm just hunched over. And if I'm in that position long enough, I feel like I'm kind of stuck. And then when you stretch, when you, when you sit up straight, have you ever felt like your spine, like it's like cracking knuckles and it just a quick pop? But it feels so good where it's like, ah, my chest can expand, my lungs can fill. I, I'm taller than I thought I was. Yeah, you are. Now, do you understand, my young friend, why I'm asking you about your posture? It wasn't the physical kind I had in mind. How's your posture? Have you felt your spirit hunched over to the point that you really started thinking you were only that tall? But I want you to think about this literally, as I asked my, it's like I asked my student. Have you ever felt your, your spirit within you sit up straight? Have you ever felt it stand to its full stature? To the point that it's almost surprising. You can almost feel the spiritual popping of the, of the spine and the cracking of the knuckles. And it's just like, I'm a spiritual giant. I'm tall. And I, my lungs can expand. And I can, that, that's I think what Alma was after when he talked about experiment on the word. And it enlarges the soul. That expands our understanding. That's what the Levites are finally feeling. You can live up to your privilege. So stand. 
and serve and minister, and they do. They stand. And then in verse 15, they gather their brethren. We don't want to be alone in this. They sanctified themselves and came. I bet they came running. According to the commandment of the king, by the words of the Lord, to cleanse the house of the Lord. I'm ready to do it. And if you've ever had a truly inspiring call to repentance, not one like you're doing lousy and you're really out of change, but no, I, I, I can be better. I can be that. I can change. Then no wonder you come running. I'm ready to cleanse the house of the Lord. And they do. Verse 16, they start at the holy place. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord. What they do with it? First, they brought it out into the court of the house of the Lord. That's the outer court. And then the Levites took it to carry it out abroad into the brook Kidron. Now, those two steps are really important. We've got to take it out of the inner place. Why do you think we open the doors first off? See what's in there and shine the light into the, the nooks and crannies of our lives to see the filthiness that might be festering under the surface. Bring it out. Bring it out into the open. Confess, share, be vulnerable. Let people know what you're wrestling with. Among those that, that have your best interest at heart. I'm not saying air your dirty laundry in public, but rather find people, Levites, priests, that will help you pull it out and pull it out into the open, the outer court. Now, we're not going to leave it there. Eventually, we want it completely gone. And where does that happen? At the brook Kidron. I love this image because the brook Kidron is this little stream that flows through the Kidron Valley just east of the city of Jerusalem. In some ways, it represents the eastern edge of the city, and it separates the city of Zion, city of God, from the wilderness of the world. We're crossing the Rubicon. We're going to leave it uh, and, and cast out our sins out to that wicked world. That's where the scapegoat was led put the sins of Israel on the head of the scapegoat and then lead it across the, Kidron, the, the brook Kidron and then send it out into the eastern wilderness? Yeah, okay, there's some symbolism here. The brook Kidron, by the way, ultimately empties down, goes, flows east and empties down into the Dead Sea. What better place to leave our sins? Death. I mean, that's what they were going to cause us. We'll just leave it in death's hands and walk away back to the, the source of life himself. The other thing about the Kidron river is that it flows through the Kidron Valley, which was the valley of Jehoshaphat. Oh yeah, the valley of blessing, the valley of judgment, the valley of decision. And what's the most important landmark in the Kidron Valley? That the river Kidron flows through, it's the Garden of Gethsemane, like we talk about, talked about with King Jehoshaphat. Where do we eliminate our evils? Where do we fully purge ourselves of sin? Only in Gethsemane. I can do all I can to cleanse the inner vessel and pull it all, all the inward to the outward and just get it out of my life. But if I really want to get it completely out and completely gone, there's only one place to go, and that is Gethsemane. Keep an eye out for the brook Kidron in, our, in, in these chapters. In some ways, if you think of what President Nelson has been telling us, to clear out the debris from our lives. That's exactly what Hezekiah is asking as well. Well, in verse 17, they go to work. They began on the first day of the first month to sanctify. 
And on the eighth day of the month came they to the porch of the Lord. Took them a whole seven days just to get it out to the porch. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And in the 16th day of the first month, they made an end. So it took another week just to get it all down to Kidron. This is going to be a process, but it started immediately. First day, first month. Like I said about Hezekiah's reign, what's my first order of business? We've got to cleanse the temple. We've got to recenter our lives on that sacred space. And these, it, he didn't waste any time in rallying the troops, and the troops didn't waste, waste any time rallying to the temple. First day of the first month. That's a happy new year if I've ever seen one. That's the day when we make our New Year's resolutions, but why wait for January 1st to do that? You can pick a first day of your first month of your new life anytime you want. And yeah, it'll be a happy new year for you as well. Every Sunday is a chance to renew our covenants. So it's a new week and a new beginning. You don't even have to wait till Sunday. Anytime you choose to change, the moment you turn, then immediately let the plan of salvation begin to work for you instead of against you. So begin. On the eighth day, that first round of sanctification was done. So like I said, it took a week. Oh, seven days of creation. Yeah, go figure. So seven days of recreation to go from something that was without form and void. Disrepair. Something that was oh dark and chaotic to become something that God himself would consider very good. Oh yeah, that's cleansing. That's reformation. That's recreation. And on the eighth day, the, one of the reasons we get baptized at age eight is because eight is such a great symbol of new beginnings because we've had our creation period and eighth day is a repeat of the first day. We're starting over again. And so for this to begin on the, to happen on the eighth day and then another week of recreation and then we can, week by week, Sabbath by Sabbath, sacrament by sacrament, we can become holy as well. And now that the temple is cleansed, Hezekiah is ready to take it one step further. Because we cleanse and build in order to dedicate. Now, the temple was already dedicated back in the days of Solomon. Well, if there were ever a time where it needed to be rededicated, it's in the days of Hezekiah. And that's what happens next. He gathers the rulers of the city to the temple. He commands the priests to offer a massive burnt offering, like you've never seen before. And a massive sin offering for three things. For the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. And they do it. Verse 24, the priests killed the sacrificial offerings and they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all Israel. Can we get any more obvious with our language? Reconciliation, atonement, that's what's happening and that's what has to happen with us. In verse 27, when the burnt offering began, and it's going to be a long one because there's like innumerable animals to be offered for, for sin. When it began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And all the congregation worshipped and the singers sang. Verse 30 says they sang praises with gladness. So yeah, their hearts were in it. And the trumpeters sounded and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Which, like I said, took a long, long time. This is as close to a rededication of the temple as you could ask for complete with songs and trumpets and worship and offerings and sacrifices and everything else. It's amazing to see what's happening in Washington, D.C. right now with the Temple Open House, where the Washington, D.C. Temple, it was not filthy in any way, but it had fallen into some disrepair. It needed some renovation. 
And so they decommissioned the temple and did all that repair. Took a little longer than 16 days. Uh, but it's ready to be rededicated. So now invite the masses, bring them in, help them get a glimpse of this house of God. And then let us sanctify it and present it back to God. Complete with a new dedication, a, a new dedicatory prayer. More singing and shouting with the armies of, of heaven. And if you think that's going to be good in D.C., can you imagine what it's going to be like when the Salt Lake Temple, which has also been decommissioned, it is now being refurbished, it is being retrofitted, ready for any kind of earthquake that comes its way. That would be good advice for us to do. Check your foundation, right? And get ready to rededicate it. That's going to be, I hope it's something that makes 1893 pale by comparison. That's, that's my hope. But talk about a rededication. Look at what happens next. The congregation has offered so many animals as thank offerings. The first was for sin offerings and for burnt offerings. We are sorry. But as we've given God this house and he seems to be accepting it, I just am so grateful for a second chance. And so now it's time for thank offerings. And they give so many that the priests can't keep up with it. I mean, it's an offering from the people, but it's a lot of work for the priests because they got to accept this and then do the, the animal sacrifice. And there's just not enough to go around. Verse 34, the priests were too few, so that they could not flay all the burnt offerings. Wherefore, their brethren, the Levites, did help them till the work was ended, and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more upright in heart to sanctify themselves than the priests. I mean, it's all from the larger tribe of Levi, but specifically here, these different orders, the Levites outranked these, these priests. And the priests were the ones that were supposed to be doing all of this kind of manual labor, but the Levites were like, they need, it's all hands on deck. So uh, Melchizedek priesthood, you need to help pass the sacrament today and help with the fast offerings and, and everything else because there's just not enough deacons to do it. Uh, to understand what's happening here, it's so beautiful to see the priesthood rise and, and join ranks and, and help serve, help each other, help serve each other so they could help serve the people. And that needs to be happening for us as well, especially led out by Levites that were more upright in heart. It's like they were the first round, the first wave, but their reformation inspired the reformation of others. Their repentance reassured other people that I, I can repent too. In fact, I want to. And so they're all leading people forward, leading them along. It's amazing. And as a result, verse 36, Hezekiah rejoiced and all the people that God had prepared the people for this thing was done suddenly. I mean, it happened almost overnight. I mean, first day, first month, first year, let's do this thing. And it, it's actually happening. I love that word. It was done suddenly. Why? Because the people were prepared. God had prepared them. Is it your time? I think sometimes we just wait and wonder and start losing hope. Will our children ever turn things around? Will the prodigals return? It might take a long time, but the moment they start feeling that call home, the moment they come to themselves, to borrow the phrase from the prodigal, it's amazing how sudden a transformation can be. I've seen it in so many people, and it's, it's surprising how sudden. It doesn't take forever to repent. Decide to change and then make the change. And as soon as God touches your heart, it's go time. Now, they're not done yet. That was chapter 29, the temple rededication. Chapter 30 
is the Passover. And talk about a great sequel to this. Chapter 30, verse 1, we're still in 2 Chronicles. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. Now, did you notice the detail? Where did he send the letters? Not just to Judah, his jurisdiction, but all the way up to Israel? Now, when we bounce back and forth between north and south, king to king, we kind of do flashbacks and our, our chronology gets a little muddled. The northern kingdom has not yet been fully scattered. The northernmost tribes were starting to have some problems with that second king of Assyria. But the third one, it's not yet the time where the north is complete. It's not gone yet. So it's not too late. And even though Hezekiah is speaking to a rival kingdom, he doesn't see them as enemies. He sees them as friends. He sees them as house of Israel. We all should be one. So come together. He, he invites Ephraim. He invites Manasseh, the birthright tribes up north. Come join us. Keep the Passover. Because if there were ever something to help remind them of their shared past, their common heritage, it's the Passover. That's kind of where the house of Israel really got its start. When they were reminded that the only way to become free from bondage and brought to a land of promise was through the blood of the Lamb and through the death of the firstborn. That's what made us a nation. And we can become a nation once again. We can smooth the friction between former friends with the anointing oil at the temple and the sacrificial blood of the Lamb of God. Come renew our collective covenant. Come and celebrate our sacred past. Well, in verse 2, the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem. He wasn't just calling the shots and doing it on his own. He wants all, everyone in on this. But they decided to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at that time, namely in the first month when it was supposed to be celebrated, because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently. Neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. Great detail there. You see, the quandary was, we're supposed to celebrate the Passover first month. It's a new beginning after all, but we weren't ready. Spiritually or even just logistically, if we want all of Israel to gather, it's going to take some time. We've got to send the letters all the way up to Ephraim and Manasseh, and we want everyone to gather to Jerusalem like the old days, pre-Jeroboam and Rehoboam split. That's going to take a while. Oh, and, yeah, priests, it's going to take you, I mean, it's done suddenly, like I said, but it does take a while to sanctify the, peop, the, the, the sanctuary and sanctify ourselves. So what do we do? I guess we've got two options. And we're either going to let the calendar dictate or we're going to let our condition dictate. If we let the calendar dictate, then it's got to be on this day. And yeah, not everyone's going to be able to make it. And even those that are here aren't going to be fully spiritually prepared for it. Well, oh well, at least we got the right day down. The other option is, can we change the day? I know that God was pretty serious. I mean, he called for the day. But oh, there was that one loophole back in, was it Leviticus or Deuteronomy? I can't even remember. But it was talking about Passover. If someone comes from a distance... We're going to allow for some flexibility, but it does have to be on a set day in the next month, so it's not total free-for-all, okay? God is trying to find a Goldilocks zone here, okay, between uh, 
clarity and orthodoxy, and on the other hand, diversity and some wiggle room? Uh, maybe we can do that. But they discuss it together. I'm not making a unilateral decision. And which one should take precedence? Yeah, let's be worthy, shall we? If you haven't been a Christian for a long time and you start to change things on, I don't know, December 24th or a day early in April, I really want to make Christmas and Easter, uh, but I want to be really ready for it. Maybe I postpone my celebration so it's not a mere celebration. It's a real consecration of a better me. I think it would be worth the wait. The same is true of missions and marriages, by the way. We some seem to think that a mission has got to start on your 18th birthday, you guys, and your 19th, you sisters. And, and marriage, I mean, it's, we, we picked the date and we scheduled it. And I know we've made some mistakes and haven't repented because I, I'm, I'm scared of talking. I'm scared of opening the doors of my temple and letting my family or my bishop know. And let's just go forward and we'll, we'll clean it up later. Or let's just go on a mission unprepared and I'll get a testimony somewhere along the way. I think it's wiser to focus on condition rather than calendar. And if you don't leave on your mission at 18 or at 19, but if you leave on a mission having left the natural man behind, it was worth the wait. Oh, you might have to reschedule your temple ceiling. They're really okay with that. They're flexible. Good to work with. And people will understand. If you need to postpone to do things right, then do things right. It's about the what and the how and the who far more than the when, okay? Next verse, verse 5. So they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan. And that's from absolute south to absolute north. So again, the whole old united kingdom. That they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not done it of a long time in such sort as it was written. They had probably done it, just not according to the way it was supposed to be done, not according to the book. Oh, do, does that describe our Christmases and our Easter's? Does it describe sometimes our, our Sunday services or our, our, our Sabbath worship or lack thereof? Oh yeah, we're doing it, but we're not doing it the way the Lord laid it out. This is going to be a Passover to be remembered, dusting off their sacred past, restoring their true religion. So in verse 6, all decided, the posts went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah. Whole thing. According to the commandment of the king. And this is what they said. Ye children of Israel. That's all of us. He doesn't even refer to Judah here. We're all Israel. Turn again. There's our word for repentance. Unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He doesn't say Jacob. This is just like Elijah up on Mount Carmel trying to remind Israel who they are. He's the God of us, so let's be his people. So turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he shall return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the king of Assyria. I realize the scattering has already begun. I mean, I'm going to head all the way up to Dan, but I don't know if there's anybody left up there. I realize that you're feeling the brunt of Assyria more directly than we are as of yet. But if you'll turn to God, he'll turn to you, and a remnant shall remain. But we've got to come home first. So come down to Jerusalem. See the temple. You won't believe it. It's been a long time for you guys up there. See, it's 
I, but, but trust me, your golden calves at Dan and Bethel will pale in comparison to the house of the Lord. We, we've cleaned it up. Then in verse 8, Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord, and enter into his sanctuary, which he hath sanctified forever. And serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. Notice how he started. It's more than an invitation. It's an exhortation. Just yield. Quit being so stiff-necked. Just turn it. Lubricate it, okay? Oil the thing so it can actually move a little. And look up to God in faith and down before him in humility and come home. You know you want to. So just yield. I love that verb. It's, it's one that King Benjamin talks about, yielding to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Because yielding is supposed to be easy. It's giving in. Unfortunately, we yield to the wrong things. We give in to the natural man. We're supposed to be giving in to the better angels of our nature. It's how we're wired. Yield. I've sometimes joked, I've got several children that are learning to drive right now, and, or, or just did, and merging onto the freeway is their scariest moment. I was just, oh, I can't do it. And I just, it's okay. It's just, it's really, it's just yielding. It's getting up to speed and then just pulling in when it's open or letting somebody pass and then coming in behind them. It's it. We're going in a roundabout. Just let them pass and then just yield. Let, it, let them have their way. It's fine. It's supposed to be easy. And yielding to our better natures is supposed to be too. So Hezekiah invites them to do so. He invites them to repent because he knows what the result will be. And he knows the result because he knows the nature of God. He trusts him fully. So how's this for a testimony? Verse 9. If ye turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children, those who have already been scattered, so it, it's not even too late for them, shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. And how do I know that? Here's why. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return unto him. He basically just quoted the dedicatory prayer that Solomon offered on the temple years ago. Because he had prophetically foreseen a need for that kind of prayer. If our people are ever scattered, please keep an eye on them even in their scattered state. And if they turn back to you, will you turn them back to the promised land? Will you bring them home? Hezekiah knows that God will because he knows that God is gracious and merciful and compassionate. He knows God's nature. What was Laman and Lemuel's problem? They knew not the dealings of that God who created them. How's that for knowing the manner of the God of the land? Hezekiah got it and he trusted in that. Well, this was Israel's last chance to change. Like I said, Assyria has been bearing down upon them. The toe in the water is sending out those ripples. In this case, Hezekiah becomes almost a second Moses, trying to gather all Israel together, trying to establish a Passover to free us from bondage. Back then it was Egypt. Right now it's Assyria. But this is our shot, and it's our last one. So please come, and we can avert the full scattering of Israel. We can, we can reverse the, the beginning, the, the initial scattering that's already taken place. But we have to have God on our side. So come to the Lord's side and do it right now. How do they respond? Verse 10. So the posts passed from city to city, 
through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulun, way up north. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. And that spells disaster. Like I said, this was your last shot. You laughed? You won't be laughing for long when the Assyrians come. You mock? This was your opportunity to repent. But now your smiles will turn to sorrow because you haven't accepted the Lord's invitation. Then again, verse 11, Nevertheless, diverse of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem and blessed them for it. Despite the mocks and mocking and jeers, and laughter of those around them, their fellow Israelites, they decided, no, you're wrong. They're right. This is our chance. I want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to change. I want to be part of this great Passover because this is our only chance for the Assyrians to pass over us instead of destroying us. Do you not see? It's right here at the doors, literally. I'm out of here. And they go. They abandon their inheritance physically to restore their spiritual inheritance. And where are they from? Those northern tribes? Asher, Zebulun, specifically? Manasseh? Now, do you remember? We talked about this back in Jeroboam's day when he first set up the golden calf in Bethel and Dan and told the people, Jerusalem's too far away. You don't need their temple. You can use mine. I'll make it easy, easy on you. And that some people saw past that and realized, no, that's a cop-out, and only true worship is down in Jerusalem, so I'm going. And people from the northern tribes, including Manasseh, was listed, went down. And I mentioned that might be Lehi's ancestors, good people that abandoned the, tribe, the inheritance of Manasseh to go take a better inheritance with the Lord. Well, if it wasn't then, it could have been here, which would have been a little closer to Lehi's day, maybe just a grandpa or a great-grandpa. Uh, but to see that, that family, father, mother, children, deciding from the tribe of Manasseh to come back home and worship in the true temple and celebrate a true Passover and stay there. And that's what saved Lehi and his family. They would have been scattered already before. And like we saw at the end of that verse, what made the difference? Those that listened had humbled themselves. Those that didn't were laughing out of pride. Keep going, and the priests and Levites still have a lot of extra work to do because the Passover is a ton of work, right? We got all the work for the thank offerings and the burnt offerings and the, and the sacrifices of, of sin and everything else. Well, now we've got to do a whole nother round of it with Paschal lambs for every family. And they're streaming in from everywhere, even way up in Zebulun and Manasseh. Well, how are we going to do this? Now, in most uh, Passovers, the father of the family would participate in the, the, the killing of the animal, okay, the draining of the blood and, and having the blood to be able to put on their doorposts and lintels and so on. The problem here was that not everyone was ready or worthy to be able to participate in that part of the Passover. So who's going to step in? Just like the Levites stepped in to help, help the priests that were trying to get up to speed, now the Levites and priests are stepping in to help the, the families that aren't quite up to speed either. That's described in verse 18 and 19. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, they're coming from all over, had not cleansed themselves. I mean, we just got the letter and picked up and ran. 
yet they did eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. So, ah, but I th we were trying to do this by the book, and this isn't quite by the book. I mean, we changed the date so that our condition could trump calendar, but now not even condition is totally ready. What do we do? Well, Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And this is one of my favorite moments for Hezekiah. I love him for this. This is Hezekiah kind of hoping that God will wink. And he's kind of winking up to God going, I know they're not totally prepared for this. I know they could have used a little more time to be thoroughly cleansed and purified. But their hearts are in the right place. And they're here. Can we cut them a little slack? Can we just kind of, oh, oh good enough. I mean, the priest messed up a word in the sacrament prayer, but, oh, he, he's trying his best. And not that bishops do this every time, but I've seen some where they just, good, close enough. Yeah, you're good. You're, you're doing this. And, and I love Hezekiah's words. The good Lord pardon everyone. How could he say it? Because he knows what God is. It's the good Lord. He knows how good he is. He knows his compassion, his mercy, his grace. I heard such a funny story from a really close friend of mine. We were college roommates and we're still great friends. And his dad was a bishop in Manhattan at two different times of life. Okay? Uh, and, and my friend said when his dad was bishop the first time, he was much more strict and goes by the book. And when you're young, all you know is the book. And so it's like, okay, I, I, don't, I, I can't think outside the box because I, I don't know anything outside. But he said, and so like when people would come, and this is Manhattan, and, and there's people all different walks of life and socioeconomic backgrounds and so on. And, but he was a stickler for, we've we got to have white shirts and ties at the sacrament table. We've got to look the part. And then my friend said later in life when his dad was a bishop there again, I hope I'm remembering all the details, but this I definitely remember. Uh, he went and his dad's on the stand and he looks over at a priest blessing the sacrament and he had a black Sabbath rock and roll t-shirt on and he's there breaking the bread and he's like what the? and he looks over at his dad expecting his dad to be horrified and his dad just has this beatific smile on his face like all is well this is wonderful the good lord pardon everyone i'm just glad they're here uh and this friend talked to his dad after him and said dad what what's up with the sacrament table and they kind of compared notes from the earlier version and the, his dad just smiled and said well had a little grin uh, on his face. At least it was a Black Sabbath t-shirt. I mean, that, there's some spirituality there. I mean, the Sabbath, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. And they laughed together, and I'm sure the Lord laughed as well. Oh, that doesn't mean we're lowering the bar. But it does mean we're lowering the ramp that will get people in to ground level. Just come. Come as you are. Trust me, God won't let you leave as you were. But come in and then begin to grow up in God. And in the meantime, just make sure your heart's in the right place. And if we mess things up a little, if it wasn't quite by the book, I'm sure God's okay with it. In fact, the next verse says that he was. <laughs> verse 20, the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Oh yeah, I'm good. I am the good Lord after all. And this Lord is good with what you're trying to accomplish. 
Meanwhile, verse 22, Hezekiah spake comfortably unto all the Levites that taught the good knowledge of the Lord. Probably needed to, because if these Levites are trying to go by the book, and we had to be purified, and it took us time to do it, and we postponed the Passover for a month to be able to do that, and these people aren't ready. Brethren, my sons, it's, it's all right. Let me speak comfortably to you in hopes that you'll speak comfortably to the people that you're ministering to and serving. Oh, be, cut them some slack. They deserve that. I'm shocked that I, not shocked, I have faith. But I'm, what a blessing that they've even come from the Northern Kingdom. That phrase, by the way, spake comfortably. The most famous place you'll see it or hear it is in Handel's Messiah. And the song that's being sung finds its lyrics in Isaiah 40. When we get to Isaiah 40, it's one of my favorite passages anywhere because to me it's the most merciful moment in Israelite history because it comes right after the northern kingdom was scattered. And God could have said, neener, neener, I told you so. Isaiah could have rubbed it in. And instead, what's the first thing out of the Lord's mouth after the scattering of Israel? Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort ye. Comfort ye my people. And then the next phrase, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Give them hope. Because right now they're hurting. Don't rub salt into the wound. After the Passover, they then have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as they were supposed to. That's now over, but nobody wants it to be. It's, can we keep doing this? Can we keep worshiping and praising and more trumpets to blow and more songs to sing and more animals to flay? <laughs> Can we keep going? And I guess, uh, verse 23, the whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days. And they kept other seven days with gladness. It's like, can we have another day of general conference? There's people we haven't heard from. Can we go back to three-hour church and kind of keep going from there? Uh, can, can we keep going on like seemingly eternal uh, YouTube videos and podcasts about scripture study? Because, man, this is good stuff. Well, talk about spiritual rebirth. They just want to keep on growing up in God. To the point in verse 26, there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. Just like we said, a rededication that echoed and amplified the original dedication. Oh, if the Hosanna shout echoed off the everlasting hills in 1893, what's going to happen once the Salt Lake Temple is done? Can't wait. In verse 27, Then the priests, the Levites, arose. There they are again, standing up straight. They blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. That's how high our praises and prayers are supposed to go. Well, on that day they did. Now that's the end of 2 Chronicles 30. 29, let's rededicate this temple. 30, let's have this Passover and feast. 31, let's... Can we continue this? We started strong. <laughs> what a way to begin our ministry and our reign. But let's make sure we can continue. So chapter 31, I'm not going to go verse by verse, but there's a lot of detail in there about organizing things. And let's lay things out for the priests and the Levites and put order to this priesthood so that the sacrifices can continue and, and tithes can come into the Lord's storehouse and we can, we can make sure that we can keep this restoration 
alive. In some ways, that's a Brigham Young kind of chapter. We had a Joseph Smith kind of chapter in 29 and 30. Let's restore this thing. And then we're left in chapter 31 for a poor Brigham, like, okay, how do we systematize things and, and colonize the West and make sure that the church can actually survive? And, and so that's what happens in this next part. But look at verse 20 and 21 in chapter 31. Thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. That sums up Hezekiah beautifully. He was an all-in kind of king. He was a wholehearted disciple of the God of Israel. And because of it, his people became more and more that themselves. Now, chapter 32 is our last place in Chronicles uh, that we're going to spend time here because that's where we see Assyria attack the north and scatter everything. And with that, we're back to 2 Kings chapter 18, where we first took this tangent. But before we go back to Kings to pick up our story, uh, and this is going to be more of the political side of things and, and what's Hezekiah going to do. One last thing I want to bring up, though, from 2 Chronicles 32 is after all of this spiritual preparation that Hezekiah did, he then turned to a lot of physical, temporal preparation as well. And both are essential. What he does in chapter 32, verse 4, he stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? See, what he's realizing, he's probably heard about the sieges up in Samaria and realizes, yeah, you die without living water. You die without the bread of life. Well, there's living water outside the walls of Jerusalem. And if Assyria is going to come and besiege us, I don't want them to have the water. So let's, let's close it off to them to make it a little harder on our enemies. Talk about turning the tables. The enemy is always trying to cut us off from living water. Well, Hezekiah is going to return the favor. We're going to see a second half of that later on. So hold on to the thought of water and Hezekiah. The other thing he does, though, as part of his temporal preparation, always came in second place, spiritual first, but temporal follows. He repaired broken walls in Jerusalem. We've got to keep the enemy out. He added additional walls. We need to be better prepared than we've been in the past. He raised up towers, good place for watchmen to go. He made weapons and shields in abundance. We're going to need these shields of faith. We're going to need these swords of the spirit. He organized his army. He encouraged his men. In fact, he told them in verse 7, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria. Yes, I know he's coming. Don't be afraid of all the multitude that is with him. I get it. And then he must have known his scriptures or channeled his inner Elisha. Because then he says, For there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh. That's it. And yeah, it's pretty massive. Bulging biceps and all. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. There's a good pump-up speech. And it worked. The people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do we rest ourselves on the words of prophets and apostles? Do we allow faith, their faith, to conquer our fear? Do we allow their faith to become our own until we, like Hezekiah, are ready to fully rededicate ourselves to God? If we are, 
then the outcries of Assyria don't sound so loud in our ears anymore because we know that God is with us. Hezekiah knows this. He knows that God is with him. That's what he's telling his people, and they, they are believing him. But as we go back to the, the second half of Hezekiah's reign, at least what we have in Scripture, back to 2 Kings chapter 18, the political problems are brewing all around. By the time you're back here, Hezekiah, king of Judah, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, he's besieging Samaria up north, and he's conquering Israel. It's happening right, just all around him, right north of him. The northern tribes are then scattered to the four winds. And what's next? I said Assyria is going to come up and over the fertile crescent. It's going to hit northern Israel first and then throughout Israel second and then down to Judah third as it's trying to get its way to Egypt to conquer everything. Now here in 2 Kings 18, we're in Hezekiah's fourth year of rule. So the temple's been solid for a, for a few years now. The Passover took place, and I'm sure they're celebrating it correctly year by year after that. Now, Hezekiah became king at age 25. So now he's 29. And imagine having a world superpower bearing down upon you as a 29-year-old. Young. It's only a kingdom away, just miles and miles to the north. And this goes on for 10 years. For 10 years, there's this concern, and the north is being conquered and being scattered, and we're just trying to hunker down and stay safe down here. No wonder he's stopping the fountains outside. No wonder he's working on the walls and the fortifications. We have to be ready spiritually and physically because Assyria is on its way. In verse 13 and 14 of 2 Kings 18, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, did Sennacherib king of Assyria come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them? Uh-oh, he's starting to succeed in the southern kingdom also. What's the king going to do? Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended, return from me. That which thou puttest on me will I bear. In other words, I am sorry if I've done anything to offend you. Uh, I just want to maintain the peace of my people, to keep my kingdom for their sake, not for mine. And so what do you want us to do? He does that when the king is at Lachish. This is actually interesting because there's a series of broken pottery shards that are called the Lachish letters. It happens during the conquest of Judah during the reign of during the Babylonians, not during the Assyrians. But it comes from Lachish also. I mean, if you're coming into Jerusalem, you're going to kind of come up the hills from the west, and Lachish is one of these other cities that's a little further away, but it's on the way to Jerusalem. If you're going to conquer Jerusalem, you're typically going to conquer Lachish first. And in the Lachish letters, it's these Israelite or Judah general, these Jewish generals writing to one another, scared to death, like the, the Babylonians are coming and I can see the smoke in the distance and, and we're next and it's going to fall. Uh, the same kind of thing is happening here with the Assyrian conquest. But Hezekiah is trying to be humble as well as faithful. What would you have us do, almighty king of Assyria? Well, King Sennacherib makes some demands, but they are so above and beyond, exorbitant demands of Hezekiah. But Hezekiah does all he can to, to pay them, even to the point of removing silver and gold from the temple. Now, we've seen that done in the past. I think Hezekiah's heart was in a better place. He's trying to protect his people. He's the iconoclast, right? And if the 
if, if the brazen serpent is just a, a chunk of metal, it's just Nahushtan, then what's the gold and silver of the temple when you really think about it? That's, don't mistake the box, the ark, for the covenant. Don't mistake the house of God for God. And so if it's just the silver and gold that have to go, if we can at least preserve the sanctity of the sanctuary. I mean, God was okay with a tent in the wilderness for 40 years. I think he'd be okay uh, with, with a, a temple for a time that isn't quite cedar and gold. Let's try to keep the cedar at least. So he pays, he pays King Sennacherib. But as we've seen in the past, the wicked world is never satisfied with our appeasements. And so even with all that tribute, the Assyrian king still plans to attack Judah. We're conquering all the way up to Lachish, after all. And just Jerusalem's up the hill. Let's keep going. He sends an army up to Jerusalem to make a verbal confrontation first. Let's talk some smack, and maybe they'll just surrender. After all, we seem to be an innumerable host. And if we can just kind of plant seeds of doubt or fear, then people will, will give up themselves. That's usually the take in terms of anti-Mormonism. When it comes to matters of faith, I can't prove it right, but you can't prove it wrong. And so we're left with rhetoric, which is why I study anti-religious rhetoric all the time. What can I say to you in such a way that I make you f feel certain things and think certain things where you choose to surrender on your own? I can't force the issue. That, again, it's like being besieged. I can't force you to surrender, but I can starve you out. I can tell you that you're cut off from all the great things we've got out here in this wicked world. And in this case, I can talk some smack. I can mock and laugh and point and scorn. All those things that they did from the Great and Spacious Building. Do you notice that? The Great and Spacious Building can't do a frontal attack on the Tree of Life. But from across the river, they can ridicule you. And that's typically the approach. In this one, it's part ridicule and part, part anger. A general named Rabshakeh, who's one of the king's right-hand men, he comes and starts taunting the officials of Hezekiah. In verse 19, Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, which is the king of Assyria. Yours is kind of a mediocre monarchy at best. The great king, the king of Assyria, says this, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Thou sayest, but they are vain words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? And the word that kept coming up there, trust and trust and confidence, that's the essential question here. Where are you going to place your trust when you feel surrounded by a wicked world? Where is your confidence and where does it come from? You're going to seek alliances with Egypt like your friends did up north? You're going to trust in your gods? Because, yeah, that hasn't worked out well for the other nations that we've already conquered. So you're going to trust in the arm of flesh? I'm not seeing much in there. So uh, why on earth would you trust a king that keeps telling you that, oh, I've got enough counsel, I've got enough strength for a war? Because you don't. You're not omniscient. You have no counsel. You are not omnipotent. You have no strength. We've got way more of both of those than you do. So just give in, just surrender. In verse 21, he goes on. Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. Again, they're mocking what happened up north in Israel. 
They trusted in Egypt and Egypt could not save them. So don't do the same thing. This is a bruised reed. If you've ever used like a walking stick and you have to lean on it or picture a crutch. Picture a, cru a, a crutch that's made out of a, like a, a cattail and that the stem is already bruised and bent. It's just going to collapse under your weight. Uh, in fact, it's going to you rest your hand on it. It's just going to go through your hand and pierce you. It will only cause you pain, not help. Verse 22, if looking southwest to Egypt wasn't your strategy, then I hope it's not looking upward to God. But if you say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, uh, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and hath said to Judah and Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? In other words, better not trust in God because I don't think he's, I don't think he lives there anymore. Didn't Hezekiah like, Banish him when he smashed all that stuff. We got an iconoclast on the throne. And I, I don't think your God has felt welcome. I mean, no brazen serpent. To whom will you look and live? I guess they didn't understand why Hezekiah was doing that. No, God feels alive and well in Judah, in Jerusalem. It's his home. It's his home base. The temple is, has been rededicated. Verse 23 Rabbi Shaka goes on, and again, it's taunting, smack-talking the whole way. Now, therefore, I pray thee, give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria. Just promise that you'll follow him. And I will deliver thee uh, 2,000 horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. Like, do you even have enough men? If I provided the horses for the cavalry, could you provide the troops? Doubt it. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants? You couldn't even handle little old me. What, you're going to put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? This is psychological warfare at its best. This is anti-religious rhetoric at its finest. Let me mock. Let me, let me taunt. Let me instill some fear. Let me plant some doubt. And let's see where it goes. Verse 25, he continues, And now am I come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? <laughs> no, the Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Oh, the God of Israel. I think he's actually on my side now. Oh yeah, let's put it that way. You, you think I would came up without him? No, he's actually on my side. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he's the one that inspired me to come and destroy you. Now, there actually might be some truth to that, ironically, based on some things that Isaiah says about God using Assyria as the rod of his, of his wrath, uh, the rod of his indignation. That's a better word. Uh, I'm indignant, righteously so. And I'm going to use that to sweep off Israel and scatter them to the winds where I hope they'll turn to me so I can return them to, to God or to, to the promised land. So yeah, they may actually be right here. On the other hand, he might just be taunting. Oh, we got everything on our side. We got the forces on our side. We even have your God on our side. So yeah, don't cry to him. That's the big thing. Don't turn to your God. Well, Hezekiah's officials are really concerned about the effectiveness of Rabshakeh's rhetoric. So they beg him, please, you can go on, go on and keep taunting and talking smack. We can't stop you from that. But Will you please do it in your language instead of ours? Because, hey, we're the officials. We're better educated. We're fluent in your language. So if you'll taunt us in the Assyrian tongue, we'll still hear and we'll be able to take the message to the king. Now, what are they really after? It's not that we speak the Assyrian language. It's that you speak Hebrew and 
Uh, it's not just that we can understand you, it's, it's that our people can understand you right now. And I have a feeling they're probably getting scared to death. The Chronicles account makes Rabshakeh's strategy clear. Then they cried with a loud voice in the Jews' speech, so in the Hebrew language, unto the people of Jerusalem that were on the wall, so these common soldiers, to affright them and to trouble them that they might take the city. This is psychological warfare at its finest. This is, oh, airdropping leaflets of propaganda over enemy lines to scare the troops over on that side or scare the citizens so that they'll beg their leaders to surrender. We're about to destroy all of you. Just let us in and we'll take, the, take your, your kingdom in peace. It makes sense why Hezekiah's advisors would try to shield the people from that kind of propaganda. I think through much of our history, the church has tried to do similar things and we've been able to control the narrative, but that day has passed. Uh, with the internet, with social media, with so many people posting and blogging and everything else, Oh, it's hard to protect our children from the lies of our enemies or even the half-truths of former Latter-day Saints. And it's a hard thing to navigate. It's what I spend my life trying to help people navigate. And so I don't blame these advisors for trying. On the other hand, they underestimated their people because they underestimated their king. Keep reading and watch what happens. Verse 29, the, the taunting continues. In fact, it intensifies. Rabshakeh is yelling even louder than before. He's becoming more crass and coarse. And he sticks with Hebrew to make sure everybody understands him. Let not Hezekiah deceive you. I mean, he's the one deceiving you. He's the one gaslighting. He's the one telling you lies to keep you in subjection. No, no, we're the ones with the truth. We're the ones that are telling you everything you need to know. Oh, no, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. For he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. No, your faith is just wishful thinking. I've got an army here. And no other civilization has been able to stand up against it. You certainly won't. So please do not hold on to these flimsy excuses you call faith. There's nothing to it. Trust me. Don't trust your king. And certainly don't trust your God the way the king is encouraging you. After all, verse 33, hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of the, mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand? You see what Rabshak is doing there? He's just checking off the list. This civilization with this God defeated. This, civil, this kingdom with this God defeated. And we're undefeated. Which means every kingdom out there and every God that was supposed to protect them have been powerless against the might of Assyria. What makes you think your God will be any different? In fact, I have proof that your God can't be any different because don't those Israelites up in Samaria, don't they have the same God as you? Yeah, you guys like share your deity for some weird reason. Uh, yeah, the God of Israel did not spare Israel. You really think the God of Israel is gonna spare Judah? 
Don't think it for a moment. Verse 36, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. That's why I think that the advisors underestimated the troops. All those common privates up there on the wall, our children, our youth, our new converts. I'm not saying throw them out the wall and go take on the Assyrians <laughs> mano a mano. No, stay here within safety with prophets on the, watch t- on the watchtowers looking over us all. Stay here li- with the armor of God and the shield of faith. But I'm, I'm not shy about people hearing a full story or both sides of an issue because God is God and truth is truth. And, and the gospel of Jesus Christ can handle it. The truth of God will go forth nobly, boldly, and independent despite the calumny and contention of a wicked world. Bank on that. And so hold your peace. Answer him not. There may be times where you have to answer. And the, the officials tried to answer, and Hezekiah is going to have a response of his own. Oh, God's going to have the ultimate response. We'll see it in just a moment. But there are times where it's simply best to hold your peace. Let them shout. Let them taunt. Let them say what they will. Turn the other cheek or turn the other ear, but answer them not. Try to hold the higher moral ground and don't descend into contention. Believe me, I've been taunted and invited or challenged is a better term. I've had the gauntlet thrown down before me saying, no, come on our show and let's debate this issue. And I simply respond, yeah, I'm not interested in a contentious kind of conversation, but if you ever wanted to have lunch, I'd love to come to meet you and hear your story because you're a human being, that a brother or sister that I value, and I'd love to get to know you better. I'd love to hear where you're coming from so I can validate the positions that I can and empathize wherever I'm able and, and actually prove your contrary with mine and help us both see that the other side has a leg to stand on. And, and we can come together on these things. It typically, in those cases, it's, yeah, answer him not on those kinds of issues. I'll just sit back and be still and know that God is God. Or I'll sit back and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which is what happens next. Chapter 19, guess who comes onto the scene? Hold out for it. Hezekiah's officials run to him with their clothing torn their sign of mourning. We're up against an enemy that's innumerable. They tell Hezekiah all that Rabshakeh has said. And in verse 1, it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, he rent his clothes also. He covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. His immediate response was humility, was repentance, was getting as close to God as he could in his holy house. In verse 2, he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth too, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. Ah, the real cavalry has arrived. Oh, this is Gandalf the White replacing Gandalf the Grey. This is the, the Rohirrim roaring down the mountain uh, to come to the rescue at the Battle of, of Helm's Deep, if you're Tolkien fans at all. 
Uh, this is Isaiah coming to the rescue. Again, what does Hezekiah do in his times of need or doubt or fear? Turn to the Lord and his prophets. In verse 3, these advisors say to Isaiah, Thus saith Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble, of rebuke, of blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. Now, I understand the trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. That's Rabshaka personified, but what's up with a birth? In essence, they're saying to Isaiah, they're using metaphorical language. They're probably used to listening to Isaiah, and it's like, he never says anything like straightforwardly. It's always poetic and symbolic, so we better do the same thing. Um, it, it, there's a childbirth uh, happening, and we don't have a midwife. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Does that work for you? Uh, we need this. We're in the moment of life-threatening labor, and we need all the help that we can get. So if you could come and deliver... The baby, deliver us. Are you following me here? And I picture Isaiah going, nice try, guys. But yeah, I get it. I get, I'll come. <laughs> In verse 4, they say, It may be the Lord thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. This is a testimony of sorts on the part of these advisors. Uh, it may be, at least I'm hoping, as, as much faith as I can muster right now, maybe God overheard what Rabshakeh was doing, that blasphemy I just mentioned, and he will rebuke them. He'll reproach them because they reproached him. But will you please come and pray for the remnant that are left? And if there's anybody who knows something about remnants, it's a guy who named his son Sheer Yashuv, which means a remnant shall return. Will you come and pray for the remnant? Oh, of course. I mean, I'm raising one back home. That's Isaiah for you. And so Isaiah comes running. In fact, in verse 6, he responds to them, Thus shall ye say to your master. Uh, you, you're probably going to sprint back. I might be a little slower. But tell him this. Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Because that's all they are. They're just words. Don't let them affect you. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. This is like that noise, quote-unquote, that the Syrians heard when they were besieging Samaria. Remember that story when the four lepers go out and the whole camp is deserted? They don't want, we won the lottery that day, that idea. It was just a noise, but they took it seriously and ran. Well, this is just going to be a rumor we talk about wars and rumors of wars. Well, here's going to be a rumor, but the Assyrians will hear it and will retreat. So don't worry about the words of Rabshakeh, because that's all they were. It's interesting the way that this verse focuses on words. Isaiah knew their power. That's why he, he painted word portraits with such beauty and imagery and poetry. It's amazing what words can do. There is persuasive power there. No wonder one of the Lord's nicknames is the Word of God. And ironically, the Assyrians that up till now are just using words against us will be defeated by words against them. So rest assured, don't be afraid, Hezekiah. Well, miraculously, that's exactly what happens. Rabshakeh returns to King Sennacherib and they hear a report is it a report or is it just a rumor? Well, I guess we'll have to, to see. 
that the Ethiopians are planning an attack on the Assyrians. You see, that's the hard part about running an entire empire. How do you keep the peace everywhere? Or you, you're so big, you now have enemies from every angle. And we're not even to Egypt yet, and already the Ethiopians are planning some attack, and they're a lot stronger than these <laughs> piddly Israelites in the kingdom of Judah. I mean, and it's easy enough. We just basically have the capital left. We've conquered Lachish and a lot of other cities. So let's put this attack on hold and go make sure we can handle the Ethiopians when they're on their way. So Isaiah was right. It was as simple as that. Well, not entirely, because this is going to buy Hezekiah some time, but it doesn't completely scare off the Assyrian army. Up to this point, it's simply the noise, the rumor, they won't come. So just stand still and see the salvation of God. But once they leave, no standing still. We got some work to do. And just in case Hezekiah thinks that this is over, the Rabbishaka sends one more letter. Uh, he doesn't have the time to keep yelling in Hebrew behind his, over his shoulder. But he does send a letter back to Hezekiah that repeats all the smack talk he gave to the people on the wall. Kinds of things like, don't trust in Egypt, don't trust in any gods, especially your measly God who couldn't even help the Israelites. There has been no God that's been able to stand up before us in the past. So now Hezekiah has that taunting thrown right in his face. How's he going to respond? Look at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. This seems to be how Hezekiah responds to difficulty and trial and attack and everything else. He calmly goes to God and turns things over to him. In this case, in fact, he spreads it out before him. And I love the mental image of this. I've got this letter, maybe written on a scroll, and he takes it to the temple and he unrolls it. He opens it up, basically saying, Father in heaven, this is what I'm up against. I want you to be able to see every line, every blasphemous word. This is the situation I find myself in. And are you aware of where I'm at? What, can you give me counsel on what to do? Instead of being vague and just saying, Father, bless me, or the one word prayer, help. If we were more intentional and went to God, at his house is a, a, a wonderful place to do it, but metaphorically laid out, spread out before God our problems, and this is everything that I'm going through, and this is how I feel about it, and this is what I've tried to do in the past to get through it, but I'm still struggling, and I could really use some guidance. There's power in spreading out our problems to the Lord. He sees it already, but for us to expose it all to him, to open the doors, as we said before. In verse 15, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. And notice what he prays. O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubim. I know you're not the cherubim. I know you're not the ark. I know you're an agent, not an object, but that is your throne. And I know you sit there overlooking Israel. Thou art the God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent him to reproach the living God. Oh, ears to hear, eyes to see, sound like Moses, 
As God says to him, I've heard their cries, I've seen the affliction, I'm sending you to deliver them. Sound like Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail? How long, O Lord, will thy eye see and thy ear be pierced with our cries? Please come and save us. Hezekiah is offering a similar prayer, but notice the focus throughout. It's on thee. Thou art the God. Thou alone. You're the only one. You created heaven and earth. You're the only God there is. And so that puts into perspective the taunting of Rabshakeh about these, this tally of, of defeated deities. They're not gods at all. It's what Hezekiah says next in his prayer. Verse 17, of a truth, Lord. The kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands. There's no denying that. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Of course they couldn't deliver the people. Wood and stone never can. But thee? Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. This is pure monotheism, surrounded by polytheism on every side. There's only one God, and he hasn't defeated him yet. And don't bring up Israel, because the God of Israel couldn't preserve the Israelites because they weren't claiming him as their God. But we do. Do you have any idea what we've been doing for the last decade plus? preparing ourselves spiritually first and foremost so God could be with us and then under his guidance and direction, preparing ourselves physically as best we possibly can. We're ready for this. We're ready for Assyria because God is ready for him. In verse 20, even while Hezekiah is praying in the temple, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, that which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard Isaiah is delivering the answer, even though he wasn't there for the question. It's amazing what prophecy can make possible. Verse 21 to 28, then, is the Lord's message for Assyria. And it's going to come from Isaiah, so buckle up. It's a bit confusing. And one of the things that makes it hard is it's tough to tell who's speaking in each verse. So I'll try to walk you through it. Verse 21, we start clearly. This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning him. So, through Isaiah, God is speaking to the king of Assyria. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee, and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Now, this is <laughs> fighting fire with fire, or talking smack to those who talked smack. Remember, Rabshakeh, you're nothing. I mean, we could even give you horses, and you wouldn't have enough troops to be able to ride upon them, and we'd still be able to beat you. Well, here, <laughs> the Lord is, there's a little Elijah here in Isaiah, apparently, uh, and he's willing to throw a little mockery back in the face of the king of Assyria because he's gendering Israel female, first of all. Now, he does that often in the book of Isaiah in magnificent ways because there are things about the power of women and the love of mothers, for example, that is absolutely breathtaking. Can't, pick, can't think of a better metaphor for the love of God than the love of a mother. But here, at least as I see it, the gendering Israel female, and in fact making it a young girl. She's a virgin. She's a daughter. And what is this young, innocent maiden doing? <laughs> Laughing at you. 
despising you, laughing you to scorn, shaking her head like, I'm supposed to be scared of you? I mean, it's one thing for little kids on the playground to say, my dad can beat up your dad, or my, my big brother can defend me. It's another thing to say, my baby sister could show you up. That's some good smack talk. And this is how it all begins. Go on in verse 22. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? Against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Well, let me answer my own question. Even against the Holy One of Israel. Do you have any idea who you are messing with? Because it's not just a little girl across the wall from you. It's the God of Israel looking down. In verse 23, by thy messengers thou hast reproached the Lord and hast said, so now right here, if we were doing modern punctuation, you'd put a comma and a, a quotation mark. So this is what the Assyrians are saying. With the multitude of my chariots, I am come up to the height of the mountains to the side of Lebanon and will cut down the tall cedar trees thereof and the choice fir trees thereof. And I will enter into the lodgings of his borders and into the forests of his Carmel. That's just Assyrian pride talking. They're the ones that think, oh, we're higher than the mountains of Israel. We're higher than the forests, the cedars of Lebanon. Nothing can stand in our way. Are you kidding? You know who you're messing with? My baby sister can beat you. Keep going. Verse 24. And this is still Assyrian pride speaking. I have digged and drunk strange waters. With the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of besieged places. Again, in our past, through our conquests, no one has been able to stand up to us. Uh, even you, pesky, puny Hezekiah, that's tried to stop up the springs outside of the walls. Oh, others have tried that. And yet, what are we able to do? We can dig and drink strange waters, foreign waters. We're in foreign territory. We don't know the, the lay of the land. We don't know the manner of the gods of the land. It doesn't matter. We can dig our own wells. We can take care of ourselves, thank you very much. And so nothing's going to be able to stand up or stop us. Or the flip side, with the sole of my feet, I've dried up the rivers of besieged places. Oh, you can't stop us from finding water to drink, but we sure can stop you. I dare you. Just try. Well, God's willing to take the dare. Verse 25 to 28 are now the Lord's response to Sennacherib. Again, if we can pay attention to the speaker in each verse, then this prophecy makes sense. So here's the Lord, verse 25. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it? And of ancient times that I have formed it. Now have I brought it to pass that thou shouldst be to lay waste fenced cities into ruinous heaps? Oh, I am behind all of this. In fact, even all these other places that you've conquered, that wasn't you. That was me. Again, Isaiah will make a big point of this in chapter 7 and chapter 10, that Assyria is just a tool in my hand. And so your victories were not because of your strength, but because of my righteous indignation upon people that should have known better. Do not be the axe that boasteth itself. Do not be the axe that boasteth itself against the hewer, because I'm the one that's, that's holding the tool. After all, verse 26, their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and as corn blasted before it be grown up. All those other kingdoms that you conquered, they were nothing. A small power. 
This is kind of like when the king of Israel was telling King Amaziah, you beat the Edomites for crying out loud. The JV squat, no big deal. If you can't beat the Edomites, you can't beat anybody. It's like taking on the Sacramento Kings in the NBA. Had to throw that in for my in-laws that are Sacramento Kings fans. Anyway, they were nothing. So of course you beat them, especially when it's my power that's helping you. You're not going to beat my people, though, because I'm on their side, not on yours. God goes on in verse 27 and 8. I know thy abode, and thy going out, and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. I know everything about the Assyrian Empire. Because thy rage against me, and thy tumult is come up into mine ears, therefore I will put my hook in thy nose, and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way by which thou camest. Now, we started with smack talk. There's ending with smack talk, because... Guess what the Assyrian army was famous for in terms of conquering people? And, I mean, scattering them, yes, but also dragging some back to show the Assyrian king, look at what we've done. There's even, like, inscriptions that show this. They would often put hooks into the noses. Picture a nose ring and then put a chain to it, and we're going to drag you back home by the nose. If that doesn't work, we can put a hook through your lip and drag you home that way. Just the soft tissue, it's going to hurt. So you better keep up. It's interesting here that the Lord takes that and throws it right back in their face. You're the one that's going to be carried captive. I'm going to drag you back home to where you came from. And I'll do it in your way. Let's see how you feel. This is enforced empathy like we've seen earlier. You'll know what it feels like to have a hook in the nose and a bridle in the lip. Well, from that part then, still God is speaking, but now he shifts his audience to Hezekiah. You see why it's so tricky? You've got to kind of label, <laughs> have some, some show notes and, and cue cards. Okay, now God is speaking to Hezekiah. And that's verse uh, 29 to 34. In 29, this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such thing as grow of themselves. In the second year, that which springeth of the same. And in the third year, sow ye and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruits thereof. So here's the game plan. Let me prophesy a bit for you, mighty King Hezekiah. Uh, since you don't know what's coming, I do. This first year, because I know it, if it's, you're under siege and the enemy is coming and you haven't been able to go out and plant crops, you certainly don't want to grow food for somebody else to eat anyway. No worries. This year, there's enough in store. There, there was a bountiful harvest. I see the end from the beginning. There's enough to eat this year. In fact, there's enough to eat next year. And two years of letting the land lie fallow, kind of a Sabbath sabbatical for it. That's good. Uh, letting your people not worry so much about agriculture. Believe me, they'll have other things to worry about. There'll be walls to build and tunnels to dig and fortifications to erect. So this is, this is good for everybody. And by the third year, you'll be fine. You can go back out and replant. Uh, so nobody's going to starve. Don't worry about any kind of siege warfare. He goes on in verse 30. And the remnant, there's that Sheer Yashub word, the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant. And they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. And again, if you don't believe me, I named my son after it to make it crystal clear how confident I am in God's promise. Sheer Yashub, come, visual aid. <laughs> Show King Hezekiah that a remnant shall return. In fact, more than return, its roots will go downward. Its fruit will come upward. Sound like the family tree? 
that Malachi talked about, and hearts turning from fathers to children, from roots to branches and branches to roots, it's going to be okay. God will keep his family tree intact. In verse 32, therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. And this one's even bigger than the first one. First one, oh, there'll be some rumor and they'll leave for a time. How about this? He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. Wait, what? He hasn't come all this way just to taunt us and then run. Not even cast up a bank? To kind of hunker down behind and wait out the, our counterattacks? Not even shoot an arrow? What? He's going to at least do that, right? even on his way out, you know, just some f fire a few departing shots. Believe me, the way Rob Shaka talks smack, he's not going to be able to help himself. Well, trust me. This impossible promise comes from God. So not a single arrow. Verse 33, by the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Zion is in my hands. It's my city. I will defend it. I will save it. So stand still and watch the salvation of God. In verse 35, it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out, and this was not a ministering angel, this was a destroying angel, and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand. 185,000 troops. When they arose early in the morning, the survivors, behold, they were all dead corpses, their comrades in arms. What just happened? Well, I told you that Hezekiah was the second Moses. I told you that Passover saved them from Egypt the first time, and Passover would save them from Assyria the second. Oh, no one outside the walls was prepared, and the destroying angel did not pass over them. Instead, it destroyed 185,000. How are you going to respond to that? Well, alarmed by such massive losses in his army, Sennacherib does exactly as Isaiah had prophesied. He turns tail and runs, doesn't worry about the Ethiopians, doesn't worry about the, the, the people of Judah. He sprints straight back home to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. But what happens to him there? He goes into the temple of the Assyrian god. Might be the mightiest god on earth since it's beat all these other minor gods. But there in the temple of the Assyrian deity, two of Sennacherib's own sons come in and kill him. How's that for conspiracy? How's that for your god protecting you? Yeah, not so much. He's going to do the same thing against your army. This god of Assyria could not protect the king nor the army, whereas the god of Israel is doing what? Protecting the king, protecting the army, protecting his people. It's amazing to see what's happening. God versus God. Or God versus non-God in this case. With that victory without even having to fight. And sure enough, not even a single arrow was, was shot. Turn to chapter 20, and we see a fast-forwarding. And Hezekiah is later in life. He is sick. And Isaiah tells him to put his house in order because this is sickness unto death. You're not going to survive. But Hezekiah prays. And we've seen the kind of 
spiritual giant Hezekiah was. We've seen the power of his prayers. He prays in verse 3, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Now, is that going to change anything? He was just told by a prophet of God that you're going to die. And that prophet has a really good track record. I mean, he just, earlier in the previous chapter, he prophesied the impossible and it happened. And the Assyrian army just took off and ran. I mean, the way the story ends at the end of chapter 19 is so understated. It's almost like, wait, wait, is that it? It's like, yeah, that's it. Move on. Just live your life. It's like God isn't trumpeting his victories. It's like, okay, they went home and the king died and they were killed by his sons. And okay, next. What's the next thing that has to happen? Uh, Judah, you're safe for the next century plus. Uh, so how are you going to live your life? Are you going to stay faithful? Are you going to still, still be strong? That's what the chapters ahead are going to, the, the tale they're going to tell. But here, it's still Hezekiah, and he's at the end of his rope, end of his life, literally. And God, do you ever change your mind? Uh, I've tried really hard, and I'm just hoping that you can balance my future against my past. Not all of us would want that to happen, by the way. Can you forget my past and just give me a better future? But here, Hezekiah, I've tried my whole life to follow you with a perfect heart. And if that's worth anything, I've been banking my life on your law for as long as I've lived. Can I live a little longer? I'll stay faithful, I promise. There's an amazing book by Elder John H. Groberg about his mission in Tonga as a young man. It's, it was called In the Eye of the Storm. It was turned into a movie that was called The Other Side of Heaven. It's a beautiful movie. And the director of that movie was a man named Mitch Davis. He gave a talk at BYU with Elder and Sister Groberg, uh, remember, remember the 70, uh, when that movie first came out, to tell some mission stories and so on. And the movie is about Elder Groberg's mission, but Mitch Davis told a story about his. Not as a missionary, but in the aftermath of his mission. He said, and this is mind-blowing, he was on a, a hike with his son and a friend and the family dog, these boys were young, but they were out on a mountain and a storm, a freak storm blew in and lightning everywhere and, and they hunkered down for shelter and just hoped. But a lightning bolt came tearing through the tent. It struck the dog and killed it instantly. And it seemed to have killed Mitch Davis as well. He said he could feel life leaving. He could feel his spirit separating from his body and he was thinking about his son and this friend thinking there's no way they're going to be able to make it down the mountain. I've got to live so that they can. I... But he wondered, can I even ask for a miracle like that? I was part of this lightning strike and my life is over. And in the midst of that traumatic moment, he felt the spirit whisper to him, you served a valiant mission. Ask in confidence. <laughs> he didn't even have the guts to ask. It was like, I, I want to. I want to live. But who am I to change the will of God? I was struck by lightning and it's over. But for God to give him that reassurance, based on the life he'd lived as a missionary, 
Mitch Davis said, I was no amazing thing. That's why the movie was about Elder Groberg's mission and not my own. <laughs> but I guess it was valiant enough. And God weighed my future against my past and honored the intent of my heart. He let me ask and he encouraged me to ask in confidence. So I did. Let me live. And he did. He led his son and this, his friend down the mountain. He even carried the, the body of the family dog. It's an amazing story if you want to look it up and read it on uh, the BYU Speeches site. But that's what is happening with Hezekiah here. I've lived a valiant life. And I'm going to ask in confidence. And miraculously, God does change his mind. Isaiah's leaving, but the Lord tells him in verse 5 and 6, Turn again, go back. Tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people. Notice he calls him the captain, not the king. Which is, makes sense, since God is the king of kings. And Hezekiah knows it too. So, you know, oh, I'll just be your captain. So go tell the captain of my people. Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father. I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, your favorite spot. And I will add unto thy days fifteen years. Will that be enough for you, King Hezekiah? It's amazing how generous God is being here with life itself. Especially since he just told Isaiah, Yeah, King Hezekiah, this is a sickness unto death. Wait, did, did God just change his mind? I mean, this is a theological question worth wrestling with. Does God change his mind? Better said, does God change his will? Better asked, does God change his will based on the faith and prayers of his children? This passage would say yes. In fact, the concept of prayer in general would say yes. I mean, yes, prayer is also meant to allow us to, to submit our will to the will of the Father. But that suggests that we have a will to submit if we're going to lay it on the altar, we better have something to lay there. This is what I want, what I'm hoping for, what I'm praying for. If it's not thy will, then thy will be done. But if there's any wiggle room, I sure would like my will to be honored. And God, in his wisdom, I wonder if sometimes he just wants to know how much do we want something. He still may say no. And that's where his wisdom uh, is better than ours. His way is higher than ours. But there may be times where you re really, you don't care about your will at all. You, you're just you, almost to the point of over-submission. I guess a Goldilocks zone in there too. Prove these contraries. Have a will and submit it. That was Elder Maxwell's challenge when he was diagnosed with leukemia. And he said to his wife, well, I've been preaching about submitting to the will of God my whole life. I guess God called me on it. Uh, I better uh, practice what I preached and just let, and just die. And Sister Maxwell was like, honey, no. I mean, when the day comes, yes, accept it humbly, but fight it till then. And he did. And God gave him a, a stay and route, a reprieve for a time, which I'm so grateful for. It's actually one of the great things about praying and fasting and giving priesthood blessings to people because it shows God just how much we want something. It proves to him the depth of our desire.
the strength of our will. And if it goes differently, if the outcome is not what we've been pleading for, then that's better evidence than anything that God's will truly was done. Because we gave God every opportunity to do things our way. I hope that gives us a certain sense of, of resignation and uh, recognition that things are okay and that we can be submissive to the will of God once it's completely manifest. In this case, God was, okay, you want it? It's yours. Now, Isaiah is then inspired to know what to do to heal Hezekiah's illness. And then he, God even gives him a sign that I will lengthen Hezekiah's days. And the sign would be this. Go out and look at the sundial, and the shadow on the sundial will turn back 10 degrees. Because I'm turning back the clock and giving you an extra 15 years. In a way, that's what he'd just done for all of Israel. I, I bought you an extra century plus because of the faithfulness of Hezekiah. Uh, you were about to be destroyed because of the wickedness of your ancestors, and you turned it all around. And your righteousness brought an extra century for your people. I guess the least I can do is give you an extra 10 degrees on the sundial, an extra 15 years of life. This really is an amazing miracle. But it's not the only thing that's happening on, with Hezekiah at this moment. In verse 13, we're going to see something really important here. You see, the king of Babylon has sent letters and gifts to Hezekiah because he'd heard that the king was sick. Now, wait a minute. King of Babylon? I thought we were talking about the Assyrian Empire. How long did Hezekiah live for crying out loud? Well, here's where we need to understand. It's not like every day, I mean, everybody is Assyrian one day, and then the next day, everybody wakes up Babylonian all of a sudden. No, there's overlaps here. The end of the Greek Empire and the beginning of the Roman Empire weren't like day one followed by day two. There was an overlap and they coexisted for quite some time. It's just Greece was stronger than Rome and then Greece waned and Rome waxed and, and there was a replacement. Same thing with the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. Uh, we just haven't quite hit the, the hinge point yet. So this other king, Babylonian, sends letters and gifts and ah, sorry that things are in some ways maybe it's well the enemy of my enemy is my friend and I hate the Assyrians I want to take over for them and somehow Hezekiah is like the lone holdout I don't know how on earth he conquered he beat the Assyrians and killed 185,000 troops this is a good king to have on my good side so let's go uh, send some gifts but then notice this in verse 13 and Hezekiah hearkened unto them these messengers that brought the letters and gifts, and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, all the house of his armor, all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Now, on the one hand, you'd think, oh yeah, you were nice to me. You brought gifts. Hey, you want a tour of the kingdom? Uh, I know just the right spot in the royal treasury to put these incredible gifts. But while I'm at it, you should see just how blessed our kingdom has been. I mean, you're probably scratching your head and wondering, I mean, how did we beat the Assyrians? Well, God has blessed us, and he's blessed us abundantly. So let me show you the whole thing. Now, that was, maybe this is one of the things, maybe this is a strength that becomes a weakness. Maybe one of the reasons that Hezekiah was such a good king is he was a trusting individual, and he totally trusted God. He trusted his his Levites and his priests, he trusted the people that would come down from, 
from the northern kingdom, he, he just trusted in the goodness and, and compassion and mercy and grace of God. And he was completely justified in all that trust. But being a trusting person, he also trusted in some people that weren't very trustworthy. And yeah, that's the flip side of that coin. Joseph Smith was the same way, by the way. Totally trusted God. And totally trusted some non-trustworthy people. Uh, he just gave people the benefit of the doubt to a fault. And Hezekiah seems to be made cut from the same cloth. Well, the mistake here was Babylonians aren't trying to be your best friends. They want to conquer the world even more than the Assyrians did, which would include your kingdom. So guess what they're doing with their gifts? Talk about strings attached. Yeah, where do they put gifts? What are the gifts do they have? What is the lay of the land? Spy it out for me, will you? And guess who sees through that? Isaiah does. And so when Isaiah find out, finds out what happened, he realizes the problem. It's like, you, let, you gave the thieves a tour of your home? Ah. Verse 16, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day. In other words, everything you've shown to the Babylonians shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. This is a prophecy of the Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah has a pretty good track record on prophecies fulfilled. You open your doors to the enemy and they will drag you out of those doors along with all the stuff that you showed them. Now, yes, I turn back the clock for you and I turn back the clock for your people against the Assyrians and I'll do it against the Babylonians too. But the day will come when Judah is conquered. It won't be on your watch, but it will come. This was not wise on your part. Well, how's Hezekiah going to respond? Jekyll or Hyde? Well, I haven't seen a Hyde moment, just the flip side of his strength. And sure enough, in verse 19, Hezekiah says to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord, which thou hast spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? There's some good submission, some submissiveness on his part. He's proved that contrary really well. I'm going to push for my will. Can I live longer? But I realize, okay, I, I don't have a leg to stand on for push, to push for my will on this. So I'm going to accept the good word of the good Lord. And I understand my mistake and I'm sorry, but I, I'll accept what you've done. And, and I, in fact, I'll be grateful that at least in my days, that reprieve, there will be peace and truth here. Now, the book of Kings basically stops there with the story of Hezekiah. It gives us one more detail I'll bring up in just a moment. But in this moment of the Babylonian ambassadors, it's a confusing story. For some, it's not even a story at all. It's like, wait, he did what? Okay, that's weird. Okay, whatever. But there, speaking of theology, there's some theology here that's absolutely essential to understand. Especially if you've ever felt a time in your life where you can't seem to feel the Spirit, apparently through no fault of your own. Sometimes we don't feel the Spirit and we know it's our fault. Okay, I've sinned and I've alienated the, the Holy Ghost and I'm going to repent and invite him back. And he comes running. That's the mercy, compassion, grace of God. But what about times where I just can't feel anything? Elder Renlund gave a great talk about receptor sites. He is a doctor after all. And the, you might be, the body might be filled with the things that the cells need, but if the receptor sites are blocked, it's not coming in. They're not getting what they need, even though it's available. He talked about sin being a blocker of spiritual receptor sites. He, he talked about mental illness. 
as a blocker of spiritual receptor sites. And that's, I've seen that all too often, that when we're triggered and flooded with anxiety or we're just sapped of any hope and depression or too many voices in our heads that are screaming for attention, it's really hard for the still small voice to be heard, even when God is speaking to you. But there's other times where, I don't know why, it's just a dark night of the soul. It's a time of doubt. I, I'm struggling. I don't know why. I'm doing everything that I used to do. I'm trying, but I just don't feel God with me. Mother Teresa suffered with that for decades. And many people of any faith, including ours, have wrestled with his absence as well. And that's why this next verse is my go-to verse in these, in these circumstances. It grows out of that experience from King Hezekiah. But maybe we don't know this verse because it's buried in 2 Chronicles instead of found in 2 Kings. But go with me to 2 Chronicles 32, and verse 31 is the verse. He's just relayed the story of these Babylonian ambassadors, and it says in verse 31, Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. I love those phrases. Hezekiah seemed to have been led by God almost uninterrupted. I mean, it helps to have Isaiah just down the hallway, right? Uh, but a man of such goodness and such perfect-heartedness Rededicating temples, first thing. And everything that we've studied today, I love Hezekiah. He's one of my favorite kings of Judah. But in this moment, he wasn't guided by God. And no wonder he messed up. He was a little too trusting and either didn't ask God or God didn't say anything to him and thought, well, I mean, the Babylonians aren't attacking us and they brought a gift and so why not? And yeah, he made a mistake. It wasn't going to cost him or his people during his generation. And later kings were going to be the cause and the problems of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. But I love the, the passage, the phrase at the end. Theologically, here's the truth. There are times that God does leave us through no fault of our own. Jesus would say that. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But to borrow this language, why did God leave Hezekiah in that moment? It's never permanent. To try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. When I taught my kids how to ride their bikes, I would run right alongside them with my hand on their shoulder or the back of their bike seat, just making sure they didn't fall. But there comes a time where you do have to leave them where you take your hand off, partly to see if they're learning to balance, and partly to see, will you keep pedaling on your own? Because I'm here to help you, but not to push and pull you the whole way. God is the same. And there are times where God is seeking to develop our own independence in a good way. Not the prideful independence that I don't want to be part of you and I don't have to listen to you. We've seen enough of that in Israel. But for those that are feeling lonely spiritually, feeling colorblind and you can no longer see the vivid hues that you're used to, 
if you feel like you're tone deaf and I can't seem to hear the song of redeeming love, but I want to, and I'm doing the same things that have always brought that chorus rushing in in the past, that's a verse I would encourage you to commit to memory and realize that there are times where God just wants to see what's in our heart. Keep pedaling. The light will come. You'll still, uh, someday, again, hopefully soon, you'll feel the hand on your shoulder again. You'll sense that God has been running beside you the whole time, even if you haven't had the eyes to see. I'm grateful for that reality, and I pray that through the dark nights of our soul, we'll know that it's just passing cloud cover, and God wants to see what we'll do when we think we're on our own. Didn't Brigham Young say something about that? We have to learn to be righteous in the dark. Yeah, the light will come. One last thing here. Back in the King's account, chapter 20, verse 20, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might, which sound like we're wrapping things up, we are, how he made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his stead. And that's typically how things end. And sure enough, chapter 21, Hezekiah is gone and his son is on the throne. And we need to meet Manasseh in chapter 21. But right here, can I say something really quick about what that verse just described? He made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city. I told you that we were going to come back and talk about water with Hezekiah later on. The first instance was there's water outside the city. And if the Assyrians come and lay siege, then <laughs> I've just given them the drinking fountain. Well, that's not good. That's going to bless them at our expense. But there's a flip side to it. So yes, I can uh, kind of seal that over so the Assyrians will know what it feels like to be thirsty. The problem is there are no natural springs within the city wall of Jerusalem. Now that's a planning mistake. <laughs> we built the walls and it's like, great, we'll get some water. Oh, it's on the other side. Hmm, bummer. Which means every time you have to go out and get water, you have to leave the protection of your wall. What should we do? Hezekiah, again, is thinking outside the box. He's fortifying things. He's equipping his people. He's trying to get physically prepared after he'd gotten spiritually prepared. And this is where we get Hezekiah's tunnel. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, I hope you've walked through Hezekiah's tunnel. It's awesome because it feels like you're spelunking through this underwater river, because basically you are. What happens is there is this spring outside the wall, the closest water source to, Israel, to Jerusalem is the Gihon Spring. But like I said, it's outside the wall, so that's a problem. Uh, do we just extend the wall? That would have been smart, but that's a ton of work. Let's try something different. There is a pool inside the city wall, that's the Pool of Siloam, and what if we connected the two? In fact, the Gihon Spring is at a higher elevation than the Pool of Siloam. And so if we somehow like dug a tunnel underneath the city wall, then the water would flow downhill from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam and we'd have a water source inside the city. Perfect. We could even cap the top so the Assyrians can't get to it on the outside. And so that's how they do it. Uh, in the Chronicles version of this, you see it in chapter 32, verse 30, this same Hezekiah also stopped the upper water course of Gihon, keep it from the Assyrians, and brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David. 
and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. And you would need to be prospered in this one because it's an engineering marvel for the ancient world. I mean, because here's how he did it. There's no GPS. There's no tra tracking system underground. There's just these two spots. And how are we going to do this? It'd be one thing to go, well, just plot it out. And as the crow flies, let's make a straight shot between the two. But what, I mean, if you start at one and just kind of work your way to the other, do you know if you're straight and true underground it, for like a thousand feet plus? This is going to be hard. So what Hezekiah told his engineers to do was let's have one group start at the Gihon Spring and let's have another group start at the Pool of Siloam and dig toward each other and find each other. Good luck with that. It's a miracle that they did. But if you've walked Hezekiah's tunnel, there are times where the water's you're splashing through your ankles and there's times it's closer to your knees and it's a weaving, wandering, meandering little stream. Uh, it's not a straight shot. I love Hezekiah's tunnel because to me it becomes such a great metaphor for marriage. We have two people starting from two different points and the, we just hope we'll find each other. And we're making compromises and we're trying and in fact there were etched, the, the archaeologists discovered that etched on the walls close to the midpoint were these little scratchings that basically said things like, I can hear them through the wall, they must be, we must be getting close. And sometimes that's the closest we feel in our relationships. It's like, I, I think I'm making sense to her. It, do I understand what she means by that? And it's, we're speaking through the limestone, trying, to become, trying for two be, to become one. It's a miracle that it ever happens. But it does. I would actually say that on the one hand, yes, it takes compromising and changing and being willing to turn and move and just meet in the middle somewhere. The other I would say is that if they're really, in the modern time, I'm sure it would be a straight shot. And if you still started in both locations, they would be given such a straight course or a central meeting spot that, hey, as long as I get to that spot and as long as the other team gets to that spot, I know we'll meet in the middle. That's actually the best form of marriage. You pick a central spot and come together. Now, you might think I'm talking proving contraries. It probably comes down to that. But I'm really talking about coming unto Christ. If he is that fixed spot, and I come unto Christ, and my wife comes unto Christ, then that's where we'll finally meet. And in fact, the closer we each come unto him, the closer we'll be. If you picture a triangle, husband on one corner and wife on the other, and Christ and the third, then the, the triangle shrinks the closer I come and the closer my wife comes to the Savior. That's even better engineering. It's good theology. If the ancients had done that, they would have shaved off nearly 700 feet. That's a lot of meandering. Okay. Well, we have to say goodbye to Hezekiah, which is sad because he's replaced by a son that is nothing like his father. Hezekiah was nothing like his father. He was righteous, but... His son Manasseh was one of the worst of the worst, and that's tragic. It's interesting, if you look at the ages, he ascended to the throne at the age of 12. And if you do the math, he's only 12 years old when he replaces his father. So how long ago, what was Hezekiah doing when Manasseh was born, and what did Hezekiah's life look like during Manasseh's childhood? 
the spiritual preparation was long since past. And yes, knowing Hezekiah would assume that he's still doing everything that he should, but Manasseh didn't see the beginning. He didn't see, he didn't know how bad things had become. He didn't see the consequences of, of wickedness personally. He only saw the consequences of righteousness and frankly probably took them for granted. And now it's, oh, I don't want to do it my dad's way. I want to do things different. And he reigns in absolute wickedness. And unfortunately, he lives a long time. And his reign lasts 55 years. Plenty of time to reverse the righteousness of a reforming and restoring father. In verse 3 of 2 Kings 21, he built up again the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed Seriously? That was like the one moment we didn't have high places, and now they're back. He reared up altars for Baal, made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel. Wait, he's going back to all those sins? Yep. He worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Manasseh is desecrating the very temple that his father worked so hard to sanctify. He's bringing in false altar altars to false gods there in the house of the true God of Israel. It's amazing how much time it can take to get things right and how long that can last and then how quickly they can all fall apart. My wife and son, as I've just mentioned to you before, work in addiction recovery and it's no matter how long a recovery lasts, a, a fall back into former addictions might be just a drink away, might just be a, a fix away. And, and then with that one fix or one drink, it pulls you down and, want, and, you, and you want more and more and you get worse and worse. And that's what happens with Manasseh. It's a, a deepening of the original problems that happened before. In verse 6, for example, he made his son pass through the fire, back to child sacrifice. He observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. There's the rejection of true prophets. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse 7, he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. This seems like he's rubbing it in. Right there in the Lord's face, right where his name is centered, in his house. Let's make an image, since he said no graven images. Let's put the grove to replace the tree of life. And let's have it grow right in the face of God. Manasseh. Oh, verse 9, he seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. And how's that for foreshadowing? These are the very things that led to their destruction. What do you think they're going to do to you? Same thing. But verse 10, God's not given up on him. The Lord spake by his servants the prophets, saying that because of Manasseh's wickedness, therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. Now, the last time we heard that phrase from the Lord was when he was referring to the, lo the loss of the Ark of the Covenant way back in the days of Eli. Same thing. You lost my presence then. You lost the, the Ark. You broke the Covenant. 
and it's happening all over again. Tingling ears, oh yeah. You're going to hear violence and destruction all around you to the point that you become tone deaf, which is fitting since you've been tone deaf to my calls to repent. He goes on, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Now that's some pretty powerful imagery there. The line and the plummet, we're talking about, you picture a chalk line that makes things absolutely straight. And picture a plummet where something is hanging down with a weight at the bottom to make sure that it's absolutely vertical. We're looking for straight lines. We are trying to build with compasses and squares. We're trying to align things properly. But Manasseh isn't, so fine. I will measure you by the same standard I measured Israel. They fell short. They were neither straight nor true, neither level nor straight up and down, and, and they were scattered by the Assyrians. I'm going to measure you by the, straight, the same line, and you will be destroyed in a different way by a different enemy, but same result. Picture a dish and wipe it clean and then turn it over, and how much is it holding? Nothing. Well, the version in 2 Chronicles 33 adds a few more details. It says that because of Manasseh's wickedness, this is verse 11, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, so we're still dealing with them, which took Manasseh among the thorns. There's those hooks that we talked about before. Well, Manasseh knows what it feels like to be in the nose or in the lip. They bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. Babylon has not yet thrown off the Assyrian yoke. And that's where Manasseh is going to be for a time. But the story doesn't end there either. And this is where things turn into good news. So far, Manasseh has been uninterrupted bad news. But I do have to believe that something stuck from those 12 years of growing under the shadow of, of righteous Hezekiah. Hold out hope for this. Look at verse 12. When he was in affliction, Manasseh has hit rock bottom, and now he's back in contact with the rock. He besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. The God of his father, we could say, who made his discipleship so clear. Manasseh prayed unto him, and he was entreated of him. He changed his mind even for Manasseh. He heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. And this is one more place where without the book of Chronicles, the book of Kings leaves us wanting. It leaves us absolutely cursing the memory of King Manasseh because he's one of the worst of the worst. If you only know Manasseh from the angle of Kings, you're ready to throw, cast him off forever. But that's not the only angle. It's not his last chance or his only hope. There's a second angle here, and the chronicler saw what happened off in Babylon. And somehow Manasseh changed, because God was still working on him and with him. And this is one of my favorite little stories of repentance, because it was, see it was coming from someone who seemed to be the very vilest of sinners. He was, but he turned, and God turned back to him. It's amazing that God can be entreated 
if we'll only repent. The moment we do, he'll have mercy even upon the worst of us. And Manasseh is a beautiful example of that. Now in the aftermath of that incredible repentance, Manasseh dies. He ended on a good note, apparently. The throne passes to his son Ammon, who unfortunately grew up under the wicked king Manasseh and never chose to change when his father changed. And so Ammon rules in wickedness. He worships the graven images that his fathers set up. And according to verse 23, there in 2 Chronicles 33, he humbled not himself before the Lord as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. That, I think, is the other side of the story we have to keep in mind. And proving the contraries, where we know that God will always be merciful, but there's also a danger to sin. Because yes, this vile sinner Manasseh changed, turned things around, came back, and life ended well for him. But it didn't go well for his son. And though Ammon wasn't punished for his father's sins, he certainly was punished by them. And the very idols that Manasseh, at his worst moments, set up, Ammon turned to, even after Manasseh had turned away from them. Elder Holland gave an amazing talk in conference years ago. I think he called it the prayer of the children. And he warned parents that as you wander, even with the intent to come back, perhaps, what is a oh, sabbatical for you might be a permanent departure for your children. So please be careful with that. That's the sad aftermath of Manasseh's story. And then Ammon, speaking of sad aftermaths, he only ruled for two years in that wickedness before some servants conspired against him. We're back to that. And they killed him. The people of Judah then round up the conspirators and kill them. They place Ammon's son Josiah on the throne. And now we're back up and running. Oh, who, which examples will we follow? But again, Manasseh's reign was 55 years. Added two more for Ammon. There's 57 years since we had Hezekiah. In almost 60 years, do you tend to forget? Uh, do, does wickedness become pretty encrusted? And is it going to be hard to, to uproot the evil that has entered in? Well, that's going to be Josiah's mission, and he's an incredible one. He is a Hezekiah 2.0, and so he wants to be like great-grandpa, and I'm glad he did. His story here appears in 2 Kings chapter 22. He takes the throne as an eight-year-old. He wasn't very old when, when dad was killed, but he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. He turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. Speaking of lions and plummets, here's one who knows how to walk the straight and narrow path unerringly. Oh, maybe he heard stories about great-grandpa. Maybe he heard stories about grandpa. Uh, and I don't want to be that. But this eight-year-old starts to change things. Eighteen years into his reign, so now he's 26, Josiah tells the high priest, a man named Hilkiah, to use the money that's being offered at the house of the Lord to repair all the breaches in the temple. We've seen multiple kings have to repair the temple, which means there needs to be constant fixing of things, okay? Good, some good home maintenance. And that's true of our spirituality as well. King Hezekiah is obviously one great example of that. King Jehoash was another. And if you remember the story from, what, last week when King Jehoash was, was around, 
He paid the carpenters and the masons and the hewers of wood and the, and the movers of materials. Uh, the money that was coming in, they did it all faithfully. There's a great parallel between Jehoash and Josiah when it comes to that. And one other parallel, Jehoash also began to reign when he was very young. He was seven. Josiah was eight. When the Lord wants to restore things, he usually starts with a child. Think about that. But then keep reading. The Chronicles version of this, by the way, gives us an insight into that youth. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, so now he's 16, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he's now 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And in fact, he did that not only in Judah, his jurisdiction, but in all the places that remained up in Israel. He's like Hezekiah before him. He's getting this sense of, is there any way to reunite over these things? Now keep these ages in mind. Age eight, he starts to reign. Age 16, he begins really seeking after the Lord his God. In 20, he begins the iconoclasm. And we've got to get rid of these negative things. And then at 26, he starts bringing in the good. He's gone from justification to sanctification, just like Hezekiah did. That's a pretty good oh, chronology as far as growing up in God is concerned. We come into our own at age eight, and we're accountable now. We're on a throne of responsibility for ourselves. We still have a lot of growing up to do, though, but around 16, are we really starting to wonder what we believe and how we fit and what the answers to the big questions are? Do we begin seeking the Lord? Age 20, are we starting to really decide who we are and what matters most? And we're, this is the beginning of the decade of decision. And are we leaving behind things from the past and deciding this is the future that I want for myself? And then by 26, we're a little bit more established and I just want to become something. I want to be all that the Lord intends for me. And that's Josiah for you. But like I said, at age 26, he sends Hilkiah the priest in and, and lets them know when all the tithes and the offerings that are coming in, we've got to fix the temple. That's the most important part. And this is where the plot thickens. Verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I've been out there repairing things, and amidst the rubble or under the dust, I, I found this. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now, it's simply called the book of the law. And what better place to find it than in the house of God? He who wrote that book. I've wondered, I pictured like a, a, if a temple were destroyed, heaven forbid, but someone went in to try to root through the rubble and they found this old, dusty, white covered volume and they pulled it out and realized, wait, this is scripture. And there it was, probably sitting on a table somewhere in the celestial room for worshipers to read. Well, it seems like no one had read a book like that for a long, long time. I mean, 60 years since great-grandpa, right? What exactly is this book of the law? Scholars can't seem to agree on anything. <laughs> 
And so there's all kinds of possibilities here. Some say, well, Book of the Law, that's the Torah, that's the five books of Moses. So that's probably Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Others say, no, that's too much. Uh, the real law is Deuteronomy, the second law. And so he probably, and based on the way Josiah's reforms went, this was probably a Deuteronomistic history, and so the book of Deuteronomy is probably what he found. Others say, well, no, the book of Leviticus has those holiness codes, and that's really what whips you into shape, so that was probably the book of the law. And other scholars say, well, I don't know, that stuff's pretty old by then. Um, perhaps it was other more recent prophets or reformers rewriting the law that they remember from Scripture and that they had it in the temple at some, at some point. And so this is a more recent version. Take your pick. Whatever it is, the law of God is being dusted off and, and re-enthroned because it's gone from priest to messenger to king. And the king reads this. And how does he react? Verse 11. It came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. The ultimate sign of mourning. I realize now just how far short our society has fallen. I... I didn't realize where the standard was. We haven't seen a line, or a line or a plummet in a long time. And there it is, written right before us. And we haven't been living that way. Dad, how could you? Grandpa, how could you? I mean, I hope he got the Chronicles version of Grandpa, so at least he left him with a good taste in his mouth. But we've lost it, and we've got to regain it. So Josiah tells his advisors in verse 13, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all that was written concerning us. He realizes it's not all him. We've been sinning in ignorance, but our fathers knew better. And now we do. And so what are we going to do? When you get called out or corrected or, some, or you realize an area of life where you've been falling short, how do you react? Do we humble ourselves? Do we put on sackcloth and ashes? Do we rend our clothing and, and showing it as a sign of a broken heart within? A contrite spirit on its knees ready to ask the Lord for a second chance. In some ways, a first chance. I didn't realize, but I want to live these laws Verse 14, so Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, Asahiah, we don't know these names, but they're worth remembering because they're part of the team that wants to change things. And where do they go? They went unto Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college and they communed with her. Now that's about all we get to know about the background of Huldah and it's a bummer. Okay, so she's married to the guy that keeps the wardrobe. He's supposed to pass out the, the priestly robes for the Levites. Okay, so this seems to at least be a man involved with sacredness, and you'd think that his wife would be similarly involved. They, she lived in the college. That's better translated as the second quarter or the new quarter. So it's some kind of suburb uh, just off the Temple Mount, perhaps, the, the city of David. Uh, she's a prophetess, though. That's the most important word of the verse. And she's the type of person that people go to when they need to know the will of God. That's amazing. She's a woman, after all. That's unheard of. No, it's not. 
Think about Deborah. Think about Jael. Think about Ruth and Naomi. Think about Hannah. Think about, we're going to meet Esther coming up. Think about Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah and Shifra and Pua and Miriam and Yocheved and Zipporah and Oh, the, the Old Testament is such a treasure trove of incredible daughters of God. And Hulda is one of them. She is recognized by others. Others that were close to the king. Why don't you talk to the king? Others that were close to, well, her own husband is like in charge of the wardrobe. Surely he's the guy that we should talk to. No, she outranks him spiritually. And he's fine with that. So let's talk to Hulda the prophetess. In verse 15, she says unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. So yes, I can speak on his behalf. God's words in a little higher pitch. Tell the man that sent you to me. So yes, I'm willing to send a message back to the king. Thus saith the Lord. So God wants to speak to you as well, but he'll do it through me. Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read. So yes, a woman speaking for the Lord, speaking to the king, and no priesthood office required for that. Oh, sisters, I hope you know your divine inheritance and the power and authority God has given you to receive revelation and to speak up. Who's been asking you to do that more? President Russell M. Nelson, a man with nine daughters, and a tenth child, which was finally a son. He knows the power of women. He's lived with them. Uh, and he's encouraging and urging the sisters to receive revelation from God. Go get your message, prophetess. And then speak up and share with, with bishops and state presidents. Be a vocal part of ward council. Be an equal partner with your husband at home. And even in the presiding councils of the church, more and more women's voices are being invited and heard. And I'm sure even better days ahead. Well, that was bad news from Hulda. Uh, that wickedness brings destruction. Pride Cycle would tell you that. And there's, it's going to come. But I do have some good news too. Verse 18 and 19, continuing from Hulda. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel to you, Josiah, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, sorry to keep bringing that up, and hast rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. So what has Huldah said there? God is aware of you, Josiah. He knows that this was a sin and ignorance on your part. And even more amazing, he knows how you reacted when your ignorance changed to knowledge. Once you became accountable, you wanted to live the life that God would have you. Your humility, your weeping, your, your tender heart. In some ways, it's not what you've done. It's how you've reacted to what you've done. And because of your tenderness, your, your sensitive conscience... I have better news for you. Verse 20, she says, Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace. Thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. They brought the king word again. Your repentance, King Josiah, may not stave off the ultimate end of your kingdom. 
that would require your people's repentance too. And I know you're working on that. But society's problems can be only be solved by society's repentance. That's the bad news. The good news, well, it could be good news if they change. The good news for you, though, Josiah, is your repentance is sparing you. And so because of your humility and faith, you will be spared the consequences of sin. And you'll die in peace. So he did. But before we get there, what does he do? Okay, I'm, I'm going to be good? Fine. But I'm a leader. I'm the king. I'm, I need to influence people to righteousness as well. So how am I going to do that? Chapter 23 of 2 Kings tells his story. Once King Josiah hears the words of Huldah the prophetess, he gathers all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem together. And in verse 2, the king went up into the house of the Lord. Best place to do it. All the men of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And what's he do once Israel has been gathered to the house of the Lord? He read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. Notice when he first saw it, they called it the book of the law. What's he call it here? The book of the covenant. This is not about just transactional obedience. This is about relational faith. And it's a covenant that we're making. It's a covenant God made with our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, all of you. Will you renew that covenant? Because that's what he's after. Where? It's happening at the temple. Who? Prophets, priests, people, everyone, and the Lord, since it's his house. And what? The reading of scripture and the renewal of covenant. Sounds a lot like general conference, actually. Uh, and our, will we come together? Will we gather Israel and decide we're actually going to collectively commit to the covenant with, with God? In verse 3, the king stood by a pillar. There's a good symbol of strength, of support. I wonder which one he was standing next to. Yaquin, meaning he will establish. Boaz, meaning in him is strength. You know, which pillar are you by? Well, it doesn't matter. He's going to be a third pillar between them. He made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, which either means to walk after him like I'm going to follow you or to walk after you like I'm going to seek you. Either way, I want to be with God. He covenanted to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. I love that phrase. Here is a communal covenant initiated by the king. This is real leadership. It's not just, I'm choosing to do this. I need you with me. And how did the people respond? They stood. They straightened up. They, they became pillars in their own right. And yes, we will do all that you have commanded. Now, in the rest of this chapter, basically from verse 4 to verse 24, it describes all the things that King Josiah did to reform religion in Judah. He's trying to destroy iniquity from among the people. So we're back to not just disapproval, but actual removal, just like Hezekiah had done. And like I said, after 60 years of pagan idolatry, there's probably going to be a lot to clean up. Well, there is. And I'm just going to fly through the chapter and bullet point list a bunch of them. In verse 4, they were, there were vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for all the host of heaven. In verse 5, there were idolatrous priests that would have to be removed. In verse 5 also, they were burning incense unto Baal, to the sun, the moon, the planets, to all the hosts of heaven. In verse 6, there was a grove, 
right? In the house of the Lord. That's a problem. In verse 7, there were houses of the Sodomites, just ritual immorality, that were by the house of the Lord. So right there in the shadow of it. In verse 7, there were women out there weaving hangings for the grove. I mean, there's a whole little oh, industry going on towards idolatry. In verse 8, there were high places, figures. In verse 10, there were places where a man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. Back to child sacrifice. In verse 11, there were horses that the king of Judah had given to the son at the entering in of the house of the Lord. And there were chariots of the sun as well. You see, pagans believed that the sun was carried across the sky in a chariot of fire. So, I mean, if we're going to worship the sun, we better have some good horses in a stable right by the temple. And we'll have some chariots of gold to make it look all the better. In verse 12, there were altars set up on the king's rooftop. That's where sin often happens. Ask David about that one. Uh, but also in the temple courts themselves. And if that's not bad enough, verse 13, there was a place called the Mount of Corruption. Oh, nothing. Let's, let's be subtle here, shall we? And it's the place that Solomon built for all of his pagan wives to worship corruptible gods. You can kind of sum it all up with verse 24. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. <laughs> spied. You can just see them everywhere. Did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord? This is a reform and an iconoclasm on the level of King Hezekiah before him. And bless Josiah for doing it. He is going to be remembered as one of the greatest kings of, of divided Israel for this reformation. And how did it begin? I found scripture. I dusted it off in my life. When my wife turned things around after five years of total inactivity and being as far away from God as she could get, that was age 15 to 20, the first step back, well, beyond some incredible unconditional love from a recently returned missionary brother. The first real steps for her was dusting off the Book of the Law, in her case, the Book of Mormon. And she has never allowed it to collect dust since. And it's made her one of the great disciples that I will always be grateful to be permanently connected to. It's amazing what happens. Think about John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. That describes a lot of things. And if you want to reform your life, if you want to clean things out, if you want the motivation to do so, then dust off your scriptures. I know I'm speaking to the choir. There's no, you don't have time to, to have any dust on them. You're in them hours and hours and hours a week. Bless you for that. Well, how did this cleansing take place? Let me fly through the chapter again, just pointing out some of the things Josiah did to eliminate all these things. Back in verse 4, for example, those pagan vessels that were in the temple, he removed them and burned them without Jerusalem, so outside the city, in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. Now, again, I told you earlier, anytime you see the word Kidron, you've got to think Gethsemane. You've got to think atonement. And what better place to burn down these false gods than right there at the feet of Christ? But also carrying the ashes to Bethel. Oh yeah, Bethel, that's up in Israel, isn't it? Yeah, oh, that's where, that's where Jeroboam I initiated idolatry in Israel with his golden calf. 
In fact, golden calves, think about Aaron and what had Moses done with the golden calf to reform the people? He ground it down, he burned it, he ground it down into powder. Then he made him drink it. Hmm, yikes. Uh, but in this case, let's burn it, let's grind it down, let's put it in the fields of Kidron, let's take the ash to Bethel, which means house of God. Huh, that's, that's good. To bring it, because what does God do with ash? Isaiah will tell us he turns ashes into beauty. That's a great metaphor for repentance. Or how about this one, verse 6. When he takes the grove out of the temple, he burned it at the brook Kidron. He stamped it small to powder. He cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. Again, sound like golden calf? And put it on the graves? Well, let's join spiritual death, at least its remains, with physical death, at least its remains, since the two go hand in hand. We want life, not death. And the atonement of Christ overcomes both. So we've got to clean house on this. How about this in verse 12? He broke down the pagan altars and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. There it is again. And that river will empty it out to the sea of death itself. Throughout these verses, Josiah is repeatedly described as defiling the sites of pagan worship. Defiling them. Well... Let the punishment fit the crime. These were places where people defiled themselves with false worship. So might as well defile those places. But the irony here too is in a way sort of fighting fire with fire or maybe using their superstitions to stop their own superstitions. Or maybe I can put it this way. You can use their own worldview to change their worldview. You gotta work within it. I think too often we come from the outside and try to fight it, but it's like, no, 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 we're, we're in two different mental universes. Ah, okay, then let me enter yours and see what material I can use to help you decide to change your ways. I need to come to understand where you're coming from. And so what kinds of things would these people consider defiling? Well, one of them was death. Everybody kind of sees death as a scary thing. And so what do you do with cemeteries? And cemeteries are interesting because on the one hand, they're places of great holiness because think of the spirit. But they're also a place of, of I mean, that's what Halloween is made of, right? A cemetery, graveyard stories, because it's also a place of death and decay. The, is it the spirit there? Is the dying body there? Ooh, is this a holy place or an unclean place? The answer is yes. And through much of Jewish tradition, cemeteries are viewed from both of those angles as well. A place of holiness. Some consider them second only to the synagogue. And others, on the other side, a place of uncleanness because of the decay that's taking place. So what does he do? Verse 14, when he cut down the groves, he filled their places with the bones of men. Let's turn this thing into a cemetery. That'll scare people away from it. That's one way to, I mean, the groves keep growing back. So let's do the, make it different. Verse 16, as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchers that were there in the mount and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchers and burned them upon the altar, upon a pagan one. That way he polluted it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Now, wait, what are you talking about? How does that verse end? Do you remember long enough ago when Jeroboam first starts setting up idolatry in Bethel? And this unnamed prophet from Judah comes in and sees him and says, Oh, I've got a message for this altar here, this pagan altar you've set up. 
I mean, if you want to listen in, uh, that's fine. I, I don't mind your eavesdropping. But then he prophesies that this altar will someday be broken. And in fact, that the bones of wickedness will be burned upon this wicked altar. Fighting evil with evil, I suppose. And that's exactly what's happening in Josiah's reign. In fact, verse 17, Josiah says, wait, 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 what title is this that I see? We're going through all these sepulchers to pull out their bones, but there's a, a name on this one. Who's laid to rest there? And the men of the city told him, oh, it's the sepulcher of the man of God, which came from Judah and proclaimed these things that thou hast done against the altar of Bethel. Like, what, wait, the, the very guy we were talking about? Uh, the exact person that's, that was prophesying that this would take place? Whoa, there's a coincidence that isn't coincidental. I mean, back in 1 Kings 13, 2, where he begins speaking to the altar, listen to how specific his prophecy was. O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David. How old was Josiah? He was only eight when he started this. Oh, let's even be more specific than that. Josiah by name. I'll be that crystal clear. And upon thee, you altar, shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Wow. Prophecy fulfilled. Go on in verse 18, back to our original story. When they found the old prophet's bones, Josiah said, let him alone. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone. Oh, if anyone deserves to rest in peace, it's the prophet who got it so right as far as that prophecy was concerned. In fact, I guess I'm just finishing his work since that's what he was trying to do so long ago. In verse 20, he slew all the priests of the high places that were there upon the altars and burned men's bones upon them and returned to Jerusalem. Got a bit of Elijah in him, but did exactly as that old prophet from Judah had said. Now, one more act of purification here. In verse 21 and 2, the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God. I told you that Josiah was Hezekiah 2.0. As it is written in the book of this covenant, so let's do it by the book as we should. Surely there was not holden such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor of the kings of Judah. I mean, we got to read more in depth the detail about Hezekiah's celebration. And the fact that this one even topped that one? Wow. Maybe it's a good thing he didn't spell it all out or we'd be here all day. But that was the legacy of King Josiah. Absolute reform and restoration. Let's get back to the original. Let's get back to God where this all began. And where did that all start? It started with repentance. A pricked conscience when a book of scripture was read in his ears, and everything changes. It's amazing the influence that a good person can have. In verse 25, like unto him, there was no king before him that turned, there's our repentance word, to the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. Now, I emphasize the heart and soul, but added the might there because heart and soul can be personal. Might is often uh, equated with influence. I have might. I can show power. I can get things done. And one of the great things about Josiah is that he used that influence, his might, to turn people to God right along with him. Now, I wish that that were the end of the story for his people. I wish we could just say, and they lived happily ever after. 
and leave it at that. However, verse 26 and 7 change things. Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Now what we're seeing here is more scattering, just like Israel. Until Israel is lost, though a remnant shall return, Jerusalem will be destroyed, this time by the Babylonians. The temple will be destroyed. That's tragic. And for them to realize this, yes, your repentance will save those who repent. But unless it is sufficiently widespread, there will not be societal salvation. And heap it all on Manasseh. But I thought he changed. Well, he did in the Chronicles account. Is this just the king's account, not knowing about the change? Maybe. Then again, it might be not just what Manasseh did, but the fact that the people let him. The fact that people went along with it, when they had lived in the reign of Hezekiah, they knew better. And did we just go with the flow and go along with wicked Assyria or wicked Babylon or wicked Manasseh? And do we stay wicked even when Manasseh back, changes back to righteous? Social problems here, and it's going to be a social collective consequence. Well, by the end of the chapter, the Egyptians have now attacked the Assyrians, world superpowers, at, uh, in, in a fight. And like I said before, if you're caught in the middle of the fist fight, you're going to get a black eye or worse. And Josiah sadly gets the worst. He's killed in a battle. He goes out to fight against Pharaoh. And sadly, Josiah, you didn't have to. This wasn't your, he wasn't picking a bone with you. This wasn't your war to wage. In the Chronicles version, chapter 35, verse 21 and 2, Pharaoh warned him, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war, namely the Assyrians. For God commanded me to make haste. Forbear thee from meddling with God, who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him. And in that unnecessary battle, Josiah was killed. And thus ends his reign in a way that it didn't have to. Maybe this is a good illustration of choosing your battles. He chose so many of the right ones and he fought them well. This was one that he didn't have to be involved in. But with him gone, his son Jehoahaz takes the throne. He rules in wickedness. We seem to be going bouncing back and forth in Judah between righteousness and wickedness. He ends up undoing all the good his father had done. Pharaoh who had said some nice things about Josiah, realizes your son is not worth preserving. And so he imprisons him back in Egypt, where he died. He puts Judah to tribute. He installs a different son of Josiah on the throne. His name is Eliakim, but I guess Pharaoh doesn't like that name, and calls him Jehoiakim instead. Sorry for the confusion, no quiz at the end. Jehoiakim means established by God which means either Pharaoh was really prideful, and since I put you in place, and since I'm God, then Jehoiakim, you are established by me, or he's just thinking, I want the people to think that God is behind this, so they'll just keep the peace and, be, and, and follow my little puppet ruler, okay? Just call him Jehoiakim. But he, as well, rules in wickedness, 
taxes the people heavily to keep Pharaoh uh, occupied or happy. And thus ends chapter 23. Now 24, the worst news comes. Verse 1, in his days, the days of wicked Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. And Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. Now you may not know Jehoiakim, but you probably do know Nebuchadnezzar. And it's the Babylonians this time. Enough generations have passed. Hezekiah with a long rule, Manasseh with a long rule, Josiah with a long rule. We're now getting closer and closer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 600 BC. The destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians was about 721, give or take. And so this 120 years have passed. We're getting closer and closer to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Lehi, and Nebuchadnezzar is on the throne, and it's the throne of Babylon. The Assyrian Empire lasted roughly from 900 BC to about 600 BC. But as we already saw, Babylon's on the rise, and Assyria's on the wane by now, and now Babylon's in charge. So Nebuchadnezzar comes, and Jehoiakim doesn't like it. He turns and rebels against him, and maybe it was the timing of it all. A new man on the throne, new empire in charge. If there was ever a chance to make a break for it, let's do it right now. Well, not wise, especially when Babylon isn't your only enemy. In verse 2, the Lord sent against Jehoiakim bands of the Chaldees, bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites, bands of the children of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. Enemies on every side, but the enemy was, the real one anyway, was within Jehoiakim, you're not righteous. You haven't hearkened to the words of the prophets, so you're not heeding the word of God, so God can't be with you. No wonder everyone's against you. Those that be against us are more than those that be with us, because God isn't with us at all. When Jehoiakim then dies, he's succeeded by his son Jehoiakim. Sorry for the similarity in names here. But Jehoiakim is no different than Jehoiakim, and he reigns in wickedness as well. During his reign, the Babylonian army comes. They lay siege to Jerusalem until Judah surrenders. Oh, not even Hezekiah's tunnel could save them from this destruction. And in verse 13, he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Oh, remember Hezekiah's mistake? He showed them all. And generations later, they, but the Babylonians came back, knowing enough of the lay of the land and oh, salivating over the riches that had been told them and now it's all back in Babylon with them. In verse 14, he carried away all Jerusalem, all the princes, all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained, save the poorest sort of the people of the land. Ah, those ones, let's not even worry about it. They're not gonna be strong or wise or valiant enough to take us on, well, just let them stay. It's kind of like the Assyrians, let enough uh, Israelites stay up north that they understand the manner of the God of the land. Well, let the poor go. Like I said, the Assyrian game plan was shuffle the deck or play 52-card pickup. The Babylonian game plan was let's take those leaders with the highest potential. People like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's take the best of the best, and we'll even include their craftsmen and smiths so that nobody can even make armor 
or weapons back home. Let's take their princes, let's take their mighty men of valor, and let's bring them to Babylon. Now, on the one hand, this might sound like a bad idea. Uh, I mean, we're going to bring them into the, the heart of our empire. Isn't that dangerous? Uh, no, we have enough confidence and we have enough strength. to. <laughs> they're not going to rebel right here at home. In fact, I think rather than rebel, they will relent. They'll be, they won't be angry. They'll be in awe. They'll come and look at the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. They'll see the, the strength and sophistication of our civilization. I mean, if King Ahaz was amazed by the fashion and patterns of little Syria, come to Babylon and you'll be blown away. You'll want to worship our gods. You'll want to change your names to reflect that. You'll want to listen to our music and eat our food, all things that we'll see in the book of Daniel. What's the game plan? We're trying to Babylonify you. Because if we can make you little versions of us, you'll be loyal to us instead of loyal to your homeland. You'll never rebel. You've joined your captors. You've captivated yourself. Sound like the Babylonian game plan in our day? You better believe it. But it's happened right here. In fact, verse 16 adds to the list earlier, all the men of might and all that were strong and apt for war. Oh yeah, we can't have you fighting against us. Let's change your mentality and then you'll fight for us. Then verse 17, the king of Babylon made Mataniah his father's brother. That's not Nebuchadnezzar's father's brother. That is Jehoiakim's father's brother. He made him king in his stead and changed his name to Zedekiah. Now, you fans of the Book of Mormon should remember that name. Ooh, this is when Zedekiah is on the throne. That's when Lehi leaves. Exactly. And who was Zedekiah? Well, he was Jehoi Jehoiakim's uncle, which makes him another son of Josiah, which means he should have known better because he was raised in righteousness, but unfortunately he ruled in wickedness. He ends up rebelling against Babylon, but he turns to Egypt for help. And sure enough, that's that rotten reed that's going to pierce your own hand. And yes, he is unsuccessful in that rebellion, which then leaves us with one final chapter, chapter 25, to see the aftermath of this rebellion against Babylon. You don't want to get on their bad side. We already saw that he'd carried away all of these people to Jerusalem. We already saw that he carried away the treasures of the temple and everywhere else. But in chapter 25, we see it all come crashing down. We're nine years into Zedekiah's reign. The Babylonians come to attack Jerusalem. They besiege the city for two years until there's no more food for the people to eat. By then, so weakened on the inside, they can't really defend themselves. And the Babylonians breach the walls just as Zedekiah and his family, seeing there's no hope for them, they flee. Oh, not, this is no captain going down with the ship. This is every man for himself, and he's the first to run. He leaves the people to, to fend for themselves, but he can't f fend for himself because Zedekiah is caught during his escape, and he's brought before the king of Babylon. Now, verse 7, how are you going to respond to this oh, unfaithful king? They slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. Well, fetters of brass might be better than the hooks 
of the Assyrians, but to put your eyes out when the last thing you've seen was the death of your own sons? That's intense. Talk about a, a memory to be seared into the mind. Now that's the end of Zedekiah and the end of his line because his sons have been slain before him. Well, not all of them. And this is where the Book of Mormon adds this detail. Helaman chapter 8, verse 21. And now will you dispute that Jerusalem was destroyed? I mean, that happened a long time ago, almost 600 years. And how do the Nephites know for sure? Well, will you say that the sons of Zedekiah were not slain, all except it were Mulek? Yea, and do ye not behold that the seed of Zedekiah are with us, and they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem? Evidently, there was one son, unnamed in the Bible, but a man named Mulek, who escaped successfully. And that was good for them, for him. His descendants then ended up crossing the ocean and coming to the New World around the same time as Lehi. They landed in different places, and it wasn't until generations later that they finally come together and realize, whoa, we have a common story. And the, the split lines have reconverged. It actually also helps explain the king men, some have suggested in the Book of Mormon, who thought that they had right to the throne, oh, rather than the kings of the Nephites or the chief judges or anything else. Well, how would they come out with that impression? Well, if they're descendants of Mulek, son of King Zedekiah, of the tribe of Judah, and the scepter shall not pass from the, the tribe of Judah, Oh, you Lehite Manassehites? Oh no, you should bow to your proper king, the king men, descendants of Mulek, most likely. Well, back to the, the, the old world, the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar then sends the captain of his guard to Jerusalem. And in verse 9, he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. And every great man's house burnt he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. This is the final and most devastating loss of all. The destruction of the city. The collapse of every wall that would keep out worldly influences. I mean, I guess in some ways they'd broken down their own walls metaphorically long before. But as the Babylonians and Chaldeans come pouring in, with the people of Judah pouring out fire everywhere, destroying every great man's house, and worst of all, destroying the house of the greatest one of all. And the temple is no more. They've lost everything. But specifically in that passage, three things that will be most important to rebuild, and that will prepare us for next week. You have to rebuild the city a sacred space where you can live your life and try to turn it over to God. You have to rebuild the wall because that is what marks off your sacred space. This is the sanctuary of standards. These are the confines of covenant. This is protection. And third, you've got to rebuild the house of the Lord. You've got to center that life within this rebuilt city, in this rebuilt, on this rebuilt temple. That's what walls are, are meant to protect to create this sacred space with sacredness itself at its center. We'll see all of that next week. But here, as part of the destruction of the temple, the Babylonians also break down the bronze pillars. There goes Joachim and Boaz. They bring the metal back to Babylon to do whatever they want with it. Verse 14 and 15, that's not it. The pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, 
All the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered took they away. The firepans, the bowls, such things as were of gold, in gold, of silver, in silver, the, the captain of the guard took away. I add that verse simply because of its list of objects that it describes with the vessels. Because when Isaiah, near the end of his ministry, will say, be clean, that bear the vessels of the Lord, that's what he's talking about. The day will come where you can return to the holy city and make it holy again. The day will come where you can rebuild yourselves in order to rebuild the house of God. But to do so, you must become a worthy temple if you ever hope to build a worthy temple, and that requires cleanliness, worthiness. So if you're planning on going back to Jerusalem and burying the vessels of the temple that were brought into Babylon with you, be clean, as clean as you want the temple to be. With that, we end our story. But throughout all these ups and downs of history this week, God kept sending prophets to cry repentance. That's why I want to end with the Chronicles version of this demise rather than the King's version. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15, the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes, which means early or promptly or right on cue, and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God never gave up on his children. That's why he flooded the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom with so many prophets at their time of imminent destruction. Speaking of crazy names from prophet Isaiah, that's another name of one of his kids, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. The destruction is imminent, speed to the spoil. It's right here. And I'm living my life and naming my children in hopes that you will change. In the next verse, 16, but they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. That's the phrase that sums up all we've studied this week. Till there was no remedy. But isn't there always a remedy? Well, yes, if we'll just use it. Here's the medicine, just take it before it's too late. And the remedy is repentance. It's reformation and restoration. It's all that we've seen Hezekiah do and Josiah do. Open the doors of your temple. Let the light shine in. Bring out the filthiness. Destroy it in the, in the Kidron. Let Christ come and heal you. That is constantly the call of prophets. Turn, soften your stiff neck, and come unto Christ. My friends, it's usually the wicked who mock and despise the words of prophets, but I worry for you and me that among the faithful, even we sometimes misuse them. And what I mean by that is, what's God's ultimate use for a prophet? I think even more than crying repentance. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who publish peace, who saith, thy God reigneth. We're trying to establish Zion. We want to be on the, on the second half, not the first, the sanctification, not the justification. They're trying to make us holy, not just to get us to clean up our act, but if we're still stuck in the first stage and prophets find themselves constantly, great, I still have to cry repentance. 
I always thought about this with Elder Richard G. Scott because it seemed like every talk he gave was about repentance. And I knew he had a lot more to talk about than just that. And I wondered, it'd be so interesting if we actually repented. What would he talk about? I'd love to know. I'd love to let him use everything God has given him. All of his faith, all of his testimony, all of his prophecy and seership and revelation. Let's use the prophets in the way they were meant to be used as they point us to better places. I'm grateful for them. I testify of their inspiration. I'm grateful for a Hezekiah at the helm right now in Russell M. Nelson. It's amazing to see as he is challenging us to learn to hear the Lord and receive personal revelation and sweep out the debris from our lives and strengthen our foundations and let God prevail in our lives as we build spiritual momentum in coming unto him. Really, as we gather Israel, we saw it scattered today. And if the Spirit has tugged at your heart at all to bemoan their fate, then do something about it. As I was pondering these things and realizing the northern kingdom is scattered to the wind, the southern kingdom is, is dragged off into captivity in Babylon, I couldn't, stop but, I couldn't help but hear Mormon lamenting in my mind what he said at the end of his civilization. O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? That's why we're gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. My prayer for all of us is that we can say to a scattered people and a wandering, wandering world, come unto Christ. He has open arms to receive you.